This is Audible. These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. They are produced by the Teaching Company. The Great Courses cover a broad array of university-level disciplines. The lectures in each course are either thirty or forty-five minutes long. By listening for less than an hour a day, you can finish even the longest course in just weeks. Browse our catalog or website, and imagine how much you can learn if you spent just thirty minutes a day for the next year in the best college classrooms in the world. The lecturers are university professors, carefully selected by the teaching company and its customers for intellectual distinction and teaching excellence. These lectures are titled "The Medieval World, Part One." Professor Dorsey Armstrong is associate professor of English and medieval literature at Purdue University. She received her A.B. in English and Creative Writing from Stanford University in 1993. And her Ph.D. in medieval literature from Duke University in 1999. Before joining the English department at Purdue in 2002, she taught at Centenary College of Louisiana and California State University, Long Beach. Her research interests include medieval women writers, late medieval print culture, and the Arthurian legend, on which she has published extensively. Her book. Gender and the Chivalric Community in Sir Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur was published by University Press of Florida in 2003, and her Sir Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, a modern English translation, will be published by Parlor Press in 2009. In January 2009, she became editor in chief of the academic journal Arthuriana, which publishes the most cutting-edge research on the legend of King Arthur. From its medieval origins to its enactments in the present moment, in her current research project, mapping Mallory's Mort, she explores the role that geography plays in Mallory's version of the story of King Arthur. Professor Armstrong prepared the course guidebook that comes with these lectures. The guidebook includes the lecture outlines, a timeline, a glossary, biographical notes, and a bibliography. To get the most out of this course. You may find it useful to review these materials before or after each lecture. Lecture One: The Medieval World. Welcome to the medieval world, a course that aims to explore as fully as possible the many facets of the period in history that we have come to call the Middle Ages. My name is Dorsey Armstrong, and I am a professor at Purdue University, where I teach courses on medieval literature and culture. My particular specialties and interests include the legend of King Arthur, medieval women, and the impact that the development of printing had on late medieval society. Over the next thirty-six lectures, we will explore these and other topics, examining medieval social and cultural institutions, and the historical events that shaped this incredibly important period in human history. Now, although thirty-six lectures may sound like ample time in which to cover most of what is exciting and interesting about the medieval world, the Middle Ages is such a complex and varied period that we will, in some cases, barely scratch the surface. 
I mention this because I feel that any study of the medieval world has to begin with an understanding of how multifaceted this period is, and needs also to recognize the diverse range of cultures, institutions, and belief systems that are encompassed under the descriptor medieval. This course is a little different in focus from other courses on the Middle Ages. Very often, the study of the medieval period seems daunting because it seems that there are so many wars, kings, and plagues to keep track of. Of necessity, this course will spend considerable time on the major historical events and people who shaped this period. But at the same time, this course aims to bring the medieval world to life, as it were. What was daily life like for a peasant in the 14th century? What did medieval people eat? What kind of houses did they live in? What did they wear? What did they do for entertainment? What kind of literature did they like? As we explore these questions, we will move through the period roughly sequentially. But from time to time, we will stop to explore in depth certain ideas or events that we couldn't fully understand if we simply move through them chronologically. But before we get started talking about the Middle Ages, we need to be able to define it, both geographically and temporally, and we need to identify the cultures and traditions from which it developed. For the sake of convenience, most scholars define the Middle Ages as lasting roughly a thousand years, from about 500 to 1500, and geographically, the term medieval is most commonly used to refer to what we think of today as Western Europe. That's a lot to cover in terms of both time and space, and that's before we even take into consideration the oftentimes pronounced cultural differences of the various societies of medieval Europe. In order to make the study of the medieval world a little more manageable, we can further subdivide the Middle Ages in terms of time and geography, and this course will do some of both. Generally speaking, however. Scholars broadly divide the period into three periods: the Early Middle Ages from approximately 500 to 1000, the High Middle Ages from approximately 1000 to 1300, and the Late Middle Ages from approximately 1300 to 1500. Although we necessarily use these dates as a matter of convenience, I cannot stress enough that most scholars are very cautious about relying too much on such artificial boundaries. With a few rare exceptions, one really can't say that the world was one way, for example, in the year 499, and then suddenly became completely different in the year 500. Historians who work on medieval England, for example, have pretty much agreed to say that the Middle Ages in England end in 1485. They pick that year simply because it marks a change in dynasty. 1485 is the year that the last Plantagenet king, Richard III. Was ousted by his distant cousin Henry Tudor, who became King Henry the Seventh. Although scholars have agreed to identify that change as marking the end of the Middle Ages, we can be certain that the values and beliefs of the English people did not suddenly change overnight. Likewise, it would be wrong to suggest that the Renaissance or early modern period did not suddenly spring into being all of a sudden in the 16th century. Those who study such things can see that many of the ideas and philosophies considered inherently Renaissance or early modern actually have their origins in the Middle Ages. It is also important to realize that medieval people 
didn't think they were living in the middle of anything. The terms medieval and middle ages come into use after this period and were used by early scholars of history as a handy descriptor for a period that they regarded as being between two much more remarkable historical periods, that of the Roman Empire, or as it's often called, the late antique world, uh, and the so-called Renaissance, or early modern period. People actually living in the Middle Ages were more likely to regard themselves as living at the end of days, and in one respect, this was partially true, as the Roman Empire had effectively come to an end, and with it, many of the social and cultural institutions that had been a hallmark of the empire ceased to function as effectively as they once had, and in some cases, ceased to function at all. So, in order to understand the Middle Ages then, it is necessary to talk a little bit about the Roman Empire and its legacy, and we will do that in our next lecture. But why, one might ask, should one bother to study the Middle Ages at all? Very frequently I encounter people who assume that this period was all one dark age. Life was difficult, people didn't live long due to wars and famine and plague, there was no understanding of hygiene, it was a time of superstition and ignorance, women had no power and were completely subject to the whims of their husbands, etc., 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 In other words, the Middle Ages is this long nothing between the glory of the Roman world and the incredible learning and innovation that would take place with the Renaissance in the 16th century. Now, certainly some of the charges leveled against the medieval period are fair. By our modern standards, life was difficult for most people. But many of the things we regard as fundamental aspects of modern life have their origins in the Middle Ages. Indeed, most medievalists will tell you that they detest the term Dark Age or Dark Ages because, in fact, in many respects, this was a period of incredible learning and progress. For example, the university system as we know it today has its origins in the Middle Ages. It begins probably sometime in the late 11th century when students would gather around the home of a noted scholar or rhetorician or philosopher in order to learn from him. An organized infrastructure had to come into being in order to cope with students who needed a place to live and who wanted well-known scholars to agree to a certain number of hours of instruction. I always emphasize this to my students when I discuss the rise of the university system. The students in the Middle Ages, many of whom traveled long distances in order to learn from these masters, demanded more education, more hours of instruction than what the masters were originally willing to give. They also wanted a standardized system of fees, and gradually what had been an informal arrangement between a scholar and student grew into the great institutions of learning, such as Oxford and Cambridge universities, the University of Paris, or the Sorbonne, and the Italian universities of Bologna and Padua. Now, Although this burning desire on the part of students to be accepted by a master in order to learn from him may strike us as rather different from the attitudes of many of today's university students, other evidence also suggests that students then and students now are in many respects similar. For example, when he was a student at the University of Paris in the 15th century, 
The poet François Villon was routinely in all kinds of trouble for playing pranks with his comrades, some of which involved stealing the signs of taverns and other businesses. And on one famous occasion, he and his friends liberated a large stone that was called, for reasons unknown, the Devil's Fart, from private property, and they placed it in front of the entrance to one of their classrooms, making it impossible. For either students or instructor to enter and have class, the medieval world, it is true, was a much more difficult world to live in than our modern world in many ways. But that didn't mean that medieval people didn't have a sense of humor, as the exploits of students at various universities suggest. Practical jokes were a perennial favorite. Riddles were also quite popular, particularly. Among the Anglo-Saxons, the Germanic peoples who immigrated to the Isle of Britain from the continent in the fifth century, one riddle that survives in the manuscript known as the Exeter Book, which dates from about the middle of the tenth century, goes as follows, as translated from the original language by scholar Elaine Treharne: "Quote, a curious thing hangs by a man's thigh under the lap of its lord. In its front, it is pierced." It is stiff and hard. It has a good position. When the man lifts his own garment above his knee, he intends to greet with the head of his hanging object that familiar hole which is the same length and which he has often filled before. What's the answer to the riddle? Why, a key, of course. Were you thinking of something else, maybe? In Anglo-Saxon culture, keys were worn on a belt around the waist, and they were often worn under an outer tunic, necessitating the need to lift the outer garment if one was going to place the key into the lock. Now, obviously, the real joke here is the sexual double entendre, but you'd be amazed how many students, when they encounter this riddle, assume that the Anglo-Saxons were not trying to be suggestive, and that the body undertones are entirely accidental, as if. These medieval people were so busy worrying about wars and famine and plague, there was little time for joking, and certainly there was no time to make jokes that were a little risque in nature. Jokes were not the only things being composed in the Middle Ages. Some of the most beautifully crafted and enduring works of literature were created during this time: the story of Beowulf, Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, the poetry of Dante, the legends of King Arthur. All of these came into being during the medieval period, and while it is true that levels of literacy were low and that books were few in number, those books that were produced during this period were true works of art, called manuscripts, which means literally written by hand. These texts were painstakingly crafted, usually by monks, especially in the early part of the Middle Ages. There was no paper, as we know it today. So the process of creating a book was amazingly involved. First, one needed to slaughter an animal, usually a cow or a goat, skin the animal, stretch, scrape, and otherwise treat the hide to make it workable, cut it into sheets, rule and prick those sheets, which simply means marking them in such a way that a writer could have some sort of guide as he worked. And that's before we've even gotten to the mixing of ink, which was often made from walnut galls, and the plucking and sharpening of a quill. 
The forming of letters was also a painstaking process, much more painstaking than it is today. For example, the writing of just the letter M in a high-quality manuscript from the 14th century could involve as many as 12 different pen strokes just for that one letter. It is not surprising that, given the amount of labor involved, the copying of a manuscript was often considered a form of prayer by those monks who labored in the scriptorium, preserving histories and literary texts for future generations. One benefit of medieval manuscripts is indeed their toughness. Barring any calamitous events like fire, they have endured remarkably well and should justifiably be considered treasures, in no small measure because so many of them include breathtaking images and pictures, both as the main subject of a page and also in the margins. Famous manuscripts, such as the Book of Kells, a lavishly decorated edition of the Gospels found in all places in a bog in Ireland where it had probably been thrown to hide and protect it from marauding Vikings, and the Latrell Psalter, a family prayer book that includes some of the most accurate and detailed depictions of medieval daily life in the pictures rendered in its pages, make clear that medieval people had an appreciation and talent for art on par with that of any modern person. So valuable were these manuscripts that often they might be bound within jeweled covers, and any household or monastery lucky enough to have these manuscripts, these books would be displayed on a lectern so that their jeweled covers were visible rather than standing them on a shelf with only the spines visible, as is typical today. But even if it seems that many medieval people are like us in that they valued books and learning, we only have to look at a surviving letter written from one monastery to another to remind ourselves that the world that they inhabited was in many ways different from ours. In this letter, one abbot asks another if his monastery might borrow an important text in order to make their own copy. For, you see, a bear had gotten into their scriptorium and eaten their only copy of this text. At the height of its renown and reputation, the monastery of Monkwearmouth Jarrow in England, known for being an exceptional repository of learning, had about 300 volumes. Many people today have that number or more in their own houses. What makes it possible in part for all of us today to enjoy such a delightful excess of words is the invention of movable type and the printing press, which comes into being in Europe in the late Middle Ages and is usually attributed to one Johannes Gutenberg. With the advent of print in Europe, books become more accessible to and affordable for a large portion of the population. While proponents of the early modern period, which begins in the 16th century, argue For this time, as a renaissance of learning, literacy, and education, the roots of this movement are to be found firmly planted in the Middle Ages. Likewise, modern ideas about legal rights, indeed some would say the very foundation of the American legal system, arguably can be traced back to a day in 1215 at the meadow beside Runnymede when 25 barons of the realm forced England's King John to sign the Magna Carta, or the Great Charter. 
We will talk about this document and its significance at length in a later lecture, but here, among other important items, we see the establishment of the writ of habeas corpus and limits placed on the powers of a leader of the people. There are also, you might be surprised to learn, clauses that deal with issues such as the rights of people to set fish weirs or fish traps in the River Thames and standards of weights and measures for food, drink, and cloth. But we will deal with these and many other fascinating aspects of the Magna Carta a little bit later in the course. The medieval period is also one of the great periods for architectural innovation. Although it is true that the majority of the population of Europe during the Middle Ages lived in simple dwellings, usually made of wood, this is also the age of cathedral building. These soaring, massive stone structures are a testament to medieval ingenuity and understanding of architectural principles, and they also demonstrate a sophisticated grasp of mathematics and physics. The labor required to produce these glorious buildings was enormous and demanding, both in terms of the physical manpower required for their construction and the delicate artistry that provided the finishing touches on these marvels. A stone worker might labor for weeks or even months on a portion of a cathedral that, when set into place, might only occasionally be seen by human eyes, and in some cases might never be seen, depending on its location. Many cathedrals took decades to build, meaning that the architects or master builders who began the project might not be alive to witness its completion. When one looks at the number of cathedrals scattered throughout Europe and how well they have endured, and when one considers that these edifices were constructed Without benefit of modern equipment like cranes or modern drafting techniques, one can appreciate that the medieval minds responsible for their existence were certainly as clever, subtle, and sophisticated as those of any modern architect or builder today. One of the driving forces that made such a huge undertaking possible was religious faith. And here, I think it is safe to say that the medieval world is different from the modern United States. One has to remember, there is no such thing as separation of church and state in the Middle Ages. In many instances, in fact, they seem to be one and the same. Religion permeated all aspects of life in the medieval period, and another thing that we need to keep in mind is that for most of the Middle Ages, and for most medieval people, there is only one religion, and that is Christianity, and specifically that branch of Christianity that we call Catholicism today. In fact, because the Catholic Church so dominated medieval life, I often tell my students that when speaking of Christianity in the Middle Ages, it is not correct to say the Catholic Church. When we use that phrase today, we are usually distinguishing one kind of Christianity from others notably those that came into being during the Protestant Reformation, which most people think of as beginning sometime in the 16th century or after the medieval period. Because there is really only one acceptable faith for the majority of people in the medieval period, I tell my students that they should refer to the major religious institution of the Middle Ages as simply the church or maybe the Western church 
in order to distinguish it from Eastern Christian traditions that start to develop in the world around the city of Constantinople after the fall of the Roman Empire. This is not to say, however, that there was not significant religious tension and even dissent during the Middle Ages, because there certainly was. In fact, the roots of both the Protestant Reformation and the debate about the separation of church and state are to be found in the medieval period. For example, on Christmas Day in the year 800, the Pope crowned Charlemagne, ruler of the Carolingians, as Holy Roman Emperor. A debate ensued. Did the Pope's move serve simply to acknowledge the power that Charlemagne had won for himself, or did the act demonstrate that the Church was the higher authority and had the right to grant the power to rule over men? The relationship of secular rulers with religious authorities would be a contentious one throughout the Middle Ages and will be something we explore in some depth as our course progresses. We will also look at movements of religious dissent that laid the groundwork for the Protestant Reformation, movements like Lollardy, also called Wycliffism, which was a significant element in 14th century Britain. The Lollards and the man often identified as their leader, John Wycliffe, believed that people could have a direct relationship with God without the need for the intermediary services of the church. In the medieval period, you see, church services were performed in Latin, and the Bible and its interpretation was the domain of ecclesiastical leaders. The idea was that ordinary or lay people lacked the training and knowledge to properly understand the message of the Bible, and priests were needed to guide and instruct the people so that they did not misinterpret something and thus needlessly fall into sin through an error of understanding. Wycliffe and his followers believed that the Bible should be translated into English and be made available to anyone, and also that anyone, even women, could be religious leaders and teachers. For their trouble, many Lollards were excommunicated, burned, or otherwise severely punished. Although the church is everywhere in medieval society and is, for all intents and purposes, the only game in town when it comes to Christianity, Jews and Muslims and their cultural and religious beliefs are incredibly important in the medieval world. Jewish communities served several important functions in medieval society, and unfortunately one of those functions was often to play the role of scapegoat or villain. And the Muslim world would profoundly affect Western Europe in a variety of ways, from architecture to literature to cooking. This course will spend considerable time exploring contacts between and among Christian, Jewish, and Muslim communities in order to demonstrate that although the church dominates medieval life, its relationships with various groups and members of the societies of the Middle Ages is more nuanced and less monolithic than has often been considered the case. We can see the multifaceted nature of medieval religious belief in part through an examination of those most devoted of Christian practitioners, monks and nuns. There are several different kinds of religious or monastic orders that come into being in the Middle Ages, each with its own ideas about proper devotion to and worship of God. We will learn about the various communities of men and women who sought to forsake earthly pleasures and serve God 
by gathering in communities where they would work and pray for the glory of the Lord. Then there are those religious figures who sought a higher form of devotion and would have themselves enclosed or essentially buried alive in small cells, which were usually attached to churches. These people, most frequently women who were called anchoresses, anchorite being the masculine equivalent, might live out their days in a small room with barely enough room to stretch out. Very often, their cell or anchor hold would have a small window which would allow them to see the altar of the church to which their enclosure was attached. And they might have another small window to the outside world where they might converse with religious pilgrims seeking counsel and also receive food. Although numerous accounts of anchoresses suggest that many of them lived on little more than the occasional communion wafer and communion wine, as fasting and deprivation were considered exemplary forms of prayer and devotion. Spiritual athletes such as these occasionally made it to sainthood, and the veneration of saints is another important aspect of medieval society that we will explore in some detail. One of the most important literary masterpieces of the Middle Ages, Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, takes as its framing motif the journey of a group of religious pilgrims to the shrine of St. Thomas Becket at the Cathedral of Canterbury. Making a religious pilgrimage was a popular activity in the Middle Ages, and people did so for a variety of reasons, including to atone for sins or to seek a cure for illness or injury. Some also seem to have gone on pilgrimages as a kind of vacation or social activity, as the opening lines of Chaucer's masterpiece suggest. He tells us in the English of 14th century London, One that April with a sure suta, the drought of March hath pierced to the rota, and bathed every vine in switch liqueur, of which vertu engendered is the fleur. One zephyrus eke with his sweet a breath, in spirit hath in every holt and heath, the tender crocus and the young sun hath in the ram his half course irun. And smala foolus makin melodia, that sleep and alvenicte with open ear. So pricketh him natura in here coraja, than longin folk to gone on pilgrimage. What Chaucer's essentially saying here is that after the rains of April have fallen and spring has come, and the sun is warm and the fields and meadows are in flower and the birds are singing, then people desire to go on pilgrimages. In other words, making a pilgrimage to atone for sins is all well and good, but most people prefer to travel to a shrine when the weather is nice. Thank you very much. So we can see that the medieval world and its inhabitants are, in many respects, just like us. They have a sense of humor. They want their leaders, both secular and religious, to treat them fairly. They're capable of amazing feats of artistry, and innovation. At the same time, the medieval world is a place that can seem utterly foreign to us in the 21st century. It is hard for many of us today to imagine what it must have been like to live in a world completely permeated by religion, to live in a world where a woman might give birth to 10 children and only see two of them make it past the age of five if she was lucky, to live in a world where society was divided into hierarchies between which it was usually impossible to move. 
to be constantly aware that just one or two years of bad harvests could mean the difference between starvation and well-being. I could go on and on discussing the differences between our world and that of the Middle Ages, but to put it simply, this is what makes the medieval world so fascinating. It is, in so many respects, utterly alien to our 21st century sensibilities, but at the same time, it is a foreign culture within which lie the seeds of our own. For this reason alone, it is incredibly important that we understand the Middle Ages so that we can also understand the source of many of the institutions and customs we regard as fundamental to our society today. And in order to understand the medieval world, we have to understand its origins. And that means we need to understand the legacy of the Roman Empire and the late antique world in the West. In our next lecture, we will discuss the end of the Roman world and how its cultural systems, institutions, and beliefs gave rise to the society that we refer to as medieval. Lecture 2, The Legacy of the Roman World. Welcome back. In our last lecture, we discussed some of the broad similarities and differences between our modern world and the medieval world, and how many of the institutions and ideas that we consider modern, in fact, have their roots in the Middle Ages. As I noted last time, Medieval people didn't think they were living in the middle of anything. The terms Middle Ages and Medieval were applied to the period much later and were used primarily by scholars who thought that this period, which we define as spanning roughly a thousand years from 500 to 1500, was a sort of dark age, a long space between the glory that was the Roman Empire and the Renaissance or early modern period which was, in the minds of many, a rebirth or rediscovery of classical learning and artistic flourishing that harkened back to the days of the empire. It is certainly true that if we want to understand the Middle Ages, we have to spend some time exploring the legacy of the Roman Empire as early medieval societies, and I'm deliberately using the plural here, developed out of the social, religious, and political customs and institutions of the empire. Most people today, even if they haven't studied the period, have some sense of what the Roman Empire was. For our purposes in this course, it is most important to understand three aspects of the Roman world, and these are the geographical, the political, and the cultural nature of the empire. Geographically, the empire was astonishingly large, especially when one considers that this massive territory all had to be managed and controlled without the use of telephones or faxes or any other modern conveniences of communication. It included Europe, all the way west to Britain, and north to the Rhine and Danube rivers. To the east, the empire extended well into the area we know as the Middle East today, fluctuating around the natural boundary of the Euphrates River, and to the south, the empire extended into northern Africa, Politically speaking, the empire had been built largely by physical, i.e. military, 
force. The Roman military is justly famous as an incredibly efficient, effective, well-oiled fighting machine. Their superior training, coordination, and significantly sophisticated battle tactics, not to mention sheer numbers, made it possible for them to easily conquer, subdue, and maintain control over many realms they wished to bring into the embrace of the empire. And they wished to bring many of these realms under their control not because the leaders of the empire were necessarily power-hungry, although there were a few who did seem to exhibit a desire to conquer and rule just for the sake of doing so, but very often it was the desire for natural resources and making those resources easily available that led to their expansion. For example, one reason the Romans were interested in Britain was because it was rich in tin, a metal that was useful for a variety of purposes and easy to work with. During the reign of the Emperor Caracalla, around the year 212, all free inhabitants of the empire, not just those living on the Italian peninsula, but those out in the provinces as well, could be considered full Roman citizens. This would have a lasting impact. We see peoples in the far west of the empire, in North Africa and the Middle East, still identifying themselves as Roman citizens into the 5th century by which time the Roman Empire had essentially ceased to exist. With Roman citizenship and identity being significantly extended in the 3rd century, all the power that had once been concentrated on the Italian peninsula and in the city of Rome itself started to diffuse. Indeed, by the 3rd century, Roman emperors could come from the provinces and not just Rome itself. For example, the emperors Trajan and Hadrian both came from the region that today we call Spain. So, geographically, we have an empire that covers a large territory and a variety of different peoples who, no matter their original ethnicity, however we might choose to define that phrase, would also identify as Roman. Politically speaking, power begins to be spread and dispersed away from the Roman center in the 3rd century. Part of what makes this possible is that third important factor I mentioned a moment ago, Roman culture. The culture of the empire has its own word, Romanitas, to describe it. What Romanitas essentially means is Romanness. Rome became more than just a geographical locus. Romanization, or the spread of Roman ideas and customs, became important throughout the empire. Each town within the Roman Empire became a sort of mini-Rome, mimicking institutions like the Roman Senate found in the capital. Other aspects of Roman culture were also recreated everywhere the Romans established themselves. Go to the south of France and you can find aqueducts like the Pont du Gard. In London, you can see the remains of the original wall around the city from when it was called Londinium. In the English town of Bath, you can visit, no big surprise here, the Roman baths. And one of the greatest things that efficient, well-oiled Roman military did was build roads. The main reason for this was practical. Rome wanted to be able to move its legions from place to place as quickly as possible when needed. But the workmanship was such that 1,000 years after the Romans left Britain, for example, 
the best roads were still, in many cases, those laid down by the Romans. Today, in many parts of Europe, major highways and arteries follow what is essentially the original route laid out by the Romans. At its height, the Roman Empire was one of the most awesome institutions of man the world has ever seen. All good things must come to an end, however. And for a long time, professional scholars, armchair historians, and lay people alike held the belief that the end of the empire had been a dramatic, cataclysmic event. This idea was common by the time Edward Gibbon wrote his famous *Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire* in the late 18th century. Gibbon claimed to have been inspired to write his book while sitting among some ruins in the city of Rome. He and many other historians saw a contrast between Roman civilization and the barbarians in the north. The area beyond the Danube was called Germania by the Romans, and the people living there were long regarded as uncivilized barbarians. Although it was once accepted by most scholars that the Roman Empire had experienced a relatively sudden disintegration. Today, most historians working on what we call the Late Antique Period prefer to think of the period from the third to the fifth centuries as more of a transformation than a decline and fall or collapse. Experts are more likely to see Rome as transforming as it accommodated various groups outside its borders. Specifically, the various cultures that sprang from the Roman Empire are viewed by most scholars as interesting hybrids of Roman. Germanic and Christian elements. We can see this transformation beginning during what many scholars have called the crisis of the third century. By the third century, the Roman Empire was seriously overextended in terms of both manpower and resources, and we can see this evidence in four areas: in terms of military threats, number one; number two, political problems; number three. Economic issues, and number four, social upheaval. In the third century, the empire was threatened on almost every one of its borders. These threats came from Germanic tribes in the north, the Persian Empire in the east, and Berber tribes in Africa, in the southern part of the empire. Most of these threats on the borders were not from peoples who wished to conquer Rome or any of its territories, but rather. Most frequently, what these people wanted, at least initially, in most cases, was to be let into the empire to become citizens. Within the empire itself, Rome was threatened by the fact that it lacked a clear system of imperial succession. So, successful rule really depended upon the personal presence and command of the emperor. This guy absolutely had to be charismatic enough. To hold the loyalty of his subjects in general, and most importantly, of those in the military. Between the years 235 and 285, there were at least 20 emperors, with several more men who could be considered pretenders to the throne. All but one were murdered, killed in battle, or died while imprisoned. It doesn't take a genius to see that if this issue were to continue to go unresolved. It would have a seriously negative impact on the stability of the empire. Adding to these other problems was an economic downturn. To begin with, 
The Roman economy, especially in the West, was not particularly sophisticated or stable. The economy was primarily agrarian, based on agriculture and farming, and thus was subject to serious problems should bad weather or other factors cause significant crop failures. Because of the increased threats along the borders, additional taxes needed to be levied in order to pay the military. When this wasn't sufficient, currency devaluation became necessary, which only exacerbated rather than alleviated the economic problems. Contributing to these issues, or perhaps because of them in part, a new ruling class rose during this period. Their strength was military-based, which meant that the Roman Senate and those high-ranking citizens back in Rome proper were losing status. Many noble Roman families who had long had power and influence found themselves shunted aside by relative upstarts who had gained a high social position through service to and command of the military. It was the Emperor Diocletian, who reigned from 285 to 305, who provided the most effective and significant responses to the crisis of the 3rd century. His solutions had as their main goal the preservation of Romanitas. But the empire was definitely different politically, socially, and culturally after his reforms, which he enacted in three key areas. The first was in the area of religion. And what we need to remember here is that the Romans at this time are still polytheistic pagans, worshipping many gods, and to the pantheon of official gods and those so-called diverse household gods revered in outlying areas of the empire, Diocletian added the cult of the emperor, sometimes called the genius of the emperor, emphasizing the power and divinity of the emperor in an attempt to solidify his authority. The second area in which Diocletian made some changes was in terms of the daily administration of the empire. And here, the most important thing he did was restructure the office of emperor. Diocletian recognized that one person could not possibly oversee the entire Roman Empire and do a good job. So he sought to solve the control issue and the succession issue with one move. He divided the empire into two halves, the western and the eastern, and then developed a tetrarchy, which literally means rule of four. In this system, he would remain emperor, but he would have a co-ruler called an Augustus, and there would also be two junior deputies, one for each emperor, and these would be called Caesars. The idea was that the Caesars could help share the burden of ruling while being trained to take over as heirs to the imperial thrones. Diocletian claimed the eastern half of the empire for himself, for reasons that we'll discuss in a moment, and his co-ruler took the western half. As Diocletian's choice suggests, the eastern half of the empire was more attractive than the west in the early 4th century. And there were a number of reasons for this. First, The eastern half of the empire contained more and larger cities, such as Alexandria, Thessalonica, and Athens, which were quite prosperous. Second, unlike the west, the eastern economy did not have all its eggs in the agrarian basket, so to speak. There was a strong commercial mercantile economy in the east. 
the population of the eastern half of the empire was also significantly larger than that in the west, which meant, among other things, that there was a significant amount of manpower for military and other projects, and there was also a significant tax base. In addition to all these other pluses, the borders of the Eastern Empire were less frequently attacked than those in the West, which meant a relatively more peaceful, stable civilization. In 305, Diocletian and his co-Augustus Maximian abdicated in favor of the Caesars. But instead of the orderly succession for which Diocletian had hoped, civil war ensued. Finally, Constantine, son of the Caesar Constantinus, successfully claimed the throne of emperor in 312. Constantine, an incredibly ruthless and ambitious man, is also very significant to any study of the medieval period for two main reasons. The first is his establishment of a new capital called Constantinople, located in Byzantium on the Black Sea, which would become a new Rome for the eastern half of the empire. And the second is his championing of Christianity. As I said earlier in this lecture, the societies that emerged from the dissolution of the Roman Empire are considered to be hybrids of Roman, Germanic, and Christian ideals. And the status of Christianity as a powerful influence can be in large measure attributed to Constantine, for it is during his reign that Christianity goes from being a persecuted religion to the major religion of the empire. As we've already discussed, Roman paganism was comfortably polytheistic. Religion was also tied to patriotism, so religious practice, in essence, was also a way of expressing or displaying one's Roman citizenship. A religion that was a problem for the empire was Judaism. They were a problem in that they were obviously emphatically monotheistic, worshipping one god, and there was no way to truly comfortably accommodate their beliefs within the religious spectrum of ideologies that were acceptable in the empire. But, for the most part, the Jews were tolerated, allowed to practice their religion, and lived in relative harmony with the other citizens of the empire, although at the same time, the striking difference in their religious practices from the rest of the empire did set their communities apart and made those communities very close-knit. Christians, on the other hand, were a much more significant problem in the eyes of the empire. Now here, one of the most important things to understand about the earliest days of the Christian religion is, number one, it wasn't considered Christian at all. Rather, it was just another sect of Judaism. Number two, this new Jewish sect proselytized and recruited in a way that Jews traditionally had not. Jews had been tolerated because they did not really seek converts. By contrast, Christianity in the early empire was regarded as an aggressive cult, and it was not seen so much as a religion as it was a subversive political movement. The result of this was a series of persecutions. In particular, in about 303, we have the beginning of what has come to be called the Great Persecution of Christians. All of this changes, however, during the reign of the Emperor Constantine, who ruled from 306 to 337. It is estimated that when Constantine came to the throne, about 
10% of the population of the Roman Empire was Christian. What changes everything for Christianity and the empire, and thus has a profound effect on the medieval period, is the conversion of the emperor Constantine. One of the key moments in the process of his conversion was an event in 312 known as the Battle of Milvian Bridge. The night before the battle, the story goes, Constantine has a vision in which he's told to paint a certain symbol on his shield. That symbol is known as the Chi Rho, and these two characters were the first two letters of Christ's name in Greek. Constantine does this and wins the battle. It is believed that this inspires Constantine to issue something called the Edict of Toleration in the year 313. What this does is prohibit persecution of Christians. We don't know exactly what Constantine himself believed or how devout or sincere any conversion of his own might have been, but what we do know is that over the course of the next century, paganism and Christianity essentially reversed positions, and the Christian faith went from being a minority religion to the religion of the empire. So by the end of the 4th century, we have a Roman Empire that is Christian, that has instituted some rather drastic measures to try and ensure its survival, and that is increasingly threatened on many of its borders. And one of the biggest threats comes from the region that the Romans called Germania, which, as I noted, is essentially everything north of the Danube River. One thing that we absolutely need to remember is that these so-called barbarians were, first of all, not at all one unified group of people. They were disparate tribes who would think of their particular group as distinctly different from, say, a tribe whose community was centered just a few miles away. But, in terms of cultural practices, religious beliefs, and language, they were similar, although they would not have understood themselves as all belonging to a single group that today we might call Germanic. There are all kinds of groups moving through Europe in the 4th and 5th centuries, and these movements put considerable pressure on the borders of the empire. But the most important group for our purposes today are the Goths, and that's the group we're going to focus on now. We know about the Goths primarily from the writings of a 6th century man named Jordanus. When he describes the Goths, Jordanus makes some interesting comments. He identifies them as coming from Scandinavia, and when he describes their movements during the 4th and early 5th centuries, he describes military conquest as a motivation, but also notes that in many cases, what we have is families who are moving to new territory and settling down. We have migrations into towns, and we have plenty of trade and contact with other peoples, including the Roman Empire. He characterizes the Goths as fierce and warlike, but also says that they are, quote, nearly like the Greeks suggesting that they had a highly developed and sophisticated culture. In the year 376, the Visigoths request asylum inside the empire, as they are being forced out of their own territories in the east by the Huns. Asylum is denied to them, and it is more out of desperation than any desire for conquest that they attack and defeat the Roman army at the Battle of Adrianople in the year 378. This battle is significant for several reasons. One is that the emperor of the western half of the empire, a man named Valens, is killed there. From this point on, the Visigoths are variously allies and enemies of Rome. 
They serve in the Roman army from time to time, and when they were of some use to Rome, they were quite welcome in that they could assist Rome in fighting many of their other enemies who were pressing against their borders. In 402, under the leadership of a man named Alaric, the Visigoths entered the Italian peninsula. They asked, in return for their support and alliance, that Rome give them land and gold. The Romans stalled, and in frustration, in the year 410, the Goths marched south and sacked Rome itself, and Alaric became emperor. Although the city of Rome itself had declined in terms of prestige, the psychological ramifications of this are profound for those people living within the empire and who thought of themselves as Roman citizens. There is really no other option but for the empire to accommodate the Visigoths. As allies of Rome, they fight against the Huns, who are led by the infamous Attila, and Galla Placida, the daughter of the emperor Theodosius, actually marries Alaric's successor, Autuf, in 414. This accommodation of the Visigoths sets a dangerous precedent in that it paved the way for other so-called barbarian tribes to settle within the empire and become citizens. Although these people did tend to become Romanized, to adopt Romanitas as an ideal, the result was that the empire was also becoming Germanized. One place that became Germanized in emphatic fashion was Britain. Now, the Romans had managed to bring much of Britain under control of the empire, and most of the people living in Britain, with some important exceptions, were Roman citizens from the year 43 AD until the 5th century. So for almost four centuries. Think of that. 400 years. That's significantly longer than the United States has even been in existence. Even though they were on the edge of the empire, many of what we might call the Romano-British had embraced Romanitas. As we discussed in our last lecture, the Romans did what they always did when they took over an area. They recreated Roman culture. They built baths and villas and temples and roads and put an administrative bureaucracy in place to manage the territory more efficiently. And in fact, although many parts of the Roman Empire had gone into a decline in the 4th century, this was actually a period of relative prosperity for Britain. The archaeological evidence, for example, shows large agricultural villas in existence around this time. But as I mentioned earlier, Rome itself was under threat in the early 5th century, and in 406, an overextended empire called the legions stationed in Britain back to Rome to address the increasing threat from the Goths. Even after this, however, the British still considered themselves Roman citizens and expected that, should they need protection, Rome would provide it. Very soon after the withdrawal, the Romano-British began to be attacked by some people called the Picts, who came down from the north from what is today Scotland, and they were attacked also by the Scots, who confusingly at this time don't come from Scotland, but rather come from Ireland. In response to these attacks, the Britons sent a letter to the Roman consul Aetius, just across the channel in Gaul, which is modern-day France, and the letter begins with the writers telling the consul that they are sending him, quote, the groans of the Britons. The letter goes on to ask for help, saying, 
The barbarians drive us to the sea. The sea drives us to the barbarians. Between these two fatal threats, we are either slain or drowned. The answer that comes back is essentially, you're on your own. The Rome of which the Britons believe they are citizens, for all intents and purposes, no longer exists. Now, in response to this threat, one of the many leaders of the Britons, a man named Vortigern, hires a group of mercenaries who hail from the area around present-day Germany to come to Britain and help the Romano-British fight off their enemies. According to tradition, in the year 449 A.D., three boatloads of Germanic seafaring warriors, led by two brothers with the marvelous names of Hengist and Horsa, land on the shores of Britain and they fairly quickly do what Vortigern hired them to do. That is, they push back the Picts and the Scots. But then, after this, they take a look around and see that Britain is a pretty nice place to live and its people have no means of military resistance. They send word back to the continent and pretty soon you have a full-scale migration, usually called the Anglo-Saxon invasion of Britain. Members of the tribes of the Angles and Saxons were heavily represented in this invasion, but the invaders also included members of other Germanic groups, like the Jutes and the Frisians. Still, today, for the sake of convenience, we refer to this group collectively as the Anglo-Saxons. As you might imagine, there is no way the Britons are going to be able to fight off the people they paid to fight off the people they were unable to fight off. So, the Anglo-Saxons very quickly established themselves as a power on the island. Now, as a general rule, medieval scholars dislike the phrase Dark Ages, but if ever there were a period that be co- could be called a Dark Age, the 5th century in Britain is it. This is a period often referred to as Sub-Roman Britain to indicate the influence of at least the idea of Rome and Romanitas, that lingered for much of the populace, although the reach of the empire actually no longer extended that far. As part of the Roman Empire, Britain had had scholars and scribes, many of whom were religious men like monks and priests, because, like the rest of the empire, early Britain had been Christian. With the arrival of the Germanic Anglo-Saxons, who were polytheistic pagans and members of a pre-literate culture, Britain is plunged into a period of darkness about which we know very little. Writing and record-keeping essentially disappear. People are concerned with simply staying alive, and there's not room for much else. As we head toward the 6th century, something similar to what has occurred in Britain with the invasion of the Anglo-Saxons and in the capital of Rome itself with the sack by the Visigoths is occurring all throughout the western part of the empire. The impact of Diocletian's division of the empire into two halves would continue to be felt well into the Middle Ages. To put it simply, the two halves of the empire went in different directions. The legacy of this divided empire resulted ultimately in what many scholars have described as the barbarization of the West, meaning that societies in the western half of the empire became more like the non-Roman groups that had been living on its fringes and borders, and the Hellenization of the East, meaning that the eastern half of the empire came to resemble what we think of generally as the culture and ideals of Greece and the Greek-influenced ancient world. 
The West is where most of our focus is going to remain throughout these lectures, although the eastern half of the Roman Empire will continue to be important, at least as an idea. As we look ahead to our next lectures, there are several aspects of this transformation of the Roman Empire in the West that we need to keep in mind as we start to think about the early Middle Ages. First, in a, the face of a series of migrations, invasions, and other upheavals, the population either remains stagnant or declines. Second, we have urban centers, cities, beginning to wither. There are also several eruptions of violence, and so, not surprisingly, trade declines. As does what we might call cultural life. In particular, levels of literacy among the population decrease. In the aftermath of the Roman Empire, power becomes localized, meaning that people are no longer looking to a distant capital or center, Rome, as a model, or for guidance, or directives, or laws, but rather, local warlords and those who are able to control the economy are the ones with power. In our next lecture, we will examine in greater detail how the cultures that emerged from the Roman Empire were hybrids of Roman, Germanic, and Christian elements, and how all these elements found expression in such seemingly diverse areas as politics, architecture, art, and literature. Lecture 3, The Christianization of Europe. Welcome back. In our last lecture, we discussed the legacy of the Roman Empire, particularly the fact that the cultures that emerged from what was left of Rome tended to be hybrids of Christian, Roman, and Germanic elements. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about how the process of Christianization continued after the decline of the empire, particularly among those groups of people who lived beyond the traditional bounds of the Roman Empire in the region that the Romans referred to as Germania. The process of the Christianization of the Roman Empire is complex. Indeed, we could do a whole lecture series just on this topic alone, but I'm going to try and give you a brief, somewhat simplified overview of that process. One reason Christianity spread throughout the empire is that, unlike the Jewish traditions from which it sprang, Christianity was a belief system that actively sought to recruit adherents to spread the message of Jesus. The refusal of Christians to participate in the worship of pagan gods or the cult of the genius of the emperor was considered a major problem by the Roman state. Concentrated and deliberate persecutions of Christians began in the first century under the emperor Nero and escalated into the third century. By the year 250, the emperor Decius had identified Christians as enemies of Rome. This belief was underscored by Diocletian's reaction to the crisis of the third century. The Christians presented an obstacle to one of his solutions to the crisis, the renewed emphasis on the divinity of the emperor, because of their unshakable monotheism. In the year 298, on an occasion when Roman priests were performing a pagan sacrifice in the presence of the emperor, it was thought that favorable omens did not result because some Christians were present 
and they had made the sign of the cross during the pagan ritual. Events such as these led eventually to the Great Persecution, which began in 303 and continued for about the next decade until Constantine, as we discussed last time, offered protection to Christians in 313 with the Edict of Toleration, which he issued after his victory at the Battle of Milvian Bridge, a victory he felt had been made possible through divine intervention. Over the course of the next century, Christianity and paganism essentially switched positions within the empire. Now, what we should understand about Christianity in the empire is that it is not so much a triumph of one belief system over another as it is a successful compromise. Many older pagan traditions were incorporated into the practices of the new religion, and traditional imperial symbols were reinterpreted in a Christian calendar. The reality is that most people probably held a sort of combination of Christian and pagan beliefs, and very often Christian celebrations and feasts were simply substituted for pagan ones. The most obvious example of this would be the celebration of the birth of Christ in December. Many scholars are convinced that the historical Jesus was actually born in late summer. So why celebrate his birthday in late December? Well, that had traditionally been the time of the celebration of the pagan Saturnalia, an event that usually coincided with the winter solstice or the longest night of the year. In other words, this was the time when people celebrated the fact that the days were finally about to start getting longer and the nights shorter. If you think about it, this would really be something to celebrate in the days before electricity. Although I'm greatly oversimplifying and perhaps being a little flippant here, it makes sense that if you're going to ask people to give up many of their traditional religious beliefs, you could at least let them keep the celebration that provided some entertainment and merriment at the darkest time of the year. That, in a nutshell, is why Christmas is celebrated. when it is now once the church became the favored religion of the empire it was able to build wealth and consolidate its position locally in the area around the mediterranean at the start of the 5th century and well into the 6th however the church's attention shifts to northwestern europe and today we're going to focus on two occurrences of conversion paying particular attention to narratives that described the conversion process among the Franks whose kingdom included most of what is modern day France and the Anglo-Saxons who eventually became the people we know as the English the Frankish people also known as the Merovingians so called after one of their legendary leaders Merovec were a Germanic people who by the 4th century had settled within the Roman empire in the region known as Gaul they had served in the Roman army but they were different from other germanic tribes in that they settled in one place and then began to expand their power rather than continuing to move throughout europe we know about the merovingians primarily from a history written by a man called gregory of tours gregory's chronicle the history of the franks is one of the most readable texts from the early medieval period at times he becomes downright chatty and he provides us with an invaluable look at a region that was transforming from Roman Gaul into Merovingian France. 
His text is a first-hand observer's record of the social, religious, and political life of a community at a crucial point in history, when Rome no longer existed in the West, but could still be remembered, and that memory was still potent. Gregory was born in the middle of the sixth century and was the son of an aristocratic Gallo-Roman family. His family had been influential in the region of the city of Tours for some time, dominating the religious offices of this episcopal see, a term which refers to the domain of the authority of a particular bishop. Gregory's text is important not only for what it tells us in terms of historical events and important figures. But also because it demonstrates quite clearly how history could be manipulated to serve a particular agenda. Gregory's goal was to write what we call a providential history, in other words, a chronicle that detailed how God is the ultimate cause of all things. Gregory worked quite closely with the Frankish kings, whom he saw as instruments of divine providence, and in writing his history. He also wanted to provide kings of his day with what he considered to be good examples of kingly behavior. Perhaps the most important example of this is Gregory's treatment of the Merovingian king Clovis, who ruled from 481 to 511. We'll talk at greater length about Clovis and the Merovingian dynasty as a whole in our next lecture. But for our purposes today, I want us to focus on how Gregory represents him in his text. Gregory of Tours presents Clovis as a pagan, who takes as one of his wives a woman named Clotilde, who was of a Burgundian royal family. Clotilde tries to persuade Clovis to convert, but with little effect. She has their first son Ingomer baptized, but Ingomer dies shortly thereafter, and Clovis places the blame for this on her god. A second son is born and baptized. And he too becomes sick. Clotilde prays over him, and he recovers. But this is not enough to persuade Clovis to take up this new religion. What does the trick finally is what worked in the case of Constantine, and this is essentially a battlefield conversion. The Franks were at war with a people known as the Alamanni, and Clovis's troops were being slaughtered left and right. He prays to Christ and asks for victory. In return, Clovis will accept baptism and become a Christian. Needless to say, he wins the battle and then prepares himself for baptism. According to Gregory, he meets with Bishop Remigius, who had been summoned by the queen, and although he tells the bishop that he is ready to convert, he is concerned that his people will be unwilling to give up worshiping their gods. So. He arranges a meeting with his people to discuss this new religion with them, but before he can say a word, according to Gregory, they all, with one accord and one voice, announce that they are ready to forsake the worship of pagan gods and to accept this new religion. With that settled, Clovis goes to be baptized, and in the words of Gregory of Tours, quote, "Like some new Constantine, he stepped forward to the baptismal pool." Ready to wash away the sores of his old leprosy and to be cleansed in flowing water from the sordid stains which he had borne so long, King Clovis confessed his belief in God the Almighty, three in one. He was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and marked in chrism 
with the sign of the cross of Christ. Now, there are a few problems or issues with Gregory's account of Clovis's conversion. First of all, this narrative, as we will see, is a kind of set piece that is retold in various forms in several conversion narratives throughout the Middle Ages. And as such, it contains four elements that we will see repeatedly. These include the role of a Christian queen in converting her pagan husband, the power of the Christian god to bring victory in battle, the king's concern over his people's willingness to follow him in his conversion, and then the conclusion in which the king and all his people convert. One of the biggest issues scholars have with Gregory of Tours' account is the fact that we have ample evidence that before this moment, Clovis was already Christian, but he was an Arian Christian. What does this mean? Well, What we have to remember is that in the early days of Christianity, it was still very much a work in progress. The tenets and practices of the faith were still being worked out by various important church fathers, such as the famous St. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo from North Africa. And early on in the Christian tradition, we see people following beliefs that will eventually be condemned as heresies. What we have to remember, however, is that until they are officially condemned, Such beliefs are regarded as completely legitimate and orthodox by many. Arianism is one of these beliefs. In a nutshell, Arianism was the belief that although Christ was divine, he could not be as divine as God the Father, in part because he had been human for a time, and because, as the Son, he had not existed co-eternally with the Father. The issue was one of those taken up and dealt with at the Council of Nicaea, which Constantine himself had overseen. Thus, Gregory's attempt to characterize Clovis as a new Constantine is significant in that he seems to be trying to rewrite Clovis' conversion, making him a convert directly from paganism to the true Christian faith and representing his people as ready, willing, and eager to convert with him. Arianism is just one of many heresies that appear as Christianity establishes and cements its belief systems and rituals in the early Middle Ages. Another important heresy of the period is Pelagianism. Named for a British monk, Pelagius, this was the belief that original sin had not irrevocably tainted humankind and that one could earn one's way into heaven by performing good works. Pelagius essentially argued that Adam had set a bad example for humankind, but that the good example set by Jesus served to counter Adam's actions. According to Pelagianism, humans had full control over their salvation or damnation as each individual was fully responsible both for his or her good or sinful actions. It was St. Augustine who most soundly condemned Pelagianism, arguing that Humans were saved only by the grace of God. No one person could save himself by performing good works. Although Pelagianism was condemned at several church councils, especially in the 5th century, it persisted for quite some time, even popping up again in the late Middle Ages. Because Pelagius was British, it is no surprise that this heresy was particularly popular in Britain. Pelagius himself was a Roman Christian, 
We need to remember that during the greatest part of his lifetime, which scholars say is roughly from about 354 to 420 or so, Britain is part of the Roman Empire. And with Constantine's conversion to Christianity, the Romano-Britons had, for the most part, followed suit. But as we've already discussed at some length about the arrival of the Germanic Anglo-Saxons, had a profound impact on the Romano-Christian culture of Britain. The invasion of these early English peoples affected Germanization of a culture that had embraced Romanitas, even though it was at the edge of the empire, and which had become Christian while part of that empire. The Anglo-Saxon invasion for a time looked as if it would effectively wipe out the Roman and Christian legacy of the empire in Britain. But in 597, Pope Gregory the Great sent missionaries to England, led by a man whom history now calls Augustine of Canterbury. This is confusing because we have just been talking about Gregory of Tours and Augustine of Hippo, one of the most important early Christian church fathers. But these are a different Gregory and a different Augustine, and this Gregory and Augustine are both at least a century or two later in history than those earlier similarly named important Christian figures. Anglo-Saxon England was one of the last former Roman outposts to be re-Christianized. The Franks, just across the channel in what is modern-day France, had been Christian for at least a century when Pope Gregory the Great sent Augustine to the Anglo-Saxons. According to the first biography of Gregory, which was written in the British monastery of Whitby in the 8th century, Gregory became inspired to send missionaries to the Anglo-Saxons after seeing some young Anglo-Saxons, probably slaves, in Rome. He was struck by their appearance. According to tradition, they were fair-haired and looked unlike most people living in the area around the Mediterranean basin. And he asked them who they were. Now, according to the story, a series of bad puns then follow. The slaves answer that they are Angles, to which Gregory responds that no, rather they look as if they were angels. He asks them the name of their king, and they tell him that they are subjects of Allah. Alleluia, Gregory responds. God's praise must be heard in your kingdom. Then he asks the name of their kingdom, and they tell him that they are from Dira, spelled D-E-I-R-A, which in Latin, when split in two, becomes Deira, which can mean from wrath, and Gregory says, they shall flee from the wrath of God and come to the Christian faith. This is a very cute story, but it is more likely that Gregory had long been thinking of the need to convert the English, as their kingdom was the last of the kingdoms that rose from the Roman Empire to remain pagan. Most of what we know of the conversion process of the Anglo-Saxons comes from perhaps the most important text of the 8th century, and this is a massive chronicle written by a monk known as the Venerable Bede, and his work is the ecclesiastical history of the English people. We don't know much about Bede himself, but the bare facts of what we do know are fascinating and compelling. Bede was most likely born in the region of Britain known as Northumbria sometime around 672. When he was just seven years old, Bede was given by his family to the British monastery of Monk Wearmouth Jarrow, 
also in Northumbria. These were originally two separate monasteries that eventually joined together. This so-called donation of a young boy was not an unusual practice, and many families gave young children into the keeping of a monastery in the hope that there they would have a safe and secure life as a member of the church. Such children were called oblates, and many of them did indeed spend the rest of their lives living as monks in a monastery. Probably the earliest reference to Bede is in an anonymous text that chronicles the lives of several important church figures, including the abbot Chailfrith of the monastery of Jarrow. In the year 685, we know that a deadly plague swept through the area, and according to the account of the life of the abbot Chailfrith, everyone died except for the abbot and one small boy, and alone these two struggled to perform the religious services that were required, a daunting task usually shared out among several in the monastery. Based on what we know of Bede's life and the date of the text, it seems quite clear that this young boy, who alone of all the members of the monastic community besides the abbot survived the plague, was Bede. It's not hard to imagine that after watching the older monks and the other young boys with whom he lived and studied and played at the monastery die, Bede might have thought himself to have been saved by God for some important task. He became a deacon at age 19, highly unusual as church standards called for someone to reach the age of 25 before becoming a deacon. And he went on to be a scholar whose writings reveal a lively, curious, intelligent, and of course, deeply devout mind. And modern scholars are forever grateful to Bede for writing his ecclesiastical history. For without this one text, there are many pre-8th century British historical events and figures about whom we would know exactly nothing. One thing he writes about at great length is the process of the conversion of the English. Now, Although Bede understood himself to be writing a history, he was not writing history in the way that modern people think of it. Most modern scholars make every effort to be objective, to avoid passing judgment whenever possible, to try and avoid any appearance, at least, of bias. Such things were not the primary concerns of medieval historians, and within this text, Bede demonstrates rather obviously that in addition to recording history, he wishes to promote the church. And in this respect, he is very like Gregory of Tours, who had a similar agenda to promote. It seems quite clear, for example, that Bede expected that his text would be copied, sent to various places throughout Britain, and read aloud to large groups of people. We have to remember, literacy is very low in medieval Europe. Maybe 5 to 10% of the population at best could read. So gathering to hear text read aloud was an activity that was actually quite common. And although Bede wrote his text originally in Latin, the language of scholarship in the Middle Ages, it was translated into Anglo-Saxon or Old English, making it accessible to a larger potential audience. Bede's hope, evidently, was that the account of events narrated in his history would inspire his readers and listeners to greater faith and devotion. 
So it is a little surprising that when we read some of these accounts, it seems quite clear that in the early stages, conversion to Christianity was not sincere in the way that we today might think of it. To us, many of these conversions might not seem real. Bede was very conscious that as the king went, so went his people. So he sought most earnestly to make sure that his text made it to the court of important rulers, and many of the conversion narratives he relates tell of how a king's conversion to Christianity precipitated almost immediately the conversion of all of his subjects. Again, we see the similarities and connections with Gregory of Tours' account, in which Clovis's subjects have miraculously decided that they wish to give up worshiping their pagan idols. At the exact moment, Clovis is contemplating Christian baptism. When Bede relates the story of how the East Saxons converted in following the example of their king Ethelbert in 604, he admits that many of Ethelbert's subjects probably converted because they were afraid of the king and what he might do if they did not follow his lead. Another famous conversion narrative Bede tells is that of King Edwin of Northumbria. Edwin's wife was a Christian. Another similarity to the conversion narrative told by Gregory of Tours, and when this Christian princess Ethelberga married Edwin of Northumbria, she brought with her her bishop Paulinus, and this Paulinus is recorded by Bede as going to great lengths to persuade Edwin to convert. And the rest of the story has a bit of everything, and certainly echoes the elements that we've seen in the account of Clovis's conversion. There's victory in battle granted by God. There are prophetic dreams and mysterious signs. Letters from the Pope himself urging the Queen to continue to exert herself in order to persuade her husband to convert. But the final persuasive moment is offered to Edwin by, of all people, his chief pagan priest, a man by the name of Coifi. Edwin has called a council to discuss this new religion of Christianity. And Bede offers his readers and listeners speeches from the mouths of the pagan priest and other of the king's retainers that display both poetic beauty and a breathtaking misunderstanding of the nature of faith and Christian devotion in particular. At the council, Coifi says essentially, "Look, as your chief priest, no one has been more devoted to our gods than I have, and yet." There are lots of other people who are wealthier and enjoy higher status than I do. You would think that if anyone would be getting rewards from our gods, I would be that person since I've served them so devotedly. So obviously, our gods don't have a lot of power, and if this new god might be better, let's go with him. In other words, Coifi thinks perhaps the Northumbrian should switch religions because the pagan gods have not given him much in the way of material wealth and status. As a motive for conversion, this is not the highest, but Bede knew that such logic might well be effective for some reading or most likely listening to this account. If they could be persuaded of the in- ineffective nature of the pagan gods, they might be willing to try another religion. And although their conversion to Christianity might not be as devout and fervent as one might wish, once they were brought into the fold, so the thinking went. They could gradually be re-educated into true Christians. Similar thinking led to pagan temples being re-consecrated as Christian churches. Even though they had changed religions, 
people could go to the same place to worship as they always had. And it led also to pagan holidays such as the Saturnalia and the spring festival of the goddess Eostra being rechristened literally as Christmas and Easter. But for those of his more philosophical readers, Bede offered another argument in favor of Christianity from the mouth of one of King Edwin's retainers. According to Bede, this man said, Your Majesty, when we compare the present life of man on earth with that time of which we have no knowledge, it seems to me like the swift flight of a single sparrow through the banqueting hall where you are sitting at dinner on a winter's day with your thanes and your counselors. In the midst, there's a comforting fire to warm the hall. Outside, the storms of winter rain or snow are raging. This sparrow flies swiftly in through one door of the hall and out through another. While he is inside, he is safe from the winter storms. But after a few moments of comfort, he vanishes from sight into the wintry world from which he came. Even so, man appears on earth for a little while. But of what went before this life or of what follows, we know nothing. Therefore, if this new teaching has brought any more certain knowledge, it seems only right that we should follow it. This eloquent comparison of the transitory nature of human life with a swallow's flight through a great hall in winter has both logic and poetry going for it. And in narratives such as these, we see Bede's cleverness and his fervent desire to bring more people into the embrace of the church. In one conversion narrative, he has offered numerous proofs and arguments for Christianity that could potentially work on multiple levels. But as Bede himself acknowledges, the conversion process for the Anglo-Saxons would hardly be simple or direct. Many new converts to Christianity simply added an altar to Jesus next to their pagan shrines, thinking that it couldn't hurt to pray to this God as well as to those to whom they had always prayed. Bede also tells of King Redwald of East Anglia, who converted to Christianity but later converted back to paganism due to the influence of his wife, who, according to Bede, seduced her husband back to the dark side. Now, while Bede's history is full of singular moments and fascinating events, it is also, as you may have noticed, a bit narrow in focus. In the histories of both Gregory of Tours and Bede, we hear a lot about kings and a lot about the true Christian faith. We don't hear much about exactly what it was these kings converted away from. Neither Bede nor Gregory wants to give us too much information about pagan practices. And we don't really get to see much about what life was like for the ordinary person, the average Joe or man on the street. This is incredibly frustrating for scholars, because when histories focus on people at the top of the social order, royalty and the like, we have to remember that we're not getting the full story. What we're getting from these histories is a slanted view of maybe 5% of the population. It's the other 95% that we would really like to know about, but these 95% were usually poor in terms of both wealth and status. They were usually illiterate, and in the early period in particular, they didn't keep records, and their deeds only rarely came to the attention of those that did. Still, we can get some sense of their lives from other sources, like archaeology and the occasional mention in a chronicle. And although Bede and Gregory of Tours paint a picture of people who joyfully convert en masse to the new Christian faith, 
Other kinds of evidence suggest to us that among the common people, what we would call pagan practices took a very long time to die out, if ever. And rather than Christian practices replacing pagan ones, what we more often sense is that there's a kind of accommodation happening in which certain pre-Christian rituals become adapted and acceptable and Christianity itself is practiced alongside older religious ritual. To put it simply, this would be why many people today who are Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus with festive activities that center around a rabbit who lays different colored eggs, the egg having long been a pagan symbol of fertility. This kind of accommodation would have some surprising and occasionally stunning results when we consider again the ways in which the societies that developed out of the Roman Empire were hybrids of Christian, Roman, and Germanic culture. In our next lecture, we will examine some of the cultural and artistic texts and pieces of art that demonstrate this synthesis. Lecture 4. After the Roman Empire, Hybrid Cultures. Welcome back. In our last lecture, we discussed how the process of Christianization occurred in the early medieval world, focusing in particular on the conversions of the Merovingian Franks and the Anglo-Saxons. We saw how the historians who wrote about such things, specifically the Venerable Bede and Gregory of Tours, had a particular agenda each wished to promote. This would be the support of the church, and as such, their narratives are full of accounts of conversions, and these are usually stories of how a king is persuaded to convert, and all of his subjects then follow suit. As told by both Bede and Gregory, these conversion narratives become set pieces. We very often have a Christian princess married to a pagan king who initiates the conversion process. Usually, she brings with her a bishop or priest who does most of the theological heavy lifting. There are also several instances in which the Christian god seems to provide victory in battle, or major players in these narratives have prophetic dreams, and finally, their people express a desire that the king convert so that they may as well. As canned as some of these accounts might seem, the ultimate message of their histories is correct. Peoples who had been pagans converted to Christianity, and the church becomes one of the most important elements in our attempts to understand the nature of the medieval world. As I've said in the past, in the Middle Ages, there's no such thing as a separation of church and state. Very often, they are one and the same. Although debates about the nature of secular versus religious power and position would occur quite frequently and will be the subject of some of our future lectures. For the next several lectures, our primary focus will be on Western Europe, or the culture that developed from the Western half of the Roman Empire. But it will be important that we keep in mind the significance of the split of the empire into East and West, and how the two halves of the former Roman Empire were going in different directions around the 5th century. Many scholars refer to the barbarization of the West, 
meaning that societies in the western half of the former Roman Empire were becoming, in many respects, much like the Germanic or so-called barbarian cultures that had long existed beyond the natural borders of the Rhine and Danube rivers. And scholars refer also to the Hellenization of the East, meaning that what we think of today as mostly Eastern Europe and the area around Constantinople were becoming more like Greece and Greek culture. Although our focus will be on the West for the next great while, we can never forget the potential and significance of the East. In an earlier lecture, I discussed the importance of the idea of Romanitas, or Romanness, in the empire, especially in terms of the crisis of the 3rd century. And in our last lecture, we looked at the conversion process for two groups of people, the Franks and the English, and how the accounts of these conversions by Gregory of Tours and the Venerable Bede worked to promote a particular agenda and support the church. Today, we're going to talk a bit more about Roman Christianity and its legacy for the medieval world, and we're also going to examine more closely those Germanic elements that are significant aspects of the societies that evolved out of Rome, focusing on the hybrid nature of those cultures. As I mentioned last time, the appropriation of pagan holidays, festivals, and feasts is one way that Christianity managed to establish itself in the empire. In terms of its administrative structure, the early church also essentially copied imperial offices and subdivisions, like the idea of the province, diocese, and parish. And here we can really see how early medieval cultures are hybrid cultures. Early churches are usually built in the shape of a basilica, the form of Roman administrative buildings, and the basis of canon law was the Roman legal code. In fact, the title taken by the Bishop of Rome, the highest-ranking official in the church, was Pontifex Maximus, what we would call Pope today, and this was the same title that had been used by the chief priest of pagan Rome. The first Pope was held to be St. Peter, who was always listed first among the disciples of Jesus, and Peter and Paul were now held up as replacements for Romulus and Remus, the mythical founders of Rome who had been suckled by a she-wolf. This linking or blending of the ideals and infrastructure of the Roman Empire with those of Christianity was further emphasized by the Emperor Constantine and the early church father, Bishop Ambrose of Milan. The theology of the early church was very much a work in progress, and different groups, all calling themselves Christians, often held very different beliefs, and on some very key central issues. The Council of Nicaea, which convened in 325, is hugely important in the early development of Christianity because it was the first attempt to work through some of these thorny issues and achieve some measure of consensus by means of an assembly of Christian leaders who were understood to function as representatives of all Christendom. Among the many issues that were debated and attempted to be resolved at this council were those of the Arian heresy, which, simply put, held that although Jesus was divine, he could not be as divine as God the Father, and which we discussed in our last lecture. The Council of Nicaea also debated the proper date for the celebration of Easter, which was a complex matter for reasons I'll discuss in greater detail later, and they discussed also the nature of God the Son in relationship to God the Father. 
These are all very important issues, but what I want to stress here is not the theological debate that ensued at the Council of Nicaea, but rather the fact that it was the Emperor Constantine, and not a religious leader, who served as the head of the council. It seems fairly clear that what Constantine wished to do was make the emperor the de facto head of the church. Bishop Ambrose of Milan seemed to agree insofar as he saw a way to join the infrastructure of the empire with the mission of the church. In the year 394, Ambrose wrote, In the beginning of the church, God diffused the power of the Roman Empire throughout the whole world and brought together in his peace minds and discord and divided lands. Living under one earthly empire, all men learned to confess by faith the rule of the one omnipotent God. At the same time, however, Ambrose wanted a clear acknowledgement that the power of the church trumped the secular administrative power of Rome. We see this in a confrontation between the Emperor Theodosius and Ambrose. In the year 390, there was rioting in the Greek city of Thessalonica, which infuriated the emperor. He punished the population by ordering their massacre, for which action Ambrose promptly excommunicated him. The emperor was not allowed back into the fold of the church, as it were, until he had done public penance. In what seems a somewhat surprising move, Theodosius agreed. In doing so, he essentially was acknowledging that even the emperor had to answer to God. Not surprisingly, however, this reconciliation would be far from the last word on the matter. So, we can clearly see how Roman and Christian traditions and values are blending as we head towards the 6th century. But we see some of the most interesting cultural and religious intersections when we examine Germanic culture in relationship to Christianity and Romanitas. As we've already discussed, the Germanic peoples were polytheistic, and the culture was what we would call pre-literate. Although they had a rich oral tradition of storytelling that included the occasional risque joke, they didn't have a system of writing that was commonly practiced aside from runic inscriptions. These would be um, angular, easy-to-carve letters made up of individual characters that were known as runes. And these would be placed most often on important monuments, usually made out of stone. It would be wrong to think of Germanic people as all self-identifying as belonging to the same group. They would have been more likely to identify themselves in terms of tribal affiliations. For instance, last time I mentioned that the different tribes of the Angles, Saxons, Jutes, and perhaps some Frisians were involved in what we now call the Anglo-Saxon invasion of Britain. And although they spoke a similar language, there were probably some distinct linguistic variations among the various tribes. When the Anglo-Saxons settled in England, they established several separate kingdoms. And geographical names in place still to this day give us a clue as to what group settled where. When its various peoples were at the height of their powers, there were seven distinct kingdoms in Anglo-Saxon England. Starting at the north, we have, logically enough, the Kingdom of Northumbria, called so because it was where certain Angles had settled north of the River Humber. Below that, on the east coast of what is today England, was the Kingdom of East Anglia, also populated by Angles, and which includes modern Norfolk and Suffolk. 
West of East Anglia was the Kingdom of Mercia, occasionally called Southumbria, indicating that it was the land of the Angles who had settled south of the River Humber. South of East Anglia was the Kingdom of Essex, land of the East Saxons, which includes London, and to the west and south were, as you might suppose, the kingdoms of Wessex, the West Saxons, and Sussex, the South Saxons. To the far east and sort of sandwiched in a bit between Essex and Sussex was the kingdom of Kent. Now, on several occasions, I have and will speak of Old English or Anglo-Saxon poetry or prose texts, but just to drive home the point that these Angles, Saxons, and Jutes who invaded Britain regarded themselves as different peoples, I should note that there are really four distinct dialects of what we call Old English. These are Northumbrian, Mercian, Kentish, and West Saxon. For reasons that will become clear later, the bulk of Old English writing survives in the West Saxon dialect. So really, when I say Old English, I'm talking about texts that are most frequently found in the West Saxon dialect. Now, as I mentioned last time, England provides a great example of how the cultures that emerged from the end of the Roman Empire were essentially hybrids of Roman, Christian, and Germanic elements. In our last lecture, we discussed how Roman Britain became Germanized in the 5th century, a process that seemed at first as if it would wipe out the Christian and Roman components of the culture in Britain. But relatively quickly after their conquest of Britain, the Anglo-Saxons converted to Christianity, and as we have seen already, Christian and Roman culture were deeply intertwined by the time the empire came to an end. It is from Anglo-Saxon England that we have some of the most compelling artistic and literary evidence of the way in which the elements of the Roman, Christian, and Germanic came together to create a new hybrid culture. For example, there is an astonishing item known as the Frank's casket, so-called after its best-known owner, that displays how Germanic traditions were becoming combined with Roman and Christian ones. The casket is a small box made of panels of whalebone. Scholars have determined that it was most likely made in the Kingdom of Northumbria sometime in the early 8th century, and they base this on the Anglo-Saxon runic inscriptions that are carved into the casket. There are also several scenes carved into the sides and top of the casket, not all of which have been conclusively identified. We do know what is represented in most of the panels, however, and these scenes are highly suggestive and significant. For example, the panel usually identified as the front panel includes two scenes. On the left is a depiction from the Germanic legend of Wayland the Smith, an important figure in Norse mythology. Although the documented evidence is scanty, it is safe to assume that the polytheism practiced by the Anglo-Saxons before their conversion to Christianity was directed toward a pantheon of gods very similar, if not identical to, what we think of today as the figures of Norse mythology, Thor, Odin, etc. In fact, the names for many of our days of the week come from the Norse tradition. Wednesday, for example, just means Woden's Day, Woden being another name for Odin, the most important of the Norse gods. Thursday means Thor's Day. So, on the left front of the panel we have a scene from Germanic pre-Christian legend, and on the right, a depiction of the adoration of the Magi, the moment when the three wise men, or Magi, 
come to honor the newborn Christ child. On the left panel of the box, we have a scene depicting the mythological founders of Rome, the twins Romulus and Remus, who, according to legend, were suckled by a she-wolf. The rear panel of the casket depicts the story of the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus in the First Jewish-Roman War. The lid of the casket shows another figure from Norse legend, the archer Ael. So, on this one small object, we have represented elements from Roman mythology, Roman and Jewish history, Norse mythology, and the Christian tradition. There is no better example of the synthesis of Germanic and Mediterranean, Christian and pagan, cultural ideas. An archaeological dig at a place known as Sutton Hoo, which is in present-day Suffolk, England, has yielded a trove of treasures that demonstrate a blending of Christian and Germanic elements. In particular, the burial of one high-ranking individual whose coffin was an actual ship dragged up from the river, filled with grave goods, and then buried, shows how pre-Christian traditions like a ship burial with treasure to carry into the next life might still be a fitting way to say goodbye to a Christian Anglo-Saxon leader. Within the ship were placed astounding and skillfully made pieces of art, including what has become known as the Great Gold Buckle and the Sutton Hoo Helmet, the two objects that are most likely to be on the cover of almost any edition of the poem Beowulf. Also found were two spoons, one with the name Saul and the other Paul. As those who study Christianity know, Saul was the name of the Apostle Paul before he converted to Christianity, and the presence of these objects, along with some others, suggests that the person buried here was a convert to Christianity, with many scholars believing it to be the grave of the 7th century King Redwald of East Anglia, who famously kept shrines to both Jesus and the pagan gods. The poetry of Anglo-Saxon England similarly demonstrates how these cultural elements were blending in new ways from the 6th century on. Now, almost all surviving Anglo-Saxon literature, we must remember, was written down after the Anglo-Saxons converted to Christianity. With the Christian missionary sent from Rome came literacy. Although it seems clear that the Anglo-Saxons had a very rich oral storytelling tradition During the time before their conversion, it is only afterward that much of that lore is set down on parchment, and most likely it was written down by monks, who often seem to wish to put their own Christian interpretation on a poem that may have had no Christian elements in its original oral form. A good example of this is the poem called The Wanderer, about which there has been much scholarly debate. In this poem, which exists in only one version, in a single manuscript known as the Exeter Book, it seems that a man bereft of friends and community laments his current state in a monologue. In perhaps some of the most famous lines of Anglo-Saxon poetry, he bewails his situation by crying out, Where quom mere? Where quom mago? Where quom madum yifa? Where quom sum le yisetu? Where sindon celadremas, yalla beacht buna, yalla birnwiga, yalla fed nostrum, who seo thrag yoat, yenap, under nicktown, swahel nowhere. Which means, 
Where has gone the horse? Where has gone the rider? Where has gone the treasure giver? Where have gone the seats at the feasts? Where are joys of the hall? Alas, the bright cup. Alas, the mailed warrior. Alas, the majesty of the prince. How that time departed, grew dark under the helm of night, as if it never was. The values expressed here are hardly obviously Christian and reflect the structure of Anglo-Saxon society in which one of the worst things to have happen would be to lose your Lord, to have no one to serve. Treasure is important in Anglo-Saxon society primarily as a way of cementing bonds between a Lord and his loyal retainers, or thanes, also sometimes called his comitatus. This group of men would feast and drink together in the great hall, which was the center of any Anglo-Saxon community. This hall is usually known as the mead hall, as mead, a kind of fermented honey, was the beverage of choice there. The comitatus would also fight together, and at the end of any battle, the thanes would be rewarded by their lord, their treasure giver, as the poem says. Some other Anglo-Saxon poetry, notably that piece called The Battle of Malden, take this devoted relationship between lord and thane to its utmost expression suggesting that a lord's thanes would rather die in battle once their lord has been killed and would sacrifice themselves in order to lie beside their lord on the earth in reality this was probably not practicable but the ideal of sacrificing oneself for one's lord is clearly a strong one the speaker of the wanderer laments all these earthly pleasures he has lost but then at the end of the poem There seems to be a comment by the narrator, the poet or scribe, and his comment is something like, "He who finds himself in such a situation would do well to seek solace from the Father in heaven in whom all our security resides." In other words, when these earthly pleasures are all gone, pleasures and values that remain from our pre-Christian pagan days, one would do well to turn to Christ. Now, As you might have gathered from the information I've given you so far, the Anglo-Saxons were not turn the other cheek kinds of people. Although I'm oversimplifying a bit here, it would not be wrong to say that theirs was a culture in large measure dominated by war, bravery, prowess in battle, and the ability to make a boast in the meat hall and then fulfill it on the battlefield were traits that were admired. How then to bring them to accept Christianity? when Christ himself seems in so many ways to be the antithesis of all the Anglo-Saxons admired. Well, one answer is that they found in the Old Testament plenty of examples of behavior they could admire. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that they got. But in another example of the blending of cultural values, they also wrote a version of the crucifixion in which Christ is most definitely not a meek pacifist who humbly submits to his death. In the poem known as The Dream of the Rood, the crucifixion is rewritten in a decidedly Anglo-Saxon style. The word rood itself is an old English word which means cross, and the poem is just what the modern title suggests. It is the account of a dream in which the cross on which Christ was crucified figures prominently. But what might be startling to modern readers is that in this poem the dreamer and the cross have a conversation 
in which the rood tells the story of the crucifixion. Now, there was a strong tradition in Anglo-Saxon storytelling in which inanimate objects could speak. The Anglo-Saxon riddles are perhaps the best example, but there are others as well, notably the poem often called The Husband's Message, in which a piece of wood carved with runes speaks. So in The Dream of the Rood, an obviously Christian poem, we have a hearkening back to a literary tradition that most likely predated the coming of Christianity to the Anglo-Saxons. We also have an unusual representation of Christ. The speaking rood describes Christ thusly. O nyre de hina vayeung heleth, that was god almikti, strang an skithmod, yestach he on yelg an heana, moldi an manigra yusitha, that he will da man kun nusen. Or, in my modern English translation, Then the young warrior stripped himself. That was God Almighty. Strong and resolute, he mounted the high gallows, brave in the sight of many, when he wished to ransom mankind. In this poem, Christ strips himself for battle and mounts the cross where he bravely wages a war for the souls of mankind. But perhaps the most famous literary intersection of the Christian with the Germanic is in the Old English epic poem called Beowulf, the greatest surviving literary work from the Anglo-Saxon period. The single manuscript copy of this poem is dated roughly around the year 1000, although there's been a lot of debate about that date. But the story it contains is, in its basic plot points, much older. Although the poem is written in English, The story is set not in England, but in the Germanic homeland, with Denmark being the site of most of the poem's action. It tells the story of a young warrior, Beowulf, who, along with his comitatus, or group of loyal thanes, crosses the sea to Denmark to offer assistance to King Hrothgar, whose community is being destroyed by a solitary monster named Grendel, who regularly comes at night into the mead hall and snatches up a sleeping thane or two and usually eats them alive. Now, as I've already mentioned, the Mead Hall was the center of any Anglo-Saxon community, and it was not only the place where the king and his thanes would feast, but it's also where the comitatus would essentially live. After the feast, the thanes might spend the night on the floor of the great hall. Now, this was not just a case of people having too much to drink and simply sleeping where they fell, although that certainly might happen on occasion. This sharing of communal space with the king was a mark of honor, and eating, drinking, sleeping, and going to war together were all elements that worked toward the building of bonds of fellowship. Indeed, Grendel's attack is particularly monstrous because he chooses the mead hall at the center of the community. There are any number of undefensible homesteads on the edges of the community, but Grendel's hatred is such that he passes up the easy pickings to go right for the most important members of the community, who are also its defenders. Beowulf arrives to deal with Grendel in part to repay a debt of his father's by helping out King Hrothgar, but he also quite plainly indicates that he has taken up this quest in order to make a name for himself, to build up a reputation. In Anglo-Saxon society, an eagerness to win fame or glory 
seems to have been considered a worthwhile and laudable value. One rarely sees the virtues of humility extolled in Old English literature. But what is fascinating about Beowulf in the form that we have it today is that all the main characters are pagans, and the narrator of the poem is a Christian. And the sense one gets is that the narrator admires Beowulf for his remarkable feats of prowess, but at the same time is full of sorrow because this great man is most certainly in hell, as he died without ever knowing anything about Christ. So here we see a story that, in its earliest form, may have been a rousing tale of adventure and daring do, but in its current form offers lessons of caution and admonition. The combination of the Germanic and the Christian has produced something completely new to both cultures. This cultural synthesis happens not only in words written on a page, but also occurs in the decoration around those words that we find in many texts from the early medieval world. I talked a little bit about the amount of labor that went into making a manuscript, a text written by hand, in my first lecture. One thing it is important to remember is that medieval manuscripts were far more than simply texts. Illustrated manuscripts, known as illuminated manuscripts, contained pictures in the margins and sometimes all on their own. What is called a carpet page, meaning that it has only an illustration and no text. And illuminated is definitely the right word to use to describe these manuscripts, as so many of the images. Are glorious, almost explosions of light and color. One manuscript in particular, known as the Lindisfarne Gospels, is a breathtaking example of both the artistic possibilities of early manuscript illuminators and the blending of traditions that occurred after the end of the Roman Empire. These gospels, produced in the north of Britain sometime in the late seventh century, make use of an artistic style that scholars tend to call Hiberno-Saxon. And this style is what we call non-representational and somewhat abstract. In other words, figures such as people or animals or plants are not rendered realistically. There is very little use of depth or foreshortening or other elements of what we might think of as a realistic style. Rather, we have a more linear, flat style, and this tradition delights in rendering convoluted lines that twist and turn and overlap and interlace in what has often been called. The endless knot style. An example of this style is very evident on the famous Cairo page of the Book of Kells. But the Lindisfarne Gospels synthesize this Hiberno-Saxon non-representational style with a more realistic figurative style, more typical of the area around the Mediterranean and Rome itself. Just a century later. The blending of styles demonstrated by the Lindisfarne Gospels and other similar manuscripts is nowhere to be seen in a manuscript known as the Codex Amiatinus. Although we know this manuscript was produced in the British Isles at the monastery of Monkwearmouth Jarrow in the eighth century, to be precise, its style is decidedly Mediterranean. The distinction between this manuscript and others, like the Lindisfarne Gospels and the Book of Kells, Serves as a reminder that although Rome seemed at times to be a world away from the far-flung reaches of the former empire, its influence still carried, especially as it became the center of power for the Church in Western Europe. 
In our next lecture, we'll examine one of the many expressions of religious piety to be found within the church, monasticism. Lecture 5, Early Monasticism. Welcome back. In our last lecture, we discussed how many of the cultures in the early medieval world displayed an intertwining of Roman, Germanic, and Christian elements in their artistic expressions. Today, we're going to talk about an expression of Christian faith that would become a hugely significant element of the medieval world, monasticism. I'm sure most of us today have some idea of what monastic means. This term can refer to the way of life of monks or nuns, men and women who have opted to devote their lives to prayer and service to God, vowing in most cases to live a life of poverty, obedience, and chastity in a communal setting, either a monastery or, in the case of nuns, an abbey or convent, or sometimes the word nunnery is used. Today, I'm going to talk about the origins and early development of monasticism in the European West, and we're going to explore what the daily life of a monk or a nun might have been like. The word monk comes from the Greek monos, meaning alone, and we see two forms of early monasticism. The first is what we might call eremitical monasticism, which comes from the Greek word for desert, eremos and from which the modern English word hermit is derived. And this is a type of monasticism that is truly about singular aloneness. The tradition here goes back to those first spiritual athletes for God, a group of men often called the Desert Fathers, people like Simeon the Stylite, who lived on top of a pillar for 47 years and occupied his time with doing things like bowing continuously as a form of prayer. The second form of monasticism is called Chenobitic monasticism and comes from the Greek word meaning common or community. It is this type of monasticism that we'll be focusing on today. As you might suppose, Chenobism is characterized by communal living, where the community prays, works, and lives together. Now, I'm often asked by students how this type of lifestyle became popular and why so many people joined monastic orders in the Middle Ages. There are a couple of answers to this question. The first is that there were many devout believers in Christianity who wanted more of a challenge for their faith. Once Christianity became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire and then of the societies that developed out of the empire, some found the practice of their faith too easy. They longed for a spiritual challenge, and monasticism was it. I should note here that in early medieval Europe, monks were people who renounced everything about their former lives, including property and marriage. At this time, bishops and parish priests could still own property and have families. The injunction against priests marrying would come sometime later. So, monasticism was a form of piety above even that of priests or bishops in many instances. The second answer as to why so many people joined monasteries and convents in the medieval world, would 
seem in some ways to contradict my first answer, and that's because monasteries and convents were places where the younger sons or daughters of noble families, or widowed queens, for example, might go to live. There, they could be assured of care and comfort. Although the monastery was supposed to be a place where, ideally, all connections and status that a person had enjoyed in the outside world were forgotten, and everyone within the monastic community were equals, in practice this was not often the case. Although there were some people of the peasant class who became monks or nuns, for the most part, the members of the monastic community were members of the noble classes, and we have several scandalized reports from visitors to various monastic institutions who reported that the denizens of this religious community carried on as if they were still out in the secular world, feasting, socializing, and behaving in ways generally deemed unbecoming to a member of a religious order. Over the decades and centuries, various reforms would be brought to bear on monastic communities, and in several instances, new orders were founded in response to the perception that existing orders had fallen into sin and away from the opus dei, the work of God, that they were supposed to be performing. Although the existence of Christian monasteries and religious hermits is recorded in the 3rd century or even earlier, the man who should be considered the father of Western monasticism is a man called Benedict of Nursia. St. Benedict was born in the late 5th century, and while a young man studying in Rome, he decided to forego his education, and he retreated to the countryside of Campania, where he began to live as a religious hermit. Benedict's reputation for holiness spread, and he was soon invited to become head of a monastic community. He accepted this offer, but his zeal for reform soon upset the monks he was overseeing, and they reportedly tried to poison him. He left this monastery and founded a new monastery at a place called Monte Cassino. He also founded other monasteries and a convent for his sister, Scholastica. These houses were governed by a rule, the Rule of St. Benedict, or as many refer to it, the RSB. Now, almost everything we know of Benedict's life comes from a text known as the Dialogues of Pope Gregory the Great. And Gregory takes care to point out that Benedict was one of many holy men who lived in Italy in the 5th and 6th centuries, but what distinguished him from others was that he had written directions for organizing monastic life. His rule is a remarkable piece that successfully synthesizes the asceticism that dominated the Eastern monastic tradition, or the more eremitical tradition, with the Roman virtues of stability, order, and moderation. Benedict laid out his monastery like a Roman villa, and he intended for all monastic communities to be self-sustaining. Thus, manual labor was an important component of the life in his community. To Benedict's mind, the monastery should be run by the abbot, or head of the community, as a kind of paternal autocracy. The abbot was supposed to consult elders of the community for advice, but ultimately, all decisions affecting the community were his. It is not surprising, then, that Benedict considered obedience to be the most important principle of monastic life. He also did not see the monastery as a retreat away from the world. 
The monastery was a place where the monks were in fact engaged in saving the world through the work of prayer. It was commonly thought that after death, many people, because of various sins they had committed, would necessarily spend some time in purgatory. People still living on earth, however, could lessen that time in purgatory by praying for the soul of the recently departed. And the more people praying, the quicker the time in purgatory would pass. In fact, a little later in the medieval period, we find royals and nobles founding monasteries with the idea that doing so would mean that the monks or nuns of said institution would certainly pray for them, and thus their sins would be expiated more quickly. For example, William the Conqueror, whom we'll discuss at length in a, great, in a later lecture, founded religious houses at the site of the Battle of Hastings in Essex and in Yorkshire. And this may be in no small measure due to the fact that after the Battle of Hastings, the church told the men who fought there that they needed to do 120 days of penance for each man killed. Founding religious houses and donating land and money to other religious houses already in existence was sort of a shortcut to the cleansing of the soul. But to return to St. Benedict and his rule, the rule itself consists of 73 chapters plus a prologue. The first seven chapters are essentially a treatise on the ascetic life, and the rest of the rule provides practical guidelines for the daily life of the monastery. He provides details on which prayers should be said when, how the day should be divided between work and prayer, what kind of man the abbot should be, and he even addresses sleeping arrangements. Here he says, Let each one sleep in a separate bed. If possible, let all sleep in one place. But if the number does not allow this, let them take their rest by tens and twenties with the seniors who have charge of them. He goes on to add that a candle should be kept burning in the dormitory at all times and that the monks should sleep in their habits so that upon arising they are immediately ready to go to their prayers or work without delay. He gives instruction for the preparation of food as well, stating that for the main meal of the day there should be two different cooked dishes from which the monks can eat, that fruit and vegetables should be added if available, and that each monk should also be allotted a pound of bread per day. At the same time, Benedict's rule provides for some flexibility, as he notes that the abbot may increase the allotted food if he feels the labor of the monks has been particularly heavy that day, and Benedict also makes exceptions for those monks who are ill or aged. Benedict indicates that all monks, except those who are ill, should abstain from eating meat, and he also urges moderation when it comes to drink, limiting the amount of wine each monk shall drink each day. He lists what kinds of clothing each monk should have, what bedding should consist of, again, allowing the abbot to make exceptions due to weather, and he quite specifically forbids the owning of any personal property, going so far as to suggest that a monk's bed should be regularly inspected to ensure that he is not keeping some piece of personal property hidden. Benedict's rule envisioned monastic life as revolving around prayer and manual labor. And one thing that you could be sure of if you became a Benedictine monk was that you were unlikely to ever get a good night's sleep again. The prayer schedule was very rigorous. And although the specific prayer times varied by monastery, 
The first prayer of the day, known as matins, usually occurred in what was essentially the middle of the night, sometime between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. The monk's dormitory, in fact, was often directly above the chapel in many monasteries, so that the brothers could rise and go to prayer quite quickly and easily. After matins, most of the monks would go back to sleep for a little bit until the next prayer service, known as lauds, which usually occurred at first light. Then came prime, sometime around mid-morning, then tierce, sext, and nones. Eventually, these prayer services were combined into one, as you can imagine that any labor the monks were engaged in was being continually interrupted, and plowing, gardening, etc. needed to be accomplished. The prayer service known as Vespers usually occurred at dusk, Compline took place at sundown, and then came Nocturne, and after that, Vigils. So that's about ten occasions for prayer throughout the day. Making all of this run smoothly were the various monastic officials who oversaw the day-to-day running of the monastery. At the head of this hierarchy was the abbot, or in the case of a convent, an abbess. The prior was second in command after the abbot. There might be a few men who occupied the office of dean of the order. The person who held this office made sure that the monks attended all the services they were supposed to, and these men also had the task of making sure everyone stayed awake during services when one might be prone to nap, such as during the services of matins or lauds. This was usually affected by shining a lantern on the sleeping brother and or poking him with a staff reserved for just this purpose. There were several other offices, including that of Cellarer, who was in charge of food and drink, and the Hostelar, who maintained the guest house, an important role because Benedict had stressed in his rule that the monastery should be a place of welcome and refuge for all travelers. He said in his rule, Let all guests who come to the monastery be entertained like Christ himself, because he will say, I was a stranger, and you took me in. Benedict made the frequent re-reading of his rule within the monastery one of its requirements, and it, along with other appropriate spiritual material, was to be read aloud in the refectory during mealtimes. The monks were to listen in silence. Indeed, Benedict decreed that they should spend most of their time in silence, speaking only when absolutely necessary, and as a result, a rather complex sign language eventually developed in many monasteries, which allowed monks to do everything from asking someone to pass the salt to indicating that they needed a new pair of socks. Now, although Benedict had envisioned a somewhat simple and Spartan life for monks following his rule, plenty of evidence suggests that the ideal of pious asceticism was not always followed. Indeed, Recent archaeological discoveries suggest that at some monasteries, the daily food intake of many monks exceeded 6,000 calories. An examination of the bones of some monks that have been excavated reveal evidence of extreme obesity. Obviously, as time went on, many Benedictine monasteries were being less than exact when it came to following the rule of St. Benedict. And as we'll see in a later lecture, This led to the development of new orders, like the Cistercians, Dominicans, Franciscans, and others. Part of the problem for the Benedictines and for other orders lay in the fact that although they embraced the ideal of poverty, 
in practice, it was very difficult for them to remain poor. When property or money was given to the church, it tended to stay with the church. And remember, offerings to the church were common and expected, and sometimes quite large, as in the case of William the Conqueror. Since monks did not marry, could not legally own anything, and officially had no heirs, none of the gifts given to a monastery ever left it as the inheritance of an eldest son or the dowry of a daughter. Add to this the frugality, at least in theory, of those living the monkish life, and you can see how quickly wealth might accumulate. In the early Middle Ages, Benedictine monasticism was the dominant mode of cloistered life, but there were other forms. The most important of these is Irish monasticism. Now, what we have to remember here is that Ireland had never been a part of the Roman Empire. So the structure of its society had never had much in the way of Romanitas about it. Early Ireland was agrarian. It was a tribal society where kin relationships structured everything. And there was nothing approaching a major city like those that had existed in the empire. Ireland was supposedly and quite famously converted to Christianity by St. Patrick, but he remains a figure lost in legend and we know very little about him. There are a lot of stories about Patrick. You might have heard that he drove the snakes out of Ireland, that he ran his sister over with a chariot three times because she was unchaste, and that he explained the Holy Trinity by means of a three-leaf shamrock as an example. None of these stories, as far as we can tell, are true. What we do know for certain is that Patrick lived in the 5th century and came from a well-established Romano-British Christian family. At some point in his life, he was kidnapped by Irish pirates and forced into a life of slavery in Ireland. He escaped, made it home, but later said he was called in a vision to go back to Ireland and spread the message of Jesus Christ, and so he returned. He says he converted thousands, although we can't be sure of that, but we can be fairly certain that he established churches and monasteries. Irish monasticism, however, was different from Roman or Benedictine monasticism. The Irish way of life was much more conducive to eremitical rather than chenobitic or communal monasticism. And whereas bishops were the most important religious leaders on the continent, meaning an abbot of a monastery would regard himself as being subject to a bishop's orders, in Ireland, by contrast, it was the abbots themselves who were most important, and this was in part because the abbots maintained close relationships with secular tribal leaders. The layout of Irish monasteries was also significantly different than those of Benedictine monasteries. Irish monasteries tended to be like great walled cities, and within the city walls, each monk had his own individual cell or hut. They might come together for meals and prayer, but the unity of action that the rule of St. Benedict made essentially compulsive was missing from Irish monasticism. Whereas Roman monasticism was very hierarchical and stressed a unity among religious houses, Irish monasticism was more decentralized and individualistic. This individualist spirit produced some of the most important and interesting figures and centers of learning to be found in early Christianity, and indeed, if it were not for Irish monasteries and their dedication to copying and preserving manuscripts, 
as well as the lucky happenstance that they were on the far edge of the European world, and so not subject to as much in the way of invasion or war as their fellows on the continent, many of the most important texts in the Western tradition would be lost for all time, as Thomas Cahill has persuasively argued in his book, How the Irish Saved Civilization. One of the Irish religious houses discussed in Cahill's book is the Monastery of Iona, founded by St. Columba. Now, Columba was a prince of one of Ireland's ruling clans, and after he founded his monastery on the island of Iona, sometime around the year 565, he and his monks used that site as a jumping-off point to launch missionary expeditions to the Anglo-Saxons, who had settled in northern Britain. Almost a century later, it would be monks from Iona who would found the famous monastery of Lindisfarne on a tidal island off the northeast coast of Britain. Now, if you remember from one of our previous lectures, Augustine of Canterbury had been sent from Rome on on a similar mission in 597 at the express command of Pope Gregory the Great. So what happens is that we have two monastic traditions in early medieval England. We have the Celtic Church and we have the Roman Church. While these two churches obviously shared much in the way of doctrine, rituals, and theology, there were some significant and problematic differences. One of the most significant issues had to do with the date of Easter. Now, at first this might seem a surprising issue for debate, but the Easter debate of the 7th century was so significant that a special synod was called to try and resolve it. Here's the problem. As many people are aware, in a given year, Easter can occur any time from March 22nd to April 25th. This is because the date of Easter is calculated based on a lunar calendar. At the Council of Nicaea in 325, it was decided that Easter should fall on the first Sunday after the first full moon on or occurring after the vernal equinox. Everybody got that? The basic problem was trying to fit a lunar calendar of months totaling 29 and a half days each into a calendar year of 365 days, and that was based on the changing of the seasons. This problem was extremely serious because Easter, the day of Christ's resurrection, was considered the most important day of the year, and the celebration of any number of other religious feasts was dependent upon the date of Easter. While in modern times, Christmas, the celebration of the birth of Christ, is viewed by many as the major holiday, in the Middle Ages, Easter was the really important date. Still, Christmas was considered such an important day that many people took it for granted that December 25th should mark the start of a new year. But if one counted backward nine months to March 25th, one came to the Feast of the Annunciation, otherwise known as Lady Day, which marked the first moment of Christ's presence on earth when he descended into the womb of the Virgin Mary. Well beyond the Middle Ages, many people took March 25th as the first day of the new year. As you can imagine, this leads to some confusion, especially for scholars who study the period. For example, when a medieval chronicle says that something occurred in 1185, if that event occurred in January, February, or early March, that usually, but not always, means that it actually occurred in 1186 by our modern reckoning. 
The dating of Easter posed such a thorny problem for early medieval people that some of the earliest manuscripts we have are texts called Easter tables, in which some monk has laboriously calculated on which date Easter would fall for a large number of years. In many cases, these texts looked ahead more than a century, and they were cherished and consulted often by the monasteries and churches who possessed them. In fact. Some early chronicles probably started life as Easter tables. In the margins, alongside the entry for each year as it passed, someone might make a comment like, "This was the year the plague came," or "This was the year of the great famine," or "In this year the Danes laid waste to the countryside." To put it simply, the Celtic Church tended to calculate Easter one way, while the Roman Church calculated it another. This was a problem. Especially in royal houses, where the king and queen, as was often the case, came from different communities and traditions, it was primarily a problem in England, where we tend to find both Celtic and Roman traditions side by side. Although there were some successful Irish missions to the continent, most notably that of the Irish monk Columbanus, who has a similar name to Saint Columba, but who is a different man altogether. After establishing a monastery in Bangor, Wales, Columbanus launched a successful mission to Burgundy in what is today modern France, sometime in the late sixth and early seventh century. And from there, he crossed the Alps and moved into Italy, bringing Celtic monasticism with him wherever he went. Our friend, the Venerable Bede, discusses the conflict between the Celtic and Roman churches at some length in his ecclesiastical history. Being English, it was obviously of some interest to him. He notes that quote, such was the confusion in those days. Here he means the seventh century, that Easter was sometimes kept twice in one year, so that when the king had ended Lent and was keeping Easter, the queen and her attendants were still fasting and keeping Palm Sunday. King Oswy of Northumbria wanted the matter settled once and for all, and in 664 he called for an ecclesiastical synod at the monastery of Whitby. What is interesting about this is that although high-ranking ecclesiastical representatives of both the Roman and Celtic churches were present and offered their arguments, it was Oswy who called the synod, and he was the one who pronounced the final judgment. Also of interest is that the monastery of Whitby was what is called a double monastery, meaning that it included a monastery of monks and a convent of nuns, and in charge of all of this was a woman, the abbess Hild. She was a grand niece of King Edwin of Northumbria, demonstrating the point I made earlier about the presence of nobles in these religious houses, and she figures prominently in Bede's ecclesiastical history, not only in his discussion of the Synod of Whitby, but also in one of his miracle stories. This is the miracle of a man named Cadman, a low-ranking man in charge of taking care of the cattle on a large estate, who is, in a miraculous visitation by an angel, given the gift of composing religious verse. After his encounter with the angel, he is brought before the abbess Hild, who pronounces his poetic gift as sent from God, and he is then brought into the fold of the monastery, where he lives out his life in great holiness. His example underscores both the fact that it was possible for peasants to become monks, and also that it might be unusual for such a thing to happen. The result of the Synod of Whitby was that King Oswy decided in favor of Rome. And by his decree, those churches and monasteries following the Celtic tradition 
were brought into the ecclesiastical fold. Although Hild had favored the Celtic tradition, she obeyed King Oswy's decree. Medieval monasteries were, in many respects, kingdoms unto themselves, ruled over by an abbot, often producing their food, clothing, and other necessities, engaging in trade, both with nearby towns and locales far distant. But at the same time, the monastic life was far removed, in most respects, from the secular world beyond its walls, and that world could be dangerous and violent, as local lords jockeyed with one another for power and lands. One of the most important dynasties to emerge from the violence of the early medieval period was that of the Merovingians, a people whose kingdom would eventually evolve into Francia, arguably the single most important political entity ever to exist in the medieval world. And that will be the subject of our next lecture. Lecture 6. From Merovingian Gaul to Carolingian France. Welcome back. In our last lecture, we discussed the development of the monastic life in early medieval Europe and how monasticism and its ideals had a far-reaching impact throughout the medieval world. Vowing to live a life of chastity, poverty, and prayer Monks and nuns worked to perfect their own souls and to save those of their fellow Christians living in the secular world by engaging in acts of prayer, devotion, and labor. Given the violence to be found in the world beyond the cloister, it is not surprising that many people turn to the monastic life as a refuge. Such is the case with one of the people we'll be discussing today the Thuringian princess Radigand, who sought sanctuary in a convent in order to escape her husband, one of the more ruthless leaders of a Frankish people known as the Merovingians. The most important society to emerge in the early medieval world of Western Europe was that of the Franks, a people that we met briefly in an earlier lecture when we discussed Gregory of Tours' account of the conversion of King Clovis. Today, we will visit Francia, the most dominant of the cultures to arise from the former Roman Empire, and examine the dynasty which shaped its origins, the Merovingians. If we look at a map of Europe in the 8th century, we'd see Anglo-Saxon England to the west, and we'd see that although dominant, the Anglo-Saxons had not attained clear control of the British Isles, where a strong Celtic presence remained, particularly in the west and north of Britain, and in what is today Ireland. In the southeast of the European continent, we'd see that what is today Italy was subdivided into several very small states. Modern Spain was under mostly Islamic rule, something we'll spend considerable time discussing in a later lecture. Dwarfing all of these societies was the Kingdom of Francia, which controlled what are the countries of modern-day France, Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and a great portion of Germany. Perhaps more than any other culture that rose out of the remains of the Roman Empire, Frankish society managed to preserve the best of what the empire had had in place in terms of government and infrastructure, while also adapting and innovating. 
I do not think it is overstating matters to say that the Franks were the catalysts of Western culture. Their society became the model for European social and political organization for over a thousand years. In order to understand how this came to be, we need to begin at the beginning. And the beginning for the Franks is with the rise to power of the Merovingians, one of those barbarian peoples whose origins lie outside the bounds of the Roman Empire in Germania. The Merovingians have also been called the long-haired kings. You see, they believed that much of their power lay in their uncut hair, and in this respect, they were quite different from the Romans who favored shorter hairstyles and shaven faces. The organization of Frankish politics and society occurred along two axes. The military band, also called the comitatus, which is the same basic idea of loyal retainership that we've already encountered in our discussion of the Anglo-Saxons, and the family. And family could be quite a complicated issue as the Merovingians were polygamous and many kings had more than one wife and some had both wives and concubines. The first and most important of the Merovingians is Clovis, a name that would eventually evolve into the French name Louis. And this Clovis lived in the late 5th, early 6th century, and his conversion to Christianity, significantly rewritten by Gregory of Tours in his history, which we discussed in our third lecture, played such an important role in the Christianization of medieval Europe. The Merovingians were quite accomplished and brutal warriors, and it is through warfare that they gained power. A good leader in the Frankish tradition rewarded his loyal retinue with land and treasure, again, something we've already seen in our discussion of Anglo-Saxon England. So in contrast with the tradition of the Roman Empire, where patriotism and loyalty to the state was arguably the most important bond that united people, Merovingian society was held together primarily by bonds of personal loyalty, although the early Merovingian leaders made clever use of Roman administrative apparatuses, like appointing a series of comes, or counts, and delegating to them local administrative tasks, like tax collecting. This was very like the Roman system, but in this case, the taxes went straight to the king and not to the state. The major problem for the Merovingians, however, was that their system of succession tended to dilute the power of the dynasty. All property was divided equally among any and all surviving sons. Clovis had four surviving sons, and the partition of land was made without considering ethnic, geographic, or administrative divisions. The only real matter of concern was that the portions be of equal value. The boundaries of each region were poorly defined, and their capitals were all centered in the area known as the Paris Basin. The eldest brother, Theodoric, had Reims as his base. Clodomir used Orléans. Childebert took Paris as his base of operations, and Clothar claimed Soissons as his capital. Now, although this sort of inheritance system obviously looked likely to provoke violent dynastic struggles and civil war, the Merovingians in the early going tended to enjoy a strange kind of luck, whereby 
all the brothers might die without heirs, so that the lands would be reconsolidated into one Frankish kingdom. This is what happened in the case of Clovis's sons. The youngest, Clothar, survived all his brothers, and so the partitions of the kingdom were reconsolidated. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, Clothar had four sons, and upon his death in 561, the kingdom was once again divided up. Now, in addition to the infighting, the Merovingians were always looking to extend their territory. As I said, they were warriors. And I'd like to focus for a moment on one of Clothar's campaigns against a people known as the Thuringians, because this rather lengthy episode allows us a way of getting a sense of many aspects of the world of early medieval Frankish society, particularly in terms of the status of women and the conventions of war. The Frankish-Thuringian War will also rather indirectly lead us to one of the oddest moments in the monastic tradition and allow us to deepen our understanding of that way of life, which was the subject of our last lecture. The Thuringians were a loose confederation of tribes that lived in what is modern-day Germany, along the border with the Czech Republic. They were often at war with the Merovingians, who sought to expand their territories in the 6th century. There had been a truce between the Franks and the Thuringians, but the Thuringian leader broke it in a most spectacular way, murdering several Frankish women and children. In response, the Franks in 531 sought revenge. This attack was led by Clothar, the youngest son of Clovis, and according to Gregory of Tours, the slaughter was so immense that the river was choked with the bodies of the Franks, and the Franks used the bodies of their fallen comrades as a bridge by which they could cross the river and continue their attack on the Thuringians. Clothar and his brothers killed the entire Thuringian ruling family, except for six-year-old Princess Radigand and her brother, whom they took as war booty, something that was quite a common practice. Clothar's intent was to raise Radigand and then marry her when she came of age, something that would be seen as cementing his claims to former Thuringian territory. Now, Radigand and her brother had already had a bit of a difficult time in that their father, King Berktachar, had been murdered by his brother, Hermanfred. After killing his brother, Hermanfred had then taken his niece and nephew into his own household to raise. So, we can clearly get a sense of the brutality of this world, and also of the contradictory nature of the position of women like Radigand. Women are extremely important in the way that they represent their families, and thus can serve to cement bonds between tribes or claims over territory. Something very similar occurs in Anglo-Saxon society, which we should remember is also a Germanic culture. So the fact that we find similar practices and institutions, like the comitatus, in both societies shouldn't be surprising. The Anglo-Saxons actually had a word for this practice of marrying a woman of one tribe into another in order to effect a truce or consolidate claims to territory. The word is freodewebe, which means peace-weaving. And although the establishment of peace is its intent, as we can see from Radigan's examples and the experience of others, peace was rarely the ultimate result. 
we see a very moving account of Radigan's experience in a poem called The Thuringian War, which is told from Radigan's point of view. Many scholars believe it was actually composed by her. This poem is interesting not only for its eloquent mourning of what has been lost and the family and friends that were killed, but also in its numerous allusions to the classical world. She compares the destruction of Thuringia with that of Troy, for example, and at other moments alludes to Alexander the Great and the world of Byzantium far to the east, or some of her relatives had fled to safety. The poem thus demonstrates a certain level of worldliness and education on her part, and it suggests also that the Thuringians were still polytheistic pagans. The poem reads in part, Not Troy alone must mourn her ruins. The Thuringian land suffered equal slaughter. The matron was wrapped away with streaming hair, bound fast, without even a sad farewell to the household gods. A wife's naked feet trod in her husband's blood, and the tender sister stepped over the fallen brother. Anguish is private and public both to me. Fate was kind to those whom the enemy struck down. I, the sole survivor, must weep for them all. When she took up residence in Clother's household, Radigand was converted to Christianity. But although a Christian in name, Clothar rarely behaved as one, and I think by almost anyone's standards, he could be considered, at the very least, a colossal jerk. He had several wives, Radigan being just one of many, and when one of his brothers died, he married the widow and then put all of her children to death so that there would be no one to claim that brother's portion of the Frankish kingdom, and those lands would then revert to him. He was ruthless and cruel. For example, in 560, he put his own son, Cram, to death, along with Cram's entire family, because his son had rebelled against the father. In 550, Clothar killed Radigan's only surviving brother, which, as you might imagine, was really the last straw for her. Radigan had converted to Christianity at an early age, and according to contemporary chroniclers, had long expressed a desire to live a religious life. After the murder of her brother, Radigan fled to her villa at Sykes, which was her own property because of the Frankish custom of the Morgengabe. This term, Morgengabe, means literally morning gift, and this refers to the practice of bestowing on one's wife a gift of property on the morning after the consummation of a marriage. This property was fully and legally hers to do with as she saw fit. Radigan's Morgengabe had been the villa at Sykes, and she retired there after the murder of her brother. Although we have evidence that in 558 Clothar made overtures to try and win her back, actions that seemed to have caused her to flee from Sykes to Poitiers, Radigand herself seems to suggest that Clothar came to accept her desire to live a religious life. And it seems that on his deathbed, Clothar may have made arrangements to endow the convent at Poitiers where Radigand would live out her life. Clothar was Clothar to the end, however, and it is also reported that as he lay dying, racked by fever, he demanded, and, and no one's sure here if this question was asked in outrage or admiration, what manner of God would bring great rulers to their deaths in such a fashion? In Radigan, then, 
we can see the contradictory nature of the position of Frankish queens in that many enjoyed great power and were comfortable wielding it, while in many respects these same women were, at least at times, helpless pawns in the conflicts between men. Although so much of what happened to Radigund was beyond her control, she also demonstrated an impressive will and determination, taking charge of her own destiny. When she fled from Clothar, she apparently browbeat the local bishop into consecrating her as a nun, which was a dangerous thing to do while her husband was still alive. And although she did become a nun and an abbess, she never really relinquished her position as queen. She acted effectively as queen of the convent and used her connections for things like obtaining a relic of the true cross. Having this relic in its position enhanced the status of the abbey at Poitiers, ensuring that pilgrims were certain to travel there and that donations to the community would increase. She also maintained some semblance of order and normalcy when the abbey at Poitiers was burned and looted as sort of collateral damage during some Merovingian dynastic infighting. And far from renouncing the outside world, Radigand worked hard at maintaining relationships with important people outside the monastery in order to protect her community of sisters. Nothing makes the power of Radigand's personality clearer than the events that occurred at her abbey after her death. These events make plain that a great deal of strife was kept in check by Radigand's force of will and commanding way of running the abbey. An internal dispute arose over how the abbey was being run, and two women who were members of the Merovingian royal family actually led a revolt against the new abbess who had taken up Radigan's position. Around 40 nuns or so joined the revolt and ended up leaving the convent. Some of them tried to reform and reestablish their community at the Church of St. Hilary, but Gregory of Tours ordered them to disperse because they had no way to sufficiently provide for themselves through the winter. Some of the nuns got pregnant, some renounced their vows and married, and some others hired mercenaries who attempted to break into their old convent and kidnap the abbess. It is an episode, as one of my students once remarked, that is essentially nuns gone wild. So, by focusing on the experiences of Radigand, we get a bit of a feel for the nature of the Merovingian world. That world began to change significantly around the year 600. At this time, the ruling family of the Franks was increasingly land poor, a result of bestowing large parcels of land on retainers to ensure their loyalty, and also the practice of dividing land equally among all surviving sons. By 600, we have several very small kingdoms, the most important of which were Austrasia, Neustria, and Burgundy. And we also have a landed aristocracy that has more wealth and power than the kings themselves. The Merovingian star begins to wane, and in its place, we have a new dynasty, the Carolingians. The Carolingians come to power through the Frankish office known as the mayor of the palace. Although this position was originally subservient to the position of king, over time the mayor of the palace became the real power in Frankish government, while the king was increasingly ineffectual, weak, and more of a figurehead. The Carolingians were wealthy in terms of land holdings, and they practiced 
the Germanic tradition of building a loyal comitatus by generously gifting wealth and land and other goods to several warriors, effectively creating their own army. They had managed to make the position of mayor of the palace hereditary, so their power was passed down generation to generation and thus was more easily increased. In 687, a mayor of the palace named Pepin of Heristal managed to lead his comitatus to victory against the Neustrians, and he was also able to dominate Burgundy, meaning that for the first time essentially since Clovis, there is one Frankish leader dominating major territory. Pepin's son was Charles Martel, also known as the Hammer. He continued his father's consolidation of power and expansion of territory, and he was successful for four reasons. The first was his personality. He was as ruthless and ambitious as any Frankish leader we have met thus far. He knew what he wanted, and he would stop at almost nothing to get it. The second factor in his success was the fact that he made sure he had no rivals, killing potential challengers to his power within his own and other aristocratic families. Third, he was a skilled soldier, and most significantly, he managed to turn the cavalry into a highly effective military unit that was able to dominate the units of foot soldiers. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, he worked with the church. I cannot stress enough how much the support of the papacy meant to his success. Pope Gregory III was so impressed by Charles Martel's success in battle that when the papal territories in central Italy were threatened by Lombards, he called on the hammer for help. Charles Martel had two sons, named Carloman and Pepin the Short. While the usual practice would have been to divide power, land, and wealth equally among them, Carloman seems to have been persuaded to become a monk, something which probably saved his life, and he retired to the Benedictine Abbey of Monte Cassino in Italy in 747, leaving Pepin to rule alone, a fact which resulted in relative peace and unity in the Frankish lands. Pepin felt that enough was enough. He was king in all but name, and it was time he had the name, too. At the urging of Pepin, Pope Zacharias declared that an individual who exercised the power of a king ought to have the title. In 751, the Merovingian era of Frankish history came to an end when King Childeric III, the last of the long-haired kings, had his hair cut off an act that symbolized his lack of power and was probably carried out by an agent of the Carolingians. Weakened and ashamed, Childeric was exiled to a monastery. In return for this support, Pepin gave Frankish-controlled lands in Italy to the Pope, effectively creating what we've come to know as the Papal States. The Merovingian rule of the Franks was over, and the Carolingian dynasty had officially supplanted it. This exchange between Pepin and Pope Zacharias is hugely significant as it represents one of the first instances when the right to rule is decreed by ecclesiastical sanction. Although Gregory of Tours had earlier stated quite plainly that he saw the Merovingian kings as playing a providential role in history, meaning that their reign was ordained by God to ultimately promote the power of the church on earth, 
there was no really formal union between the church and Frankish kings. So this becomes an issue with Pepin, but it will be an even more pressing issue during the reign of his son, Charlemagne. If ever there was an historical figure who fit the description larger than life, Charlemagne is that figure. Even the name by which we call him today registers this. His name was actually simply Charles, uh, the French form being Charles, and it was not long before he was being described as Charles the Great, Charlemagne, which became Charlemagne in most of the English-speaking world. Now, at first, it didn't look as if the power accumulated by Pepin would continue to grow during the reign of his successor, for you see, Charlemagne had a brother, Carloman, popular name in the family. And so, in keeping with the tradition of Frankish inheritance, the land, wealth, and power of Pepin was initially split between the two brothers. According to Charlemagne's biographer, Einhard, who wrote his account of the king's life at the behest of Charlemagne's son, Louis the Pious, there was bad blood between Pepin's two sons. But, fortunately, he says, Carloman died within two years, and Charlemagne became the undisputed king of the Franks. According to Einhard, Charlemagne cut an impressive figure. Many people have understood him to be described as seven feet tall, but actually what Einhard said was that Charlemagne's height was more than seven times the length of his foot. So by today's standards, he was not seven feet tall. Yet measurements taken of his skeleton suggest that he was around six feet four inches tall. Even if these measurements are not exact, we can rest assured that Charlemagne certainly stood out from the majority of the population in terms of height. Although I should point out here that the idea that medieval people were significantly smaller than modern people is a misperception. Recent archaeological studies of medieval skeletons from Britain suggest that Average height for a man in the Middle Ages was around 5 feet 7 inches. Today's average is 5 feet 9. Women in the Middle Ages averaged 5 feet 2 inches, while today's average is around 5 feet 4. There was some variation in terms of class. Peasants were, on average, shorter than nobles because of their poor diet and harder lifestyles. But if we're talking about today, or the late 8th century, 6 foot 4 is tall. Einhard went on to note of Charlemagne's appearance that, quote, the upper part of his head was round, his eyes very large and animated, nose a little long, hair fair, and face laughing and merry. Thus, his appearance was always stately and dignified, whether he was standing or sitting. Although his neck was thick and somewhat short, and his belly rather prominent, but the symmetry of the rest of his body concealed these defects. His gait was firm, his whole carriage manly, and his voice clear, but not so strong as his size led one to expect. The tall man with the round head and prominent belly conceived of the audacious plan to recreate the culture, prestige, and power of the Roman Empire, to make a new empire modeled on Rome. He worked toward this goal by taking significant action in four different areas— we see Charlemagne's significance first and foremost as a conqueror. 
He was nearly invincible in wars of aggression that consolidated or expanded Frankish territory. Essentially, every spring his army was on the march against various enemies, both internal and external. He was victorious against the Saxons, for example, in 775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-775-
In our previous lecture, we focused on the kingdom of the Franks, the most powerful and largest realm to emerge from the former Roman Empire. While it was under the rule of the Merovingian family that the Franks rose to power, the real power lay behind the throne, in the office of mayor of the palace. In the 8th century, the mayor of the palace, Pepin the Short, demanded that his title match his office and function, and with the support of the Pope, a new dynasty, the Carolingians, supplanted the Merovingians. Last time, we talked also at considerable length about the greatest scion of that family, the Frankish leader Charles the Great, or Charlemagne, and we explored how he consolidated and expanded his power through key actions in four areas. First, as conqueror. Second, as a state builder. Third, as defender and promoter of the church. And fourth, as a patron of the arts. By the year 800, Charlemagne's realm stretched more than 800 miles from east to west. His territory extended south into Italy, north into Saxony, and he had several of what seemed to be buffer zones that effectively made his realm the largest under a single lord since the Roman Empire. Historian Barbara Rosenwein suggests that as this territory under Charlemagne's rule looked like the closest thing to an empire that the Western world had seen since the 5th century, Charlemagne also thought it fitting that he begin to act like an emperor. He borrowed ideas of Roman bureaucracy and administration in order to facilitate the running of his empire. He imposed uniformity and consistency on religious practices. And as a promoter of art, architecture, and education, he established what scholars have come to call the Palace School at Aachen. And it's his activities here and as a patron of the arts that produced the first true renaissance in the medieval world. The word renaissance means literally rebirth, and very often you will hear people use it to refer to what is more often called the early modern period, which began sometime in the 16th century. The word renaissance, when applied to the early modern period, seems to suggest that after the long, dark, obscure, and ignorant days of the Middle Ages, there was finally a rediscovery, a rebirth of the humanistic tradition we so often associate with the Roman Empire. Charlemagne, however, got there first. In the 8th century, he sought, as far as was possible, to recreate and preserve the best and most glorious elements of what had been the Roman Empire, and all modern scholars owe him a debt of gratitude for the learning he preserved for later generations. The establishment of the palace school at Aachen was an astoundingly ambitious undertaking, and it effectively shifted the center of learning in early medieval Europe away from the British Isles, the monasteries of which had become famed for their collections of manuscripts. Charlemagne relocated the center of learning and culture to the continent. He recruited the leading scholars of the day away from their homes in places as far away as England, Italy, and Spain, and sought to establish a learned community, an intellectual center, at Aachen. One of those scholars he lured to the continent was a man named Alcuin of York, considered one of the greatest minds of the early medieval period, and it was he who really served as Charlemagne's architect of cultural reform. Einhard, 
another learned man who joined the community at Aachen, would go on to write a biography of Charlemagne, and significantly, he used as his model a second-century classical work called The Lives of the Caesars, a fact which underscores that many people thought of Charlemagne as a new Roman emperor. It is an interesting fact that although the occupations of warrior and patron of the arts might seem to be mutually exclusive, Charlemagne funded almost all of his program of educational and cultural renewal with the booty he had won in his many war campaigns, and he spared no expense. He wanted to gather and preserve knowledge, and to that end, he sent couriers throughout Europe to acquire important manuscripts, and he was especially interested in classical works, those of Virgil, Horace, and Tacitus. And he didn't just want to possess these manuscripts for himself. He wanted the knowledge they contained to be disseminated. So once the manuscripts were acquired, they were copied by scribes working in Charlemagne's court. In fact, most of our editions of the works of these classical authors are based on 8th and 9th century copies made at Charlemagne's behest. In several instances, the original version from which his scribes made their copies has been lost. We can tell which manuscripts come from Charlemagne's court in part because of the hand in which they are written. Now, a brief comment about medieval handwriting is in order here. As many of you already know, and as I mentioned in my first lecture, all texts in the Middle Ages had to be written by hand. Just to get an animal hide into a condition in which it would be suitable for writing was a laborious and painstaking process. And perhaps not coincidentally, the act of writing itself was similarly time-consuming and difficult. A scribe would usually sit before a table that looked like an angled lectern. He would have, most usually, a quill, which would need to be dipped repeatedly in an inkwell, perhaps more than once, just for the formation of one letter. The animal hide before him, although it had been stretched and treated, had a tendency to want to spring back into the shape of the animal from which it had come, so the scribe often used his knife, which was necessary to have on hand for periodic sharpening of the quill, or another similar object as a kind of pointer to hold the parchment or vellum in place. Because it was so difficult and time-consuming to prepare a piece of animal hide for writing, scribes tended not to want to waste any space, so words were often run together, and abbreviations were quite common. There is little or no punctuation to be found in early medieval manuscripts, and the letter forms themselves look like alien symbols or glyphs to our modern eyes. There is a whole field, known as paleography, that is devoted to the study of early handwriting. One thing that is of major interest to paleographers are the different styles or hands to be found in medieval manuscripts. By understanding conventions of style, particular variations in letter forms, and occasionally unusual spelling, paleographers, those who study the writing of the past, can usually locate a manuscript in both time and place, say, 12th century England. And sometimes they can even identify the particular monastery and even the specific scribe who copied a text, even if there is no signature. Medieval texts were thus very difficult to read, and Charlemagne wanted to make the process of acquiring knowledge easier and more accessible. 
So he promoted a new hand that was simpler and easier to read, called Carolingian minuscule, and he decreed that this is the hand that should be used consistently throughout the kingdom. This hand was better than those which had preceded it because it was more legible. There were spaces between words, and there was more punctuation. Charlemagne also added a hierarchy of font styles. For example, titles should be written in all capitals, subtitles, a mix of capitals and lowercase letters, and the main text should be all in lowercase. This made navigating a manuscript much easier than had been the case in the past, as in many instances there was little to distinguish titles, subtitles, and even marginal commentary or notes from the main text. Interestingly, although he could read and could read Latin, which was the language of education and learning in the Middle Ages and the language in which virtually all texts were written, Charlemagne himself could not write. According to his biographer Einhard, Charlemagne used to keep slates or a wax tablet with a stylus near him, and when he had a moment, he would practice forming letters. But he concluded ultimately that he had come to the study of writing too late in life to be successful at it. This aspect of Charlemagne's life reveals something fundamentally different about literacy in the Middle Ages compared to literacy today. Most of us today learn to read and write at about the same time. In other words, we practice using a pencil and writing words around the same time. We're learning how to identify them on the page and read them aloud. In the Middle Ages, there were several varieties or levels of literacy, and we must remember that when we speak of medieval literacy, we are talking about a very small percentage of the population. Reading and writing were considered two separate skills, and reading and writing in a particular language. Further distinguish the level of one man's literacy from another. Truly literate men would be able to read and write Latin, while others might be able to read in only their native language, what we call a vernacular, like French or English or German, in order to distinguish it from Latin, the language of learning and culture. Although it was not terribly common, there seem to have been a few instances in which we find a scribe who was trained in the copying of letters. But he might be functionally illiterate, meaning he wouldn't be able to read and understand the text he was copying. Knowledge of Latin was key in medieval society, as it was a kind of lingua franca that made travel, trade, and communication easier. For example, an English speaker and a French speaker might not know one another's native languages, but if they both knew Latin, they could communicate with one another quite easily. And of course. Latin was the language of the Roman Empire, so it is no surprise that in his quest for the preservation of knowledge, Charlemagne emphasized those texts that were written in Latin, and rather than a program of translation, he favored making copies of the texts in their original language. He then instituted various educational programs, for example, funding schools at the great monasteries of Fulda and Sangal, with the intention of providing an education. For clerics and laymen alike, he also made sure that every church and monastery had a copy of the Vulgate Bible, and that those copies had been carefully checked for errors. Errors in medieval manuscripts were a huge source of concern, for once an error had been made, it was likely to be repeated in subsequent copies of a text, 
And while this might not have been a big deal in some instances, one can imagine that a scribal error in an important theological text, or even worse, the Bible, was particularly frightening because of the potential of people being accidentally led into sinful behavior. Many medieval manuscripts have corrections in the margins. Usually these would be in a case of larger errors, say when a monk, tired from a long day of copying, might actually do an eye skip and omit a word or an entire line by accident, as is the case in a medieval manuscript of St. Augustine. A later reader has corrected the scribe's error by drawing a little picture of Augustine himself in the margin. Augustine is standing beside the missing line and pointing to where it is supposed to go. In the case of a simple error recognized at the time of its making, the knife that the medieval scribe used to hold the page flat came in handy, as pages made of animal hide are so thick that one can literally scrape the word off the page and the vellum or parchment would still be sufficient for him to be able to write the correct word where it belonged. There was even a story in the Middle Ages about a demon named Titavillus whose sole purpose was keeping track of errors scribes made in copying manuscripts. At the end of a monk's life, Titavillus would weigh the good work a monk had done in copying manuscripts against the errors he had made. One version of the story says that a particular monk, when his errors and good works were weighed against one another, made it into heaven on the balance of just a single letter. So, Charlemagne made sure that Latin learning was revived and expanded, that texts from the classical tradition were collected and copied, and that religious texts especially had been checked and corrected for errors. What we might call his base of operations, Aachen, was an old Roman military camp. Charlemagne modeled the palace there on old Roman palaces and even graced it with a statue of the Emperor Theodoric, which he stole, by the way, in order to emphasize his link with the classical world. His compound there included a church that he modeled on the Basilica of San Vitale in Ravenna, Italy, and he went to great pains to import Roman columns and Italian marble. He called the church the Palatine Chapel. Palatine because of the clear connection to Rome. The Palatine Hill is one of the seven hills of Rome. And he called this structure a chapel because one of the saint's relics that was housed there was a piece of the cloak that St. Martin had famously given to a beggar. And the word capella, which means chapel in Latin, can also mean cloak. So, in its very name, his church advertises both its Christian holiness and its links with the Roman Empire. In its layout... The church also quite specifically emphasized Charlemagne's royal position and piety. The church was designed to have three levels. The top represented the heavens, and the ground floor was the place where the clergy and the people met to worship. Between these two levels was a gallery that connected the church to the royal palace. Charlemagne placed his throne on this level in direct alignment with the altar, so that as the people looked up at the emperor, they were reminded that Charlemagne mediated between them and God. As we've seen, Charlemagne wanted very much to regularize Christian worship in his realm, but he also wanted to make attending church a pleasurable experience so that people would enjoy themselves during the service. 
He decreed that the prayers of the divine office should be sung by monks in a style known as Gregorian chant. This style of religious music is named for Pope Gregory the Great, who is credited by many as its originator. But there are some scholars who feel that while its roots may be a Roman style of chant, it is Charlemagne who really was the impetus behind its creation and development. And he only named Gregory as its creator to lend this style of liturgical music prestige and help its popularity. Gregorian chant is also known as plain chant, and it is a type of monophonic vocal performance, meaning that what we have is many voices who all sing the same notes for the same duration at the same time. If you remember our lecture on monasticism, you'll recall that most of a monk's day was taken up with prayers that were usually sung. Given this, Gregorian chant was one of the major soundtracks in the medieval world. And if you're wondering what it sounded like, here's a sample. felt strongly when it came to religion, and his own contemporaries recognized the important role he played as a champion of Christianity, to the point that he was frequently called a second Constantine, or a new Constantine. The Emperor Constantine, as you'll remember, famously converted to Christianity in the early 4th century, helping make that religion go from being the most persecuted in the Roman Empire to the official religion of the empire in the space of just a century. Constantine also significantly acted as the head of the Church Council of Nicaea, an act that established a precedent for the idea that church leaders were, more or less, subject to the secular ruler. This precedent gained additional support with the Synod of Whitby, which was called to help settle the date of Easter, as you'll recall from an earlier lecture. Although a meeting that drew religious leaders from throughout the British Isles and the continent the head of the Synod of Whitby was King Oswy of Northumbria, rather than an ecclesiastical official, and he was the one who decided that the Roman, rather than Celtic means of calculating the date of Easter, should be observed. Now, we're going to talk much more about Byzantium, or what had once been the eastern half of the empire, in our next lecture. But for now, it is important that you know that once the western half of the Roman Empire had effectively collapsed after 480, the Byzantine leadership, based in Constantinople, claimed that the empire had technically been reunited, with the emperor of Byzantium controlling both east and west. For a couple of centuries prior to Charlemagne's rise to power, Byzantine emperors had tried to control the Pope in Rome according to a principle called Caesaropapism, which is really just a fancy way of saying that the Byzantines believed that church leaders were subject to the emperor. In the year 800, 
Charlemagne traveled to Rome at the invitation of Pope Leo III, where he celebrated Christ's nativity. Historians do not agree about what was planned or what actually happened in terms of the sequence of events during church services on December 25th of that year. But the story goes that without any foreknowledge on the part of Charlemagne and completely unexpectedly, Pope Leo, in the middle of the service, placed a crown on Charlemagne's head and declared him the Holy Roman Emperor. Centuries later, the French writer Voltaire would famously remark that the realm over which Charlemagne ruled was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. And while there is certainly a great deal of truth to this statement, as any casual observer can see, at the very least, the idea of a Holy Roman Empire lasted for over a thousand years and came to be one of the most important forces in medieval politics. Now, Pope Leo's imperial coronation of Charlemagne was significant for a number of reasons. For the papacy, it was effectively an attempt to move out from under Byzantine domination, suggesting that if any power might have the right to direct the church, it would be a Western rather than Eastern power. It meant that the Carolingian kings could now claim a line of imperial descent from the Emperor Augustus, strengthening their connection to Rome. It is interesting, however, that Charlemagne did not adopt this title right away, preferring to be called Rex, or King, instead. He eventually did use the title of Emperor, and his successors certainly did, especially when attempting to establish or maintain their right to hold power. Perhaps because of the uncertainty surrounding how the events of the coronation played out exactly, the moment when Leo placed the crown on Charlemagne's head has given rise to a debate surrounding interpretation of the coronation, known as the Royalist versus Romanist debate. The Romanist position would hold that the Pope holds all power from God, but while he oversees the Church, he bestows or grants his secular power of rule to the leader of the Holy Roman Empire. In other words, Romanists hold that the Church has the right and the power to decide who will be emperor. As you might suppose, the Royalists have a different position. They would argue that it was Charlemagne who restored the Roman Empire, and his coronation was simply an acknowledgement of what he had already accomplished on his own. The implication here is that the Church is part of the Holy Roman Empire and not the other way around. Now, this is not the same as saying that the ruler had any specific religious or priestly functions, but he did have extensive control over the church and was seen as a kind of partner allied with the office of the pope. This is perhaps the greatest legacy of the Carolingian period, the fact that with the creation of the Holy Roman Empire, we have a Christian realm whose supreme leader is in a position parallel to that of the supreme spiritual leader, the Pope. But, as I said earlier, although the Holy Roman Empire would continue to exist for a thousand years, it would have no real power for much of that time except as an idea. When Charlemagne died in 814, only one of his sons, Louis the Pious, was still alive, which meant that the Carolingian Empire continued to be a unified realm. It seemed clear to Louis that the Frankish custom of dividing wealth, 
property, and power among all surviving sons was not in the best interests of the empire, so he tried to set up an inheritance system among his own sons that looked more like primogeniture, a system in which the firstborn son inherits most, if not all, of the assets. Early in his reign, he named his firstborn son Lothar as his co-ruler, and he had his other two sons, Pepin and Louis, agree to rule as sub-kings under their older brother after Louis the Pious died. This arrangement seemed prudent and reasonable, but after the death of his first wife, Louis married again, and by his second wife, he had another son who came to be called Charles the Bald. And this new arrival threw the earlier plan into disarray, as did the death of Pepin in 838. Louis the Pious died in 840, and his three surviving sons engaged in a bitter dynastic struggle for the right to rule the Carolingian Empire. Lothar attacked Charles the Bald, who in turn went and made an alliance with Louis, and these two brothers together defeated Lothar in 841. Fighting continued until 843, when the Treaty of Verdun divided the Frankish realm into three parts, divided roughly into a western, middle, and eastern Frankish kingdom. Charles the Bald took the west, which comprised most of what is modern-day France. The east, which would eventually become Germany, went to Louis, who became known as Louis the German. The Middle Kingdom ran from what is today the Netherlands in the north down through modern-day Switzerland and into Italy, and this went to Lothar, Louis the Pious's eldest son. The three brothers went on to have sons themselves, and the kingdoms were further subdivided. The result was that, within 60 years after Charlemagne's death, the unity of his empire had completely disappeared. Those differences that existed throughout the various regions of the Carolingian Empire that Charlemagne had worked so hard and successfully at overcoming, differences of language and custom and ethnic identity, proved to be too much for his successors. Without a stable, centralized power to hold it together, the various kingdoms splintered into smaller and smaller pieces, and eventually the Carolingian dynasty was supplanted by the Etonians. In 911, the last Carolingian king of Germany, Louis the Child, died. The local military leaders in the German duchies crowned one of their own as king. Around the same time, the German states were suffering attacks from the Hungarian Magyars, and in 919, the German military leaders gave the right to rule to the most powerful man among all of them, Henry, Duke of Saxony. His son Otto I brought stability and order to the various German territories, unifying them and then adding to his territory by conquering part of Italy. He borrowed a page from Charlemagne and made excellent use of the church in promoting his rule. With the Etonians, we have the beginning of the idea of a German Holy Roman Empire, and it and Francia, once united under the rule of Charlemagne, would remain two distinctly different societies from that point until the modern period. So, in what we might think of as the homeland of the medieval world, the Carolingian Empire, both in the physical extent of its borders and the ideals that it embraced and promoted, it would dominate Western Europe for several hundred years to come. 
Beyond the, the traditional borders of the medieval world, however, events were taking place that would have a profound impact on the Europe of the Middle Ages. The former eastern half of the Roman Empire, Byzantium, was facing a new series of challenges, in part due to the rise of a new and powerful belief system, Islam. Although the West, the Byzantine Empire, and the Muslim world were strikingly different and would clash on several occasions, it is important that we understand the many cultural, political, and religious aspects that they shared, for in the words of historian Barbara Rosenwein, all three of these entities are, quote, sibling cultures of Rome. And as we'll see in our next lecture, the influence and legacy of the Roman Empire affected all three in significant and important ways. Lecture 8. Byzantium, Islam, and the West. Welcome back. For the last several lectures, we have been focusing on the legacy of the Roman Empire in Western Europe. And it is true that when one speaks of the medieval world or the Middle Ages, most often it is understood that these terms are specific to the West. However, the eastern half of the Roman Empire is extremely important in the development of medieval culture, as are those regions in the Middle East and North Africa where the religion of Islam originated and to which it spread. Much of these areas had once been Roman territories as well, and historian Barbara Rosenwein has suggested that we should think of Western Europe, the Byzantine Empire, and the Islamic world as sibling cultures of Rome. Today, we're going to discuss both Byzantium and the rise and spread of Islam, situating these cultures in relationship to the West so that we can more clearly see the important differences and distinctions among them, as well as some of the similarities and continuities. We'll start with what we've come to call the Byzantine Empire. As you may recall from a previous lecture, one of the responses to the crisis of the 3rd century in the Roman Empire by the Emperor Diocletian, was to divide the empire into a western and an eastern half, with an emperor and an emperor in training, a Caesar, for each. Diocletian himself took the eastern half, an indication that the east was the richer, more stable portion of the empire. This was due to a number of factors, including the fact that the borders of the eastern part of the empire were less frequently attacked than those of the west, the east had a more stable economy, and it had a thriving urban life. By comparison, the West was less stable, prone to more frequent attacks, and its economy was primarily agrarian, meaning that the difference between good health and starvation was often only a harvest or two. As we discussed in a previous lecture, the differences between the two halves of the former empire are often characterized by a kind of shorthand terminology. As we head into the 6th century, these two formerly united regions are going in opposite directions. The West, toward barbarization, becoming more like the so-called barbarian peoples who had once lived beyond its borders, and the East, toward Hellenization, or becoming more influenced by Greece and Greek culture. The center of that culture was the city of Constantinople, 
which had once been known as Byzantium, but which had been renamed by the Emperor Constantine. The terms Byzantium and Byzantine eventually came to refer to the whole of the eastern half of the former Roman Empire. The location of Constantinople was a huge factor in its prosperity, as it was strategically located on the Bosporus Strait, a waterway connecting the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. And so it was a center for commerce and trade, and it was a very cosmopolitan city from its earliest days, as people from all different cultures speaking many different languages passed through it. What is interesting about Byzantium in the late 5th and 6th centuries is that its emperor and its citizens, for the most part, still considered themselves to be Roman, and they called the language that they spoke Romaic, although it was actually Greek. Yet, even though they thought of themselves as Roman, when the Goths sacked Rome itself, there was no help forthcoming from Constantinople. Essentially, the inhabitants of the eastern half of the empire hunkered down and consolidated their power. And this happened in a few key ways. First, in order to shore up their support, Byzantine rulers reduced taxes, always a popular move in any century. At the same time, however, they maintained a fairly steady income from taxes, as the East was not losing a significant portion of its tax base as the West was. The more territory the West lost to invaders, the smaller its revenue from taxes, which meant it was more difficult to maintain the military, which meant the West was more susceptible to invasion, which meant it was more likely to lose significant territory, which would in turn decrease its tax base, and I think you get the picture that what we have in the West is a kind of downward spiral. In the East, not only did the tax base remain fairly stable, but the wealth of the empire was greatly increased due to the fact that Constantinople was a major center of trade between East and West. As I discussed in a previous lecture, after 476, when there was no longer an emperor in the West, the emperors in the East claimed that essentially the Roman Empire had been reconstituted as a single whole rather than two halves, and the only thing that hindered making this a reality was the need to drive out the invaders from the West. Many emperors asserted that they were simply awaiting the time when they would have sufficient resources to bring the West back under imperial Roman control. When the Pope crowned Charlemagne as Holy Roman Emperor in the year 800, he was essentially doing an end run around the Eastern emperors, who had consistently acted as if they had the right to oversee the office of the papacy, even though it was based in Rome. One of the most important things that happened in Byzantium during the 5th and 6th centuries was that the emperors issued sets of laws. The first substantial set of these is called the Theodosian Code, after the emperor Theodosius II, and it appeared in the first half of the 5th century. In the 6th century, the emperor Justinian issued his own set of laws, the Corpus Juris Civilis, also called the Justinian Code. Above all else, this code emphasized the absolute right of the emperor. To quote from the code, The emperor alone can make laws. It should also be the province of the imperial dignity alone to interpret them. Justinian also made other significant moves that defined and refined the Byzantine Empire, and he arguably is the greatest force in terms of the development of the Byzantine Empire before the 10th century. 
He was an educated man, a religious man, and he had an eye for beauty. The most famous church of Constantinople, Hagia Sophia, had burned to the ground during a riot in 532, and Justinian ordered it rebuilt, employing a reported 10,000 workers and lavishly decorating it with real silver and gold. He also commissioned the church of San Vitale in Ravenna, the church that so influenced the emperor Charlemagne. In each of these structures were breathtaking mosaics that clearly depicted the emperor as God's earthly representative. And this he definitely believed, as we can see in his conflict over the religious doctrine known as monophysm. We've talked a little bit already about Christian heresies that were popular in the West, such as Arianism, which held that Christ, or God the Son, could not be as divine or co-equal with God the Father, and Pelagianism, which was the belief that one could earn one's way into heaven through doing good works. The Western Church had established as doctrine that Christ had two natures, one human, one divine. But many Egyptian and Syrian Christians subscribed to the belief that Christ had had only one nature, hence the name monophysism, mono, meaning one or alone, and physism, meaning form. Most monophysites believed that although Christ had both a human and divine nature, the human had been fully absorbed into the divine, ultimately leaving the Son of God with only one nature, the divine one. Justinian launched a persecution against the monophysites, in part because he wished for papal support for his claim to rule as emperor of both the East and the West. His emphatic position regarding monophysism, however, alienated some of the most important regions of the Eastern Empire, which would have huge significance later on. Most importantly, perhaps, Justinian moved to try and make good on the claim of the Eastern rulers that they now ruled over all of what had once been the Roman Empire. His armies reclaimed portions of North Africa, Spain, and Italy, but in the end, this insistence on reclaiming the western or Latin half of the former Roman Empire would hurt Byzantium, as would his persecution of monophysites. So focused was Justinian on reclaiming Rome that he increased taxes to fund increasingly long and difficult campaigns. In particular, his fight against the Goths, who had taken Rome in 410, lasted more than three decades, seriously draining the resources of the empire and earning him much dislike and enmity. Add to this that his focus on Rome led him to neglect enemies on the Byzantine border, such as the Persians, who were a constant threat, and this meant that after his death, Byzantium contracted bit by bit as the Persians, as well as groups such as the Slavs, Avars, and Bulgars encroached on its territories. Soon, it had lost all the territories that Justinian had won in North Africa and Spain. But the idea of empire was preserved in the capital of Constantinople, which was protected by thick, well-nigh impenetrable walls, some of which had been built by Emperor Theodosius in response to the sack of Rome by the Goths in 410. Constantinople survived because these walls surrounded not only the urban center, but a significant amount of farmland, so starvation was not an issue for the city when it was under siege. Still, the threats on multiple fronts needed to be addressed realistically, and one of Justinian's successors, 
the emperor Heraclius, who came to the throne in the year 610, realized that he would have to choose which enemy he was going to fight and which he was going to accommodate. He allowed various Slavic groups, as well as the Bulgars, to settle in the portion of Europe we call the Balkans today. He agreed to have only limited authority over them, a decision which allowed him to turn his attention to the more serious and pressing threat, the Sassanid Empire of Persia. One of this kingdom's most important leaders, King Khosrois II, had dreams of re-establishing the ancient Persian Empire ruled over by Xerxes and Darius. And in the early 7th century, he managed to conquer significant portions of Byzantine territory, including the cities of Damascus, Jerusalem, and then all of Egypt. Heraclius eventually defeated him, however, taking back into the Byzantine embrace those regions that had briefly been wrested away. As historian Barbara Rosenwine says, quote, on a map, it would seem that nothing much had happened. In fact, the cities fought over were depopulated and ruined, and both Sassanid and Byzantine troops and revenues were exhausted. One consequence of this fighting is the decline of urban centers in the east and a rise in what we will call ruralism. Concomitantly with this, we have an increase in religious fervor, most likely a response to the devastation that had been wreaked on so much of the Byzantine Empire. People were looking for answers, and as has been the case throughout history, one of their responses was an increase in piety. One of the manifestations of this new spiritual feeling was iconoclasm, a word that means the breaking of icons. Icons were a singularly Byzantine aspect of Christianity. Simply put, they were artistic representations of Christ, the Virgin Mary, various saints, etc., etc., and many Christians in the East treated their icons with reverence and, indeed, worship, believing them and the figures they represented to have intercessory powers with God. In the 7th and 8th centuries, Byzantine emperors passed laws banning adoration of icons and ordering their destruction. Icons became a hot-button issue, with feelings running strong on both sides, and this religious matter would further undermine any unity the Byzantine Empire had enjoyed. By this point, the western and eastern halves of the former Roman Empire had moved even farther away from each other. And although the memory of their shared heritage would be an important factor throughout the Middle Ages and beyond, the east and west would continue to drift apart, a movement that was accelerated with the rise of Islam. Islam began on the Arabian Peninsula in the early 7th century. The communities living in Arabia were primarily organized in terms of tribal affiliations and included nomadic groups such as camel and goat herders, farmers, especially in the southwest, where there was more rainfall than elsewhere on the peninsula. Included also traders and craftspeople, many of whom lived in communities focused around oases. The religious beliefs of pre-Islamic Arabia were a mix. Most people living there appeared to be polytheistic, worshipping a variety of gods and goddesses who were revered as particular protectors of this tribe or that. In the city of Mecca, for example, the holy shrine known as the Kaaba was surrounded by more than 300 idols representing these various deities. 
There was also, however, the concept of a supreme god, Allah, who was above all others. There were a few monotheistic communities of Christians and Jews living in Arabia as well, and it is important to remember that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all spring from the same root. Christianity, as we have already discussed, was long considered a branch or sect of Judaism in its early days. In Jewish tradition, the figure of Abraham is considered the father of the Israelites through his son Isaac, whom God famously asked him to sacrifice as a test of faith, sending an angel to stay his hand at the last moment. As Christianity developed out of Judaism, Abraham and Isaac are also centrally important to this faith, And indeed, the story of the sacrifice of Isaac has provided the source for some of the most beautiful and brilliant works of Christian art in the Middle Ages and beyond. Isaac was Abraham's son by his wife, Sarah. Abraham had another son by his wife's handmaid, Hagar, named Ishmael. According to tradition, Abraham was compelled by his wife to cast Ishmael and Hagar out into the desert. But God assured him that a great nation would be born from Ishmael's seed, and it is Ishmael who is regarded as an ancestor of the Arab people and indeed as the direct ancestor of Muhammad himself, Islam's prophet. Yet, although the greatest of Allah's prophets, Muhammad is not the only one. According to Islamic teaching, there were many prophets who paved the way for Muhammad. One of these is Jesus Christ, but in the Islamic tradition, obviously, he is not part of a holy trinity, as it is understood in Christianity. Muhammad was born in the area around Mecca in the second half of the 6th century, sometime around 570. He was orphaned while quite young, and he was taken in and raised by an uncle, who was an important leader of one of the most important tribes in Mecca, the Quraysh. He seems to have had a relatively normal, happy, and comfortable early life, becoming a trader, marrying, and having children. At the same time, however, it seems clear that he had a longing for something more, and in his adult life, he often retired to a cave on a mountain where he would meditate, reflect, and pray. It was here, sometime around the year 610, that the angel Gabriel spoke to Muhammad giving him messages that he then passed along to others of his community. By far, the most important of these was that there was only one God, Allah, and that he alone should be worshipped. These messages continued throughout Muhammad's life, and when written down, they became the Quran, the holy book of Islam. The Quran covers almost all of human experience, delineating codes of behavior and codifying moral and legal issues. The Qur'an was transformative for Arabian society, especially in terms of the position of women, in that it emphasized the nuclear family as the foundation of a community, rather than the tribe. Infanticide was banned, inheritance rights for women were spelled out, and although polygamy was approved, the Qur'an limited a man's wives to no more than four and stated that they should all be treated equally. While polygamy may not seem at first to be a positive arrangement for women, the impulse for allowing a man to have multiple wives and specifying how he should treat them rose from a perceived need to protect women, to offer as many women as possible the safety and security that came from living under the roof of one's husband. It solved the problem of what to do with unmarried women, who often had little in the way of a safety net in this society. 
As many historians have observed, what is interesting about Islam's emphasis on the immediate family is that a similar sort of shift in focus is occurring in the Byzantine Empire at roughly the same time. As I mentioned earlier, with the faltering of Byzantium and the decline of its cities, there was a new kind of emphasis on agriculture, and local powers for most citizens became more important than the centralized power that had once been located in Constantinople. With this shift away from urbanism and centralization came a renewed focus on family ties as a support in difficult or uncertain times. Family ties would also be incredibly important in the early days and later development of Islam. In the first stages of the development of the Muslim faith, tribal leaders around Mecca found this new religion threatening, especially in its insistence that pagan practices, many of them centered around the Kaaba, be abandoned. The pressure came from Meccan tribal leaders, and it became so intense that in 622, Muhammad made the Hijira, fleeing from Mecca to the city of Medina, where he had many followers and where he was soon established as both a religious and secular leader. The importance of the precedent Muhammad established in Medina, that of blending politics with religion, cannot be overstated, as it will be one of the defining aspects of Islam down through the centuries. Its importance is underscored by the fact that the date of the Hijira became the year one in the Muslim calendar. Muhammad rose to power by dominating and ousting the Jewish presence in Medina, allying himself with various nomadic groups, and engaging in a series of successful battles against leaders in Mecca, some of whom were his own relatives. In this way, he formed the Ummah, or the Community of the Faithful, and this community, after Muhammad's death, believed its most important directive was to defeat the enemies of God. In other words, they felt called upon to expand the Islamic world, although interestingly, when they did enlarge their territory, forced conversions of non-Muslims were relatively rare. And enlarge it they did. In the 7th century, they took over much of Persia, and then conquered the once great cities of the Byzantine Empire, including Alexandria, Antioch, Carthage, and Damascus. In the 8th and 9th centuries, many cities on the Mediterranean that had once been strongly Christian converted to Islam. And although communities of Christians and Jews, as well as other faiths, remained in the regions of North Africa and the Middle East to this day, it is also clear that the conversion of these regions was lasting and profound, as those same areas are considered the center of the Islamic world today. Perhaps the most interesting Islamic conquest in terms of our focus in this course is that of Spain in the year 711. After the conquest of Rome by the Visigoths in 410, they had spread out, pushing west into the Iberian Peninsula and north into France. They were pushed back down south by the Franks, and entrenched themselves there, and what is modern-day Spain became a Visigothic kingdom. The unity of this kingdom was only ever fragile at best, with struggles over succession often resulting in wholesale slaughter of entire branches of noble families. So fractured were the Visigoths that the whole kingdom was essentially brought to its knees by the killing of the Visigothic king in the early 8th century. Most of Spain 
was quickly conquered by Muslim leaders, and the Iberian Peninsula would remain predominantly Muslim until the 12th century. Although populations of Christians and Jews continued to live there, an important piece of evidence of Islamic tolerance of other monotheistic traditions, Spain is considered by some scholars to not really be part of Europe until the later Middle Ages. All of Europe throughout the Middle Ages is Christian, I once heard a professor say. What about Spain? A student asked. Spain doesn't count, the professor answered. It's really North Africa and not part of Europe at all. However, contact between the European and Islamic worlds would be a huge factor in the development of medieval society, and the presence of an Islamic community in Western Europe would play a significant role in that development. Yet, although Spain was ruled by Muslims, these rulers, called emirs, comprised a minority of the population. Their armies consisted mostly of non-Arab speakers, and in fact, the raid into Spain that had resulted in the death of the last Visigothic king had not really been an Arab raid. Rather, Muslim leaders had used a band of mostly North African Berbers, some of which had converted to Islam, but some of which had not, to effect their coup. Populations of Christians and Jews were allowed to remain in part because they provided a large tax income. Essentially, they had to pay for not being Muslim. There was intermarriage between Christians and Muslims, and there was also a blending of artistic traditions. The best-known example of this, perhaps, is the Great Mosque of Cordova. It borrowed its overall design from the Roman aqueduct at Merida, the shape of its arches from Visigothic traditions, and its decorative aspects, in this case alternating white and black stones, from the Great Mosque of Damascus in the Middle East. While Islamic Spain itself is fascinating as a contact point between disparate cultures, in terms of contact with the rest of Europe, its impact was fairly negligible throughout the early Middle Ages. It is only in the High Middle Ages, starting about the 11th century, that the rest of Europe really begins to notice and appreciate Spain as a center of learning and culture. Indeed, much of what we know about the Middle Ages in the West comes from sources that were preserved in Arab texts, and many advances in the West came about as a result of contact between European and Islamic society. After their numerous conquests by the mid-8th century, Muslim communities began to flourish, particularly in the areas of education, literature, medicine, science, and mathematics. There's a reason that we refer to the numbers we use as Arabic. The branch of mathematics known as algebra, for example, preserves in its very name traces of the people who first made significant advances in it. The works of the great Greek philosopher Aristotle were, until the 12th century, almost completely unknown in Western Europe. By contrast, in the 8th century in Syria, all of his works were translated into Arabic, making them accessible to Islamic scholars and philosophers. The Islamic world in the early Middle Ages was wealthy and cosmopolitan, rich in both agricultural resources and trade. Its cities were grand and impressive, and famed as centers of learning. By comparison, Western Europe looked like a provincial backwater. Still, all was not well in the Islamic world despite its many successes. 
Muhammad was succeeded by leaders known as caliphs, who significantly did not necessarily come from the most powerful tribes, but rather were drawn from Muhammad's closest circle of friends and confidants. The first two caliphs after Muhammad were both his fathers-in-law, and there was little trouble here. But soon, the young faith would be divided between leaders of two rival factions, and again, family was involved, particularly in-laws. The third caliph after Muhammad's death was his son-in-law, Uthman, who had married two of Muhammad's daughters. He was not well-liked, and those who opposed him favored another of Muhammad's sons-in-law as caliph. This son-in-law, Ali, had married the prophet's daughter, Fatima, and supporters of this branch of Islam came to be called Fatimids, after Fatima, or Shiite Muslims. Uthman's faction were known as the Umayyads, and in a later incarnation, elements of the Umayyads became known as Sunni Muslims. In the struggle over the position of caliph, both Uthman and Ali were killed. The Umayyads pushed west, and it is they who conquered Spain, properly called at this time by its Arabic name, Al-Andalus. And properly it's called Al-Andalus from about the 8th to the 12th centuries. In the east, the Umayyads were ousted by an order known as the Abbasids in the middle of the 8th century. This group moved the center of the Islamic world to Iraq and founded the city of Baghdad. And this, more than anything else, helped the Islamic world to flourish. Like Constantinople, Baghdad was a link between the east and west, and burgeoning trade made it a wealthy city. In the 10th century, however, conflicts between the Fatimids and other groups that were rising to power in the Islamic world undermined and eventually decimated the rich cultures that had risen in tandem with the spread of the new religion. The Fatimids, who were mostly in North Africa, began to push back into the east, leaving Spain to the Umayyads, while Iraq itself was attacked by a group known as the Carmathians, with the result being the destruction of the region's agricultural system, long one of its greatest sources of wealth. Without this, the caliphs could not pay their troops, but troops were exactly what they needed. As we head into the High Middle Ages, the period between roughly 1000 and 1300, both Byzantine and Islamic culture have a new emphasis on the importance of military strength above all else, something that will come to be hugely significant in terms of the medieval world as a whole. Back in the West, on the opposite end of what had once been the Roman Empire, a very different kind of violence from that which was taking place in the Byzantine and Islamic communities had thrown the medieval world into an uproar. This was the marauding, looting, and pillaging activities of the Scandinavian peoples we have come to call Vikings. What sparked their raiding activities has long been a matter of debate, but there is no debate about the profound impact these activities had on the peoples and communities who encountered these fearsome sea warriors. That impact will be the subject of our next lecture. Lecture 9, The Viking Invasions (laughs) 
Welcome back. In our previous lecture, we discussed the rise of the religion of Islam and the development of Muslim communities, as well as the significant changes in terms of social structure, militarism, and religious expression occurring in the Byzantine Empire. Although these societies obviously differed in significant ways, we discussed the importance of recognizing the legacy of Rome in the formation and development of Byzantium, Islam, and the West, and the importance also of thinking of these three entities as sibling cultures of Rome. As we head into the High Middle Ages, both Byzantine and Islamic culture placed a new emphasis on the importance of military strength above all else. Back in the West, on the opposite end of what had once been the Roman Empire, a very different kind of violence from that which was taking place in the Byzantine and Islamic communities had thrown the medieval world into an uproar. This was the marauding, looting, and pillaging activities of the Scandinavian peoples we have come to call Vikings. What sparked their raiding activities has long been a matter of debate, but there is no debating the profound impact these activities had on the people and communities who encountered these fearsome sea warriors. On a day in early June in 793, a raiding party of Scandinavian seafarers attacked the monastery of Lindisfarne. A remote piece of land off the northeast coast of England, which became an island twice a day at high tide, Lindisfarne Abbey had been established by the Irish St. Aidan in the early 7th century, sometime around the year 635, and had become a justly famous center of learning and a repository of great wealth, both in terms of the monetary value of many of the precious objects it housed and in religious terms, in that it was the resting place of St. Cuthbert, who had also been its bishop at one point. Artistically speaking, it is perhaps most famous for the so-called Lindisfarne Gospels, an illuminated manuscript of breathtaking skill and beauty executed at the monastery. Originally written in Latin in the early 700s, a later hand added a gloss or translation of the text in Old English in the margins, making this the oldest surviving version of the Gospels in English. Those Scandinavian seafarers who landed at Lindisfarne on June 8, 793, were not interested in books or Christianity. They were pagans, non-Christians, who were after treasure, mainly easily portable objects of gold and especially silver, and to them there was no sacrilege in attacking a religious institution, to them, monasteries were simply large treasure houses that housed a population of men unable or unwilling to properly defend it. The sack of Lindisfarne was a particularly violent episode in which monks, priests, and livestock were slaughtered, sacred relics were smashed, and the survivors were taken as slaves. Alcuin, the British monk whom Charlemagne had brought to his palace school at Aachen as part of his agenda to make the Carolingian Empire a center of learning and education in the medieval world, wrote in response to the Viking attack, Never before has such terror appeared in Britain as we have now suffered from a pagan race. Nor was it thought that such an inroad from the sea could be made. Behold, the church of St. Cuthbert, spattered with the blood of the priests of God, despoiled of all its ornaments, a place more venerable than all in Britain, is given as prey to pagan peoples. 
For a long time, the sack of Lindisfarne was considered by many to be the start of what has come to be called the Viking Age. More recently, evidence has been unearthed that shows peoples from Scandinavia were setting out from their homelands to explore, trade, and in a few cases most likely to raid, starting much earlier, around the first decade of the 8th century. Whether or not one considers outward movement from Scandinavia of any kind to mark the start of what we might call the Viking Age, or whether one considers raiding and plundering specifically to be the hallmark of what it means to go a Viking, as the term was, we can all agree that the sack of Lindisfarne is an important event in this history. If it didn't mark the beginning of the Viking Age, then at the very least, it most certainly defined it in a way that any earlier ventures had not. The attack on Lindisfarne incorporated all of the major elements that would come to be associated with what one thinks of when one considers Vikings in the modern popular imagination, and we will use the events at Lindisfarne as a way to explore those qualities often conceived of as Viking in greater detail. But in order to understand what we mean when we refer to Vikings or the Viking Age, we need to back up a little and define some of our terms. The people we refer to as Vikings were almost without exception Scandinavian, Norse, Swedish, and Danish, but not all Scandinavians were Vikings. In fact, most Scandinavians in the 8th century were farmers and fishermen. The term Viking first shows up in, of all places, an old English document known as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. And here it seems to refer to raiders who came by sea who were of Scandinavian origin. It seems unlikely that there was any sort of pan-Viking identity as such, and it also seems unlikely that in the 8th century, these raiders would have even gone so far as to think of themselves as having a national identity like Danish or Swedish or Norse. They most likely would have had local loyalties and allegiance to a particular chieftain or leader. But it is during what has come to be known as the Viking period that these national identities begin to form and consolidate and so it remains a crucial period for understanding the development of the entities we think of today as Norway, Denmark, Sweden, etc. So, if they did not share a common sense of identity, what did these raiders share? Well, the sack of Lindisfarne gives us a good idea about the elements that were essential parts of Viking culture. Perhaps the first and most important component of the Viking identity is the amazing sea craft they used to launch their raids. Archaeological evidence going back to the 4th century AD shows that the peoples living in the area of the North and Baltic seas were master shipbuilders. And by the 8th century and the beginning of what we might call the Viking diaspora, they had raised this craft to an art form. Viking longships were generally narrow, built of thin, overlapping oak planks, and their design was such that they could flex and bend in a way that many modern boats, which simply absorb the impact of waves, could not. They sliced through the water with a team of strong rowers propelling them along, and when sails were added to their design, it is calculated that they could move at a rate of 10 knots. They also had a very shallow draft. It seems that a depth of 3 feet of water 
was all that most Viking ships, even those carrying as many as 50 men, needed in order to move through the water. The shallow draft, flexibility, and speed meant that the Vikings almost always had the element of surprise in their favor, as they could seem to appear from nowhere. This appears to be what happened at Lindisfarne. When you examine the particulars of Lindisfarne's geographical location and the wealth it was known to house, it's amazing the Vikings waited as long as they did to attack. This tidal island has several beaches perfect for landing a boat, is easily visible from a great distance at sea, and was close enough to the usual realm of Scandinavian seafaring activity to make it an almost irresistible target. The Vikings who attacked Lindisfarne in 793 probably made great use of the element of surprise, probably taking down their sail and resorting to rowing as they drew closer, a move that, in combination with a Viking ship's generally low profile in the water, would mean the monks wouldn't have seen them until they were just moments away from attack. After Lindisfarne, Viking exploration and raiding exploded throughout the medieval world of Western Europe and beyond. No one is quite sure why there was this sudden outward expansion from Scandinavia, although most feel it is likely that some sort of overpopulation drove the Vikings to seek out new lands to settle and new ways of generating income. England and the coast of continental Europe, particularly the Carolingian Empire, were mostly plagued by Danes. In fact, no matter their origins, all Viking raiders in England were usually referred to collectively as Danes, as we will be reminded when we discuss Alfred the Great's establishment of peace with the Vikings in the 10th century by ceding to them a portion of Britain which became known as the Dane Law, or in other words, the part of the island where the laws of the Danes, the Vikings, were in effect. Vikings established settlements at York and made Dublin a center of Viking trade in the 9th century. And trade included not only goods, but slaves as well. It was mostly Swedes who penetrated deep into the European continent, traveling all the way to Russia and the Orient. Contemporary accounts, including one by the Arab traveler and writer Ibn Fadlan, describe a people known as the Rus, who traded furs, practiced ritual sacrifice, and were such renowned fighters that they were recruited as members of the Emperor of Constantinople's elite protective force, the Varangian Guard. It seems likely that these Rus, as they were called, who were clearly expert navigators of the river systems of modern Russia, such as the Don, the Dnieper, were the ones who gave this part of the world the name Russia a fact that for many years was hotly contested in Soviet and Russian intellectual circles, as the leaders there preferred to think of their origins as being from Slavic rather than Scandinavian warriors. The Norse tended to look to the West, and it seems indisputable now that 500 years or more before Columbus set out to discover the so-called New World, the seafaring Norse had already established a settlement there. Archaeological evidence at a site in Newfoundland, known as Lanso Meadows, clearly indicates a Scandinavian settlement, and most scholars agree that the size and nature of the settlement suggest that it was settled by a leader who was most likely the famous Leifer Eriksson, commonly called Leif Eriksson. 
According to the Norse sagas, around the year 1000, Leif Eriksson sets off in search of lands rumored to be west of Greenland, and he encounters territories that he names Hetluland, Markland, and Vinland. Some evidence suggests that the Viking settlers engaged with, in trade with the native North Americans, but within a short time, the North American settlement was abandoned, carefully and deliberately, it seems, as there is very little left behind. It appears that the Scandinavian settlers felt that there was little benefit to remaining in Newfoundland, and they returned to more familiar locales. It is a similar story with Greenland. According to tradition, Greenland was discovered by Eric the Red, Leifer Eriksson's father, around 981. He persuaded a group of about 300 settlers to return there with him. About half of them made it, and there was a more or less continuous presence there until about the middle of the 14th century, when the settlements there were abandoned, and not in the orderly fashion one can see in North America at Lanso Meadows. The failure of the Viking communities here seems to be in part because the settlers were unable to adapt to changing climatic conditions and refused to adopt the survival techniques that the native Greenlanders, Inuits, closely related to North American Eskimos, used to survive. They also seem to have had some armed confrontations with the native Greenlanders. Whatever the reason, the abandonment of the Greenland Viking settlements marks the end of the Scandinavian push to the west. One of the more interesting chapters of the Viking story is the settlement of Iceland, a portion of the Viking narrative that often gets lost in the broader story of their amazing seamanship, pillaging, and plundering, ferocious warrior skills, and wide-ranging trade activities, which, as we've seen, included practically the whole known world and also parts that were still considered unknown by those living in Western Europe. In the late 9th century, a Norseman by the name of Ingolfer Arnerson was exiled from Norway because of his participation in a blood feud. According to legend, Arnerson tossed a wooden beam over the side of a ship and then followed it until it washed ashore in Iceland, in the spot that is supposedly modern-day Reykjavik. Although some accounts say there were a few Irish Christian hermits living in Iceland at the time, it was, for all intents and purposes, completely unpopulated. Iceland is a geneticist and a genealogist's dream, as there is really only one initial wave of colonization, and after that, while people may leave, very few new groups of peoples choose to immigrate to Iceland in the Middle Ages. Modern DNA analysis proves what was long suspected, which is that on the way to settling in Iceland, many Vikings stopped by the British Isles, probably Dublin or York, which were Viking settlements and centers of slave trade, and there they picked up some women, willingly or not. Modern DNA analysis suggests of the early settlers in Iceland 75% of the men were of Scandinavian extraction, but only 35% of the women were, and that it is likely that most of the women who settled Iceland in the early days were of Irish or Scottish descent. After the Viking men collected these wives, they continued on to their new home, which, even at the best of times, was not terribly hospitable. Farming of grains or vegetables was not really possible given the short growing season so far north, and within a few generations or less, it seems clear that whatever timber 
had been growing in Iceland had been cut down so that the landscape was almost completely denuded. Animal husbandry, particularly in the form of horses, sheep, and cows, and the sea, provided most of the Icelanders' sustenance. It is an indication of the realities of life in this place that a traditional delicacy known as hatkarl is shark that has been buried for six months so that it has become putrefied sufficiently so that it's edible. Inhabited by people eminently practical and resourceful, not to mention strong in both body and will, Iceland is interesting in terms of the medieval world mainly for two reasons, its politics and its literature. The terrain of Iceland, volcanic here, glacial there, high desert-like in other places, meant that the early settlers were spread out over a great distance and clustered mainly along the coastlines. At first, disputes between households were often settled by raids, but in the year 930, the medieval world saw what could be called its very first parliamentary meeting. Once a year, almost all of Iceland, but especially the most powerful men of their particular communities, known as Godar, would come to the open plain at Thingvetlir, where they would convene to settle disputes, make laws, and pass sentence on those who had been found guilty. Thingvetlir has the distinction of being one of the few places in the world where you can actually see plate tectonics in action. The European and North American plates are pulling away from each other at the rate of about two millimeters a year, creating a rift that also, conveniently enough, serves as a path from the visitor center down toward the plain of Thingvetlir itself. The most important spot within Thingvetlir was something called the Lugburg, or Law Rock, and one of the most important figures was the Lugsugermather, or Law Speaker, who every year would recite the laws from atop the Law Rock. This was an illiterate society, so it was important that someone had this information committed to memory, and important also that the laws be recited in the hearing of all so that no one could claim ignorance of the law as an excuse for committing a crime. Given the amount of darkness during the winter months, on some days it's said the sun doesn't even really come up over the horizon, all you get is a hint of light, what they call the gleam, it should be no surprise that the early Icelanders spent that time committing their very colorful history to memory, and that they would create a body of literature the likes of which is truly rare among the stories that emerge from the medieval world. Frequently, the one became part of the other, and it is hard to tell where history stops and fiction begins in the Icelandic sagas. Even to this day, when Iceland is a thoroughly modernized and Christianized country, and before the recent economic collapse, they were known as the happiest country in the world, there are holdovers from its unique settlement and history. For example, when engineers lay a road, they check with those who are familiar with such things to make sure that the path they've plotted in no way disturbs the hidden folk, what we might think of as elves or trolls, as belief in such creatures seems to be standard and accepted. The story of Iceland and its transformation into supposedly, or recently, relatively recently, the happiest nation in the modern world, could be considered a triumph of all the greatest strengths of Viking culture. Hardiness, skilled seamanship, a curiosity and zest for exploration, and a particular kind of internal fortitude. 
As much as Viking culture has been glorified in recent years, particularly with festivals celebrating the Viking world in places like York and Dublin, where one can buy items like Eric the Red bottle openers, we would do well to remember the less romantic and noble qualities of those who went a Viking. These were fierce warriors and merciless fighters who burned, looted, pillaged, and raped their way through much of the British Isles, the Carolingian Empire, and beyond. Late in their history, they found a way of continuing to enrich themselves without bothering to strike a blow by demanding that communities threatened by them pay a bribe in order to be spared an attack. So frequently were these payments demanded by Viking raiders that the English and Carolingians had a special name for it, the Dane Guild, or literally Dane Gold, the money you would pay to the Danes in order to get them to go away. Depending on your point of view, this strategy was either one of great cleverness or a mark that those who bore the sobriquet Viking were getting a little lazy. A great example of the typical Viking approach to raiding, especially in the later period, is given in the late 10th century Old English poem called The Battle of Malden, which we've already discussed a little in a previous lecture. This poem recounts the events of a day in the year 991 when a Viking army showed up at Malden, in what is today the region of Essex in England. The Vikings established a base on an island at the mouth of a tidal river, today known as the Blackwater. At low tide, this island, Northy Isle, is connected to the mainland by a very narrow causeway that disappears underwater at high tide. This was a typical Viking strategy to set up a base of operations at a location that was easily defensible, like an island, And as I said, by this point in their raiding and plundering activities, they were so feared that very often they didn't even need to strike a blow. They would show up, demand a payoff from the locals, and go away. Now, the problem with this, obviously, was that just because one community paid them off and that community was safe didn't mean that they wouldn't just sail up the river a little further and attack someone else. And this problem is at the heart of a major debate about what happened at Malden. An English nobleman named Birknoth had gathered an army of nobles and peasants to oppose the Viking invaders, and they were waiting on the shore across from Northy Isle. Because the causeway is so narrow, you can really only walk three abreast, the English had an advantage, as they would just be able to pick the Vikings off as they came across the causeway. According to the poem, the Viking leader called across the water to Birtnov, urging him to send treasure in the form of rings as a bribe to the enemy army. Famously, Birtnov replies, Ye hearst thus, Salida, what this folk saith? He willeth yo to gafala garas stulen. Or, do you hear, seafarer, what these people say? They wish to give you spears as tribute. He goes on to tell the Viking leader that he feels it would be a shame for the Vikings to have come all this way and not get the fight they were looking for. And then, the poet tells us, Birtnoth makes a decision because of something called Othermod, which translates roughly as something like too much pride or excessive self-assurance. And his decision is to allow the Vikings to come across the causeway without being attacked and then form ranks so that a proper battle may begin. 
And in that battle, the English suffer a devastating defeat in which their numbers are decimated and some of the English nobles actually flee the battle in fear. The poet takes special care to note that it was a noble named Godric and his brothers who essentially turned the tide in favor of the Vikings by fleeing the conflict and undermining the confidence of those English who remained. The poet takes care also when discussing a different Godric to note that this man is not at all the same Godric who committed such a shameful and cowardly act. Now, for a long time, there was a general scholarly consensus that Birtnoth had made a foolish decision in allowing the Vikings to come ashore and that the poem was condemning him for this action. At the same time, however, the poem is unusual as a whole in that it is a celebration in large measure of a defeat. But what is being celebrated is the fact that although it was common practice to pay off the Vikings, one group of English took a stand against them and refused to shame themselves by buying off the enemy. The other point, and this is a very important consideration when we're talking about Vikings, is that Birtnoth had an army gathered at Malden. If he refused the Vikings' request to come safely ashore to line up for the battle, all the Vikings would have had to do would be get in their famously navigable boats and sail a little further up the river to a town that did not have an army ready and waiting to defend it. Viewed in this light, Birtnoth did the only brave and honorable thing possible when confronted with opponents who were known to have names such as Eric Bloodaxe and Thorfinn Skullsplitter. In time, the Vikings transformed from fierce marauders who traveled by water, plundering, looting, and pillaging, to people in settled communities who turned their attention back toward more domestic pursuits like farming. But even at their most bloodthirsty, surprisingly, they seemed to have been fastidious when it came to certain aspects of personal hygiene. Several excavated Viking graves, for example, have yielded up devices known as ear spoons, used for cleaning the wax out of one's ears. Untrimmed fingernails also seem to have provoked particular horror. Loki, one of the Norse gods, and not the nicest fellow, famously travels around in a ship which is made out of the untrimmed fingernails of dead men. One place in which the transformation of Vikings from marauders to citizens happened, and which will be very important in our later lecture on the Norman conquest of England, was in the part of France that is today known as Normandy. As one might guess from the name, Normandy is the region that was ceded to the Northmen, who were led by a man named Hrolfa. The Carolingians, unable to pronounce his name, called him Rollo, and in 911, the Carolingians were able to strike a deal with him. They would allow him to keep control of Normandy as long as he agreed to rule over it in the name of the Carolingian Empire. They made him a count, he changed his name to Robert, and he converted to Christianity. And then something even more interesting happened. Over the course of the next 150 years, the Northmen living in Normandy ceased to be culturally Norse and became more culturally French. Although they remembered and treasured their connections with the other royal houses of the Germanic world, particularly the English royal house, with which the Dukes of Normandy would intermarry, they were, in essence, no longer Vikings, no longer Norse, no longer Scandinavian in many important respects, 
a fact that would have profound repercussions when William the Conqueror, scion of the House of Rollo, would invade England in 1066. But long before that, the Vikings would temporarily meet their match in England when confronted with the shrewd cunning of King Alfred of Wessex, a man never expected to sit on the throne, and whose achievements would earn him the epithet the Great, the only English monarch to be so styled. We turn next to this fascinating man and the world he created. Lecture 10, Alfred the Great. Welcome back. In our previous lecture, we discussed the awesome and terrifying threat posed by those Scandinavian seafarers known as the Vikings. Marauders and pillagers, sometimes little more than pirates. They were also great and occasionally hygienically fastidious explorers, journeying into parts of what is modern-day Russia, establishing and settling Iceland, and traveling to North America almost 500 years before Christopher Columbus, quote-unquote, discovered the New World. Yet, while they penetrated throughout the medieval world and beyond, much of their activity occurred in the medieval West, particularly in parts of the Carolingian Empire and the British Isles. In Britain, an unlikely king put a stop to their activities and achieved peace, albeit only temporarily, with the Viking invaders. That king was named Alfred. King Alfred of the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of Wessex is the only English monarch to be given the moniker the Great. And as we will see, there is good reason for this. But as we will also see, the fact that he not only became king, but also arguably became the greatest king of the English, was not at all to be expected given his family circumstances. The specific situation of Wessex in relationship to the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and the serious threats posed by the Vikings. Alfred was born into the royal house of Wessex in the year 848. At this time, there were four main Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. North of the River Humber and south of what is today Scotland was the kingdom of Northumbria. Directly south of that was Mercia, and to the east of Mercia was the realm of East Anglia. In the south of the British Isles was the kingdom of Wessex, which had at the time of Alfred's death, expanded beyond its traditional borders to the east to encompass the regions of Surrey, Sussex, Berkshire, Kent, and Essex, while to the west it had brought the largely Celtic region of Cornwall under its control. Wales, to the north and west of the West Saxon kingdom, remained strongly Celtic. At his birth, no one could have predicted that Alfred would sit on the throne. He was the youngest of King Ethelwolf's five sons. Now, the Anglo-Saxons managed to avoid the problems that the Merovingians and Carolingians constantly encountered in that they did not divide power, wealth, and property among all surviving sons. One son tended to inherit everything, although the Anglo-Saxons did not practice a strict form of primogeniture. Any prince, or Etheling, 
had the potential to ascend to the throne, and occasionally we see second or third sons coming to rule. Something that might happen if such a son had proved himself to be a particularly effective warrior, or an elder son had a disability of some sort. But more often than not, it is eldest sons that inherit everything in Anglo-Saxon England. So, as the youngest of five, the possibility of Alfred coming to the throne seemed slim at best. But not one of his brothers lived past the age of thirty. Most of them were killed fighting the Vikings, and so in 871, the last scion of the House of Wessex became king of the West Saxons, and what a king he was! The legacy of Alfred's rule can be seen mainly in seven areas, which we will talk about in greater detail in a moment. These are first, his defeat of the Vikings; second. His systematic fortification of Anglo-Saxon England to protect it from invasion. Third, his creation of a naval fleet. Fourth, his codification of English law. Fifth, his promotion of education. Sixth, his support of the church, and last but certainly not least, his position as a patron of the arts, which produced something scholars call the Alfredian Renaissance. Even if his family tree and the circumstances that propelled Alfred onto the throne did not presage the amazing feats he would achieve during his reign, his biography, written by one of his bishops, a Welshman named Asser, suggests that from an early age Alfred of Wessex was destined for greatness. Asser tells several stories of Alfred's youth that would seem to foretoken those virtues. That have long been associated with this hero of the English. For example, he relates the story of Alfred's mother, who showed to all her sons a beautiful book of poems. She told them that whoever read or learnt it first could have it. According to the story, Alfred, the youngest brother, took it to his tutor, learned it, and then proved to his mother that he was the first to have completed the challenge she had assigned them. Now we're not sure exactly what this means. Did he learn the poems by heart, or did he simply learn how to read them? In part, this difficulty in determining the true meaning of the story is due to the fact that the surviving copies of Asser's biography of the king are in a rough, unfinished Latin that also at times is overwhelmingly verbose. The other issue with this story is that it may not be true. Given the fact that we are also told that the young Alfred made two lengthy trips to Rome, and based on the date of his mother's death, the event with the book would have had to have taken place around the time Alfred was six years old. If it is true, he was a truly precocious child. At the very least, we can be sure that Asser included this story, true or not, because it helped to demonstrate that. Alfred's concern with literacy and education was born very early in his life. Another story Asser tells is of Alfred's first pilgrimage to Rome, an event also recorded in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which was one of Asser's main sources and which really existed only because of Alfred's desire that there be such an historical record. We are told that in the year 853, when Alfred was four or five, 
He was sent to Rome by his father, where Pope Leo IV consecrated him as king. Again, although it appears that Alfred really did go to Rome, it seems unlikely that whatever happened with the pope was, in fact, a royal consecration. It might, in fact, have been a confirmation in the Christian faith. Alfred had older brothers aplenty, and although it would not be impossible for him to be designated heir to the throne, as Anglo-Saxon success, succession customs allowed for any prince or ethling to inherit. Alfred's father was nearing the end of his life, and constant warfare would make it seem likely that that life might not run a natural course anyway. It would have been foolish to pass the throne to a five-year-old when there were older, more experienced and martially skilled sons who were obviously fit to rule. But Asser's story serves the purpose of making it seem as if Alfred's eventual reign as king and all the marvelous things he did as ruler of the West Saxons and eventually all the Anglo-Saxons were in some sense foreordained. So Alfred came to the throne of Wessex in 871 after the death of his brother, King Ethelred. He managed to secure a peace with the Viking invaders, but it lasted only four years. And in 875, the Danes, as the Vikings were called by the Anglo-Saxons, renewed their attacks. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Alfred was a supporter of the church and of education, and he saw the Viking attacks as being connected with the decay of religious practice and learning in the Anglo-Saxon world. Interestingly, however, he did not think, as one might expect, that constant harassment of the English on the part of the Danes had caused religion and learning to decline, but rather, he thought of it the other way around. The decline of religion and learning had ultimately made the Viking attacks possible. He was a deeply pious man who supposedly asked God from a very early age that he be sent a variety of physical ailments that would help him control his carnal lust. One such affliction sent by God was hemorrhoids, but as this interfered with his fighting ability, he asked that this affliction be removed and another be given, a prayer that God apparently granted, according to his biographer, Asser. For all his piety, however, he was pragmatic. The Vikings were not Christian, and Alfred recognized that getting their leaders to swear oaths of peace on Bibles or Christian relics, such as saints' bones, was not going to have any binding effect. He tried to defeat the Vikings using their own logic. After one battle in 876, he had their leader swear on a ring holy to the Vikings. Supposedly, it was Thor's ring. Uh, and he had them swear on this ring that they would maintain a peace. To further ensure the continuance of a truce, both sides on this occasion exchanged hostages. Now, this was a common practice in the medieval period, especially in Anglo-Saxon England. The idea was that you sent, say, five or ten of your high-ranking men into the keeping of your enemy, and he sent the same number to you. The fact that these hostages could be killed at any provocation or perceived breaking of the treaty was supposed to keep everyone honest. But as clever as Alfred's strategy seemed to be, on this occasion, it failed. The Vikings killed their hostages, fled from Alfred's realm, and before the king was aware of what had happened, they had taken Exeter and fortified it against Alfred and his army. Eventually, Alfred was victorious in this conflict, 
But just a couple of years later, he was almost killed when a Viking raid took him completely by surprise. In haste, he fled into the Ethelney Marshes in the region of Britain known as Somerset. And there he lived in hiding as he tried to come up with a strategy to defeat his enemy. This is perhaps the most famous story concerning Alfred and is akin in the English tradition to the story in the United States of young George Washington chopping down a cherry tree. The story goes that while on the run from the Vikings in the fens of Athelney, Alfred took refuge in the hut of a swineherd and his wife, keeping his identity a secret from them. One morning, the wife asked Alfred to keep watch over some cakes that she was cooking while she left the house. Alfred was so preoccupied with his military strategy against the Danes that he allowed the cakes to burn, for which the housewife scolded him severely. Supposedly, Alfred bore her scolding meekly, and in return for his Job-like patience, he was rewarded with divine assistance that eventually allowed him to defeat the Viking army. In fact, if you ask English school children, school children today what they know about King Alfred, the response you are most likely to get is something like, he drove the Danes out of Wessex and he burnt some cakes. Another story has Alfred generously offering to share part of his meal with a stranger he encounters during his period of hiding. The stranger turns out to be St. Cuthbert, who in turn, of course, later comes to Alfred's aid and gives him crucial information to help him defeat the Viking army. Yet another story has Alfred disguising himself as a traveling entertainer, a juggler, or minstrel, and strolling into the Viking camp, where, in between entertaining the Vikings for several days, he learned their plans and war strategy, and thus was able to come up with a plan of his own to defeat them. And of course, defeat them, he did. He did more than that, however. He, in effect, laid the foundation for England as we know it today. After defeating the Viking leader Guthrum in 878 at the Battle of Addington, he made one of the conditions of the peace be that Guthrum accept Christian baptism, which the Viking leader did, with Alfred standing as his godfather. Alfred recognized that, like it or not, the Vikings were in England to stay, and so he proposed a division of land, essentially ceding the eastern portion of the Kingdom of Mercia to the Vikings. This portion of Britain became known as the Dane Law, a term which signified that it was in this area that the laws of the Danes, rather than those of the English, were in effect, and which we've discussed briefly in a previous lecture. Alfred also recognized, however, that the Viking threat continued to be a real one, and he took steps to further protect his people. One of these was the creation of a series of fortified towns, or burrs, scattered throughout his realm. These fortified spaces, the burrs, spelled B-U-R-H-S, is the source of our modern word burg or bury, and it's often attached to place names, Pittsburgh, Canterbury, and other cities too numerous to mention. If you look at a map, you can see that Alfred's fortifications are roughly equidistant from one another, and thus provided a remarkable system of safe havens to which people could retreat during times of conflict. This system of fortifications is known as the Burgle Hidage. 
A hide was an Anglo-Saxon measurement of land, usually thought to comprise about 120 acres, the amount of farmland that could support a single family. As we've already discussed, the Vikings posed such a substantial threat in part because of their amazing seamanship. Viking vessels were easily maneuverable with a shallow draft, which meant they could quickly navigate up narrow rivers, taking rich communities there by surprise. Recognizing that he would have to deal with the threat from the water, Alfred also commissioned a fleet of ships to augment his other defenses, and thus he has become known as the father of the English navy. Law was another area in which Alfred had a lasting impact on Anglo-Saxon society. He clarified and codified early Anglo-Saxon law codes, compiling them all in his Book of Dooms. Now, doom is an old English word that means simply judgment or law. So, the Book of Dooms is not as frightening a text as it might sound at first. Alfred's law code provides a fascinating look at certain aspects of Anglo-Saxon society. For example, He builds on an earlier law code to standardize penalties known as wergeld and bot. Wergeld means simply mangold or man price, and the institution of wergeld arose in Anglo-Saxon England as a strategy for ending the practice of blood feud, whereby if a member of a particular family was killed, His kin might take revenge by killing one member of the killer's family, who might in turn take revenge by killing a member of the family of the man originally killed. And well, you get the picture. Wergeld codes established a price for every life, and Bolt was similar in that it established the cost of specific injuries, so that instead of families killing each other, one would be required to pay the other, and the matter would be considered settled. The lists of wergeld prices tell us something about the makeup of Anglo-Saxon society, as well as where many of their values lay. The penalties for various injuries make fascinating reading. For example, the law code originally instituted by King Ethelbert of Kent states that quote, "If any one strike another with his fist on the nose, three shillings. If someone causes a bruise to another person, the cost was a shilling." But if the bruise was black and was on a part of the body not covered by clothing, additional payment needed to be made. To cut off someone's ear would cost twelve shillings, but causing someone to lose hearing in one ear would cost you more than twice that. The hierarchical nature of Anglo-Saxon society was quite clearly reinforced in the codes. For example, a nobleman's life was worth twelve hundred shillings, but that of a peasant, two hundred. Women who were of childbearing age had a higher wergeld than that of young girls or women past childbearing. The killing of a slave usually did not require payment, but paying a small fee was considered the polite thing to do. Alfred himself showed concern for slaves by decreeing in his laws that on the Wednesday, four weeks before Easter, slaves should be excused from performing any labor. A word is in order here concerning slavery in Anglo-Saxon England. The word slavery conjures up, for most Americans, the tradition of race-based lifelong slavery as we know it from our own history. It was somewhat different in Anglo-Saxon England. While the fact that one of the early English words for slave is Welsh, from which comes the word Welsh, 
tells us that certain groups were targeted as slaves in early medieval England. Anglo-Saxons themselves could also be slaves, either as a result of a military defeat, which happened when various Anglo-Saxon factions fought against one another from time to time, or one could be made a slave sometimes as punishment for a crime. For certain offenses, a person might be put into bondage, sometimes for a specified period of time, sometimes for life. Unlike in the United States, slavery in Anglo-Saxon England was a fluid rather than static position. One might be born a slave but achieve freedom through various means. One might be a slave for a short period due to some crime committed, and occasionally one might offer oneself up as a slave as a strategy for survival. This was frequently the case during periods of famine or other disasters. People might approach the local lord or lady and in a ceremony that solemnified the transaction, would kneel before the nobleman or woman who would place his or her hands on the supplicant's head. In the will of an Anglo-Saxon noblewoman from the 10th century, we see evidence of this, in that the lady decrees that she has freed from servitude, quote, Echard the blacksmith, and Elfstan, and his wife, and all their offspring, born or unborn, and Archil, and Cole, and Edgeforth, and Aldhun's daughter, all those people whose heads she took for their food in those evil days. Alfred himself certainly believed that his society had fallen on evil times, and one of the signs of the decay of Saxon society to him was a sorry state of learning in his kingdom. As you may have gathered, There are many similarities between Alfred and Charlemagne, whose rule predated the Anglo-Saxon kings by about a century. Indeed, in composing his biography of Alfred, Asser used Einhard's biography of Charlemagne as a model, and in a few instances seems to have lifted entire passages from the account of the life of the Carolingian ruler and imported them into his own account of the West Saxon ruler's life. As much as this would seem to be egregious plagiarism, to a certain degree it makes sense, since these two figures had such similar concerns for their realms. And one of the areas in which they are most similar is in their desire to create a system of education. But while Charlemagne focused on collecting and copying some of the greatest works to be found in the Latin tradition, Alfred was remarkable and that he wished to gather such important manuscripts and then translate them into West Saxon, making them accessible to a greater portion of the population. He himself translated several texts out of Latin into Anglo-Saxon, including Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People, The Pastoral Care, written by Pope Gregory as a guide for religious leaders, and the dialogues of Pope Gregory the Great, among others. In his preface to the pastoral care, Alfred explains why he has undertaken this program, noting that once upon a time, England had been a great center from learning, and people had come from all over to learn and study there. Once upon a time, quote, Before they were all ravaged and burnt, I had seen how the churches throughout England stood filled with treasures and books, and there was also a multitude of God's servants. They had very little benefit from those books because they could not understand anything of them because they were not written in their own language. 
It is as if they had said, Our forefathers, who formerly held these places, loved knowledge, and through it they acquired wealth and left it to us. One can see their footprints here still, but we cannot follow after them. And therefore, we have lost both the wealth and the knowledge because we would not set our minds to the course. End quote. In this preface, Alfred goes on to propose that certain books considered critically important should be translated into English and that all free men be provided with the opportunity to learn to read these texts in their native Anglo-Saxon. Particularly promising students could then go on to the study of Latin. In addition, Alfred established the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which exists today in seven different versions. These chronicles are fascinating in the way that they are all in agreement with the first series of events set down in them. They demonstrate a clear West Saxon bias, giving a significant amount of space to the rules of Alfred, his father and grandfather, and up until the year 890 or so, they are roughly the same. At a certain point, however, they were deliberately dispersed throughout England to various monasteries, each of which added events as they occurred, and each of which displayed a local bias toward its particular region. Part of Alfred's education program involved promotion of the church, and in this effort, he ordered monasteries to be rebuilt, many of which had been ravaged by Viking invaders who, as pagans, viewed them as treasure houses ripe for the picking, inhabited by men who were not often able to mount any sort of effective defense. Much as Charlemagne had recruited learned scholars from across the Channel, particularly the Briton Alcuin of York, Alfred also sought to attract the greatest minds of his age, bringing in the most learned men to be found within Britain and on the continent to help implement his program of education. He also, like Charlemagne, wished to make his court a place of culture and learning, and his promotion of art and literature his ambitious plan to educate all freeborn men, his program of translation, and his importing to the greatest scholarly minds of the day led to what has been termed the Alfredian Renaissance. Smaller in scale than the Carolingian Renaissance, but a flowering of culture the likes of which had not been seen in Britain for quite some time. With all of these programs, and most importantly, with his peace that he established through the creation of the Danelaw, Alfred ceases to be king of the West Saxons and becomes king of the Anglo-Saxons. Alfred's successes in battle against the Vikings and this division of land would set the stage for his grandson, Ethelstan the Glorious, to become the first real king of England. Those Danes who had settled in the region known as the Danelaw fairly quickly became assimilated into English society. As I noted in our last lecture, Viking is not really a term that refers to any ethnic group. Rather, it denotes an occupation, that of a sea raider, a kind of pirate, who is of Scandinavian heritage. When ceded the territory in the Danelaw, the Vikings essentially ceased to be Vikings. They became farmers and crofters and craftsmen. One interesting effect of this new peaceful interaction between former enemies was the simplification of the English language. English is a Germanic language, and Old English was in many respects quite different from the language I'm speaking today. 
Old English nouns had three genders, masculine, feminine, and neuter, and it was also a heavily inflected language, meaning that the form of a word often revealed its function in a sentence rather than word order conveying this, as is more the case today. One example that emphatically serves to demonstrate the difference between Old and Modern English, in Old English, there were 18 different ways to say the. Now, the Vikings also spoke a Germanic language, probably something very close to Norse, and the languages were similar enough that a Dane and an Englishman could probably communicate fairly easily. Once these groups became neighbors, however, Old English lost much of its more complex inflections and forms as the sort of rubbing together of the two languages resulted in a necessary simplification of both so that communication could be easier. This first true incarnation of England, however, would be relatively fragile and short-lived. Viking attacks continued in the 10th century, and those people whose ancestors just a couple of generations earlier had found themselves the attackers now found themselves on the receiving end of attacks by other groups of Danes. And in this case, the word Dane is actually correct, and it's not just a catch-all word that might refer to sea raiders of any Scandinavian ethnic group. In the year 1013, Svein Forkbeard of Denmark declared himself king of England and Denmark. His hold on the throne was short-lived, however. But in 1016, Svein's son Knut did become king of England, and his rule would usher in a period of struggle over the throne of England that would eventually culminate in the event we call the Norman Invasion in 1066. The 200 years right after Alfred's reign would bring huge changes to that island nation known as England, and huge changes as well for the rest of Europe and the communities on its borders. We've spent this lecture focusing on a particular region on the edge of the medieval world, and in our next lecture we're going to shift our attention back to the center and pull back a bit so we can get a sort of big-picture idea as to how particular religious ideas, invasions, and immigrations changed the shape of the medieval world in dramatic ways as we move from the early to the high Middle Ages. Lecture 11, The Rearrangement of the Medieval World. Welcome back. In our last lecture, we talked about the only English monarch to be known as the Great, Alfred of Wessex. We explored how this man, a fifth son, and thus in the running for the title of least likely to be king, came to the throne of the West Saxons and ultimately achieved peace with the marauding Vikings, dramatically reshaping the boundaries of the traditional Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in the process and setting the stage for a single unified English nation over which his grandson, Ethelstan, would eventually rule. In the 200 years after Alfred's rule, England went through a dramatic period of dramatic transformation culminating with the Norman invasion led by William the Conqueror in 1066. England was not the only place in the medieval world that was undergoing some serious upheaval at this time, 
And in this lecture, we're going to pull our focus back and look at the changes that were occurring throughout the medieval world during this period. Starting around the year 900, Western Europe began to rearrange itself. New groups came to power, particularly as the might of the Carolingian dynasty began to wane. New political entities became dominant, and most often, these entities were in some way connected with military strength. A similar shift occurred in the Byzantine and Islamic worlds, as we discussed in a previous lecture. In terms of religion, this is the period that I like to call everyone pick a monotheism, as essentially everyone in the European, Byzantine, and Middle Eastern worlds who had held polytheistic beliefs converted to either one of the two main forms of Christianity, Roman or Byzantine, to Islam, or to Judaism. In the beginning, there was little difference between the Christianity practiced in what we would call the Latin medieval church, also called the Western church, and the one that would eventually develop into Roman Catholicism, and that practiced in Byzantium, which eventually became what we call Eastern Orthodox Christianity today. However, in the Middle Ages, Byzantine Christianity was much more markedly a Christianity in which secular and religious roles were often blurred together, and with the iconoclastic controversy of the 8th century, a divide between the two forms of Christianity began to grow, as the Latin Church saw iconoclasm as threatening not only to its rituals and many popular expressions of religion, but also threatening to the office of the papacy. It would be a divide that would never truly heal. This division within Christianity, in conjunction with other religious shifts, would be just one of the factors that would produce a remarkable change in how the medieval world looked. The watchword from about 900 to 1050 in Western Europe is fragmentation, as formerly large realms divided themselves into smaller political entities, a process that was moved along by external as well as internal pressures. Then, as we move firmly into the High Middle Ages, particularly from 1100 on, Europe begins to expand its borders out from what we might call its heartland, the Carolingian Empire, and medieval society begins to assume the forms that most of us who know a little something about the period tend to think of as quintessentially medieval. If we look at what we might call external pressures, we have three sets of invasions that reshape the medieval world during this period. In the area around the Mediterranean, we see conflicts with Muslim military forces. In Eastern Europe, the Hungarians, or Magyars, proved a formidable raiding force. To the north and west, the Vikings, whom we have already talked about at some length, began to shift from seasonal raids focused on looting and pillaging to more permanent moves involving the immigration and settlement of families. Spain, properly called Al-Andalus, had become a Muslim territory in the 8th century, as we've previously discussed. The larger Muslim world itself was undergoing some significant changes and reorganization at this time, with new groups, such as the Samnids, Buyids, Fatimids, and Zirids, coming to power and jockeying for position. The Umayyads in Spain made some raids into southern France and Italy, and in the early 10th century, 
they captured the island of Sicily and brought it under Muslim rule. Dissent within Muslim Spain itself led to Al-Andalus being divided into smaller realms called Taifas in the 11th century. Now, obviously, in a practical sense, much of the division within the Islamic world directly affected communities on the Arabian Peninsula, in the Middle East, and in North Africa. But at the same time, it would be a mistake to think that understanding what's happening in the Muslim world isn't critical to understanding developments in the medieval world, and not just in Spain. Throughout the European Middle Ages, contact with the Islamic world would precipitate important developments, especially in the areas of science, math, and medicine, and in some instances, conflict with the Muslim world would shape politics and religion in hugely significant fashion, particularly when it comes to those events known as the Crusades, which we will discuss in two later lectures. Going back to the 10th century, however, Western Europe was significantly impacted by the Hungarians, or Magyars. These were a nomadic people who came from the area around the Black Sea. Renowned for their ferocity in battle, they were hired as mercenaries by the king of the East Franks, but later decided to stay in the region, conquering the Danube River Basin, and from there, continuing to raid into parts of what is today Germany, Italy, and southern France. Their raiding activity stopped under King Otto I of Germany, a powerful lord who not only managed to bring the German duchies under control, but who also marched into Italy and proclaimed himself king there in 951. These moves eventually earned him the imperial crown, and it is in this period that the idea of the Holy Roman Empire becomes more focused on what is today Germany, rather than the area we know as modern France, which had been the case when Charlemagne held the crown. For the rest of its existence, the Holy Roman Empire would continue to be torn between its German and Roman identities, a tension that would lead ultimately to the weakening of its power and influence. So Francia, the Carolingian Empire of Charlemagne, had become divided and weakened. Sixty years after Charlemagne's death, the unity of his empire had completely disappeared. Similarly, Alfredian England, which had become the unified kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons under his rule, was, after a brief period of peace, experiencing additional Viking raids. Alfred's successors had adopted a policy of, of appeasement, often paying off the Vikings whenever they appeared ready to make a raid, and as we discussed in an earlier lecture. But this policy rankled many Anglo-Saxon nobles, many of whom, although Christian, still held admiration for the ideals of the warrior band, the comitatus, and sacrificial devotion to one's lord. The Vikings' power increased, and the defensive measures put in place by Alfred proved to have been ill-maintained and woefully inadequate to counter their threat. For reasons too complicated to go into here, the end result of the English-Danish struggle would be the conquest of England by the Normans in 1066, which is the subject of our next lecture. The Normans did much more than simply conquer England, however, and during this period, they are everywhere. 
in the medieval world from the Scandinavian north down into the Mediterranean. The movement of the Normans throughout Western Europe is just one of four major expansions of European borders that we have beginning in the 11th century. The Normans represent one of these expansive moves that we might identify as an internal pressure on the structure of medieval society. The other three are what we call the Spanish Reconquista, the Saxon expansion to the east, known as the Drang nach Osten, and the Crusades. In order to understand how and why these shifts happen, we need to understand some basic facts about how the medieval world was changing. There are two fundamental societal changes at the root of this expansion. The first is the increasingly military nature of the upper classes of society, and the second is the progressive Christianization of almost all social classes and groups in the medieval world. First, the militarization of the upper classes. In the early Middle Ages, Society was dominated by a rural aristocracy, which adhered to what some historians, rightly I believe, have called a cult of violence. As we move toward the end of the first millennium, we begin to see the real development of a warrior aristocracy, and one of the most significant aspects of this was the fact that more and more, the horse became an important part of military strategy. In the early Middle Ages, Before stirrups came into common use, you would ride your horse to the battle, dismount, fight, and if you survived, you would remount your horse and ride back home after the battle was over. We'll talk much more about military equipment and tactics in a later lecture, but for our present purposes, the important thing to understand is that by the time we get to the 11th century, the horse had become an important element in medieval warfare, and being a warrior, was expensive. You had to be able to afford and maintain armor, sword, shield, and especially a horse. And thus, it was really only available to wealthier members of the upper class. At the same time, we see a shift in the way aristocratic families are structured. Patriarchy, or the importance of the father's family, began to play a much more important role in family identification, whereas prior to this, the mother's family or heritage might be viewed as equally important in determining someone's social status. Family surnames come into usage around this time, and in a patriarchal system, it will almost always be the father's family name that is given to all heirs. In addition, we start to see more uniform practice of the system known as primogeniture, which is a system under which the eldest son inherits almost all the wealth, property, and arguably, most importantly, titles that are available to be passed down. This created a situation in which you have younger aristocratic sons who were denied inheritances, but who still had military skills. Although many younger aristocratic males entered the church, Others had the ability to try and carve out a living and wealth for themselves by means of battle and conquest, a fact that fueled the impulse to expand the borders of the medieval European world. By the 10th and 11th centuries, Christianity, which for much of the period immediately preceding the High Middle Ages had been largely confined to the upper classes of society, had effectively 
trickle down to all social strata. We can never discount how strong a motivator real religious faith was in the medieval world. And although many who participated in religiously oriented activities such as the Reconquista of Muslim Spain or the Crusades of the Holy Land certainly did so out of greed or ambition with an eye toward what earthly benefits they might accrue, it seems clear that the majority of those who participated did so with a sincere belief in the rightness of what they were doing. Some demographic shifts during the High Middle Ages also fueled the rearrangement and expansion of the medieval world. Although we can never be exactly sure about the numbers, it seems probable to most historians that between 1000 and 1300, the population of Europe almost doubled, going from about 38 million to 74 million people. There are a few reasons for this. One is that those invasions of the 10th century, the Vikings, the Magyars, etc., had essentially ceased. Also, around the year 1000, slavery, meaning true bondage, in which people were treated as chattels, as property, was replaced with a slightly less restrictive system known as serfdom. There are several reasons for this shift, but the simplest explanation is that under slavery, Although the person who owned the people could demand any and all labor of them, he also had to feed, clothe, and house them, something which became expensive. Serfdom changed the rules a bit. Serfs might be bound to a lord and usually held lands from him that they farmed for themselves, giving the lord a percentage of the harvest, and they also owed the lord a certain number of days of labor on his own lands. There was also a complicated system of taxes that serfs might owe their lords and any number of other inconveniences. But in return, the serfs could expect protection from the lord in times of difficulty, no small matter when it came to the medieval world and its sometimes rampant violence. Serfs thus enjoyed a quality of life much better than slaves, and under these more advantageous circumstances, their population increased. The population explosion was also a result of some other factors, among them technological advances when it came to farming, which led to greater crop yields. This period was also marked by a slightly but significantly warmer climate. And in fact, some scientists have labeled this time the Little Warm Age, or Little Optimum. The common use of cast iron cooking pots meant that people were getting more iron from this source and from increased consumption of meat. And this helped to prolong life expectancy and general health. The added iron in the medieval diet had, from a reproductive standpoint, the benefit of allowing adolescents to reach puberty earlier than had previously been the case. Some scientists estimate that medieval people on average entered puberty sometime between 16 and 18. With increased iron in the diet, the onset of puberty moved to sometime between the ages of 14 and 16 on average, which meant that people could reproduce sooner. So we have more people, and we need a place to put them all. An examination of the major expansive moves of the 10th through the 12th century helps us to see more clearly how these social and demographic changes were manifested in Western Europe 
and how they laid the foundation for many of the social developments that would occur in the later Middle Ages and which we'll be talking about in several lectures to come. The Normans, whom we've already talked about some this time and whom we'll discuss at even greater length in our next lecture, are the prime example of successful social advancement as a result of military prowess. Descendants of Viking raiders, in the 10th century they settled in that portion of France which is called Normandy, a name that literally means home of the Northmen. The French king, being no dummy, realized that it would be much better to have such fantastic warriors fighting with him than against him. So he made their leader Hrolfa, or Rollo, a duke, officially ceded him Normandy, and the rest, as they say, is history. From this base, the Normans spread throughout Europe so pervasively that many scholars actually refer to the Normanization of Europe, a process which gently, or in some instances not so gently, caused cultures and societies that had been vastly different to become, to at least some degree, more alike, resulting in a certain amount of cultural uniformity in the medieval world that had not previously existed. Both by conquest and by grafting themselves onto established noble families, the Normans moved into positions of power and influenced economic infrastructure in places where they conquered and or settled, making Western Europeans more similar to one another in many respects than they had been prior to this. A very different sort of expansion occurred on the Iberian Peninsula in the form of the Spanish Reconquista, or Reconquest, of Spain from Muslim rule. As you'll remember from a previous lecture, most of what we think of today as Spain had been Muslim from the year 711, although a few Christian principalities remained on the peninsula. The increase in Christian belief through all levels of society, in combination with the militarization of the nobility as we head into the High Middle Ages, meant that there was a large body of armed men willing to fight to quote-unquote free Spain from its Muslim rulers. Now, properly speaking, the Reconquista had been happening almost since the moment Muslim leaders had claimed portions of Spain for themselves in the 8th century. And there had been several moves to take back Spain for Christianity. Charlemagne himself had made forays into Spain in the late 8th century. But although ruled by Muslim leaders for over two centuries, Al-Andalus, which again is the proper name for Spain during the period from the early 8th to the late 11th centuries, was not a wholly Islamic community. Plenty of Christians lived side by side with Muslims, holding official jobs, speaking Arabic, and occasionally intermarrying with them. These Christians were called Mozarabs, or would-be Arabs, and they and the Muslim and Jewish inhabitants of Al-Andalus enjoyed a life that was flourishing in terms of culture and the arts. But in the year 1002, the Caliphate of Cordoba broke up, and the various Muslim communities began warring amongst themselves, soon dividing themselves up into those taifas I mentioned earlier small communities which were ruled by local strongmen. This meant that the Spanish Christian rulers to the north of Al-Andalus suddenly had a real opportunity 
to conquer the regions to the south that were now fractured and divided against themselves. And that is exactly what happened. In 1085, King Alfonso VI of Leon and Castile conquered the Muslim stronghold of Toledo. In 1094, one of Alfonso's subjects, one Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar, who came to be known as El Cid, and who is the subject of the famous poem of the Cid, took Valencia. At the same time, another kind of reconquest, a religious reconquest, was happening as Cluniac monks and others began moving into Spain in the 11th century to found, reform, and conquer Spanish monasteries and other religious institutions. The religious and military fervor bubbling through Europe accelerated what we might call the Europeanization of Spain. In 1212, Pope Innocent III officially declared a crusade against Muslims in Spain, and in 1236, Cordova itself fell to Castile. By the late 13th century, the only Muslim stronghold left was in Granada. The crusading zeal of the High Middle Ages rearranged most of Spain into the three kingdoms of Castile, Aragon, and Portugal. This crusading ideal that had transformed Al-Andalus into Spain was just an offshoot of a much larger movement that had as its aim the Christianization of the Holy Land in the Middle East and which officially began in 1095 when Pope Urban II at the Council of Clermont called for the First Crusade. We will devote two later lectures to the issue of the Crusades, but it is important for our purposes here to note that Huge numbers of men, young and old, but very often young, and junior members of noble families as well, found in the Levant opportunities that would have been unavailable to them in the medieval world of Europe. While it is certain that true, sincere religious feeling provoked many of them to join the crusading movement, it is also true that many of them who went east did not return home instead remaining there and establishing themselves more comfortably than could have ever been possible in the West, with some of them becoming lords, dukes, and even kings in a land that became known as Outremer, or Across the Sea. So we have the Normans spreading throughout the medieval world from north to south and especially west into England. Christian forces moving into Spain. European incursions into the Middle East. And then the fourth example of expansion I'd like to discuss, the Saxon Drangnakosten, which means literally push to the east, and which is unique among the expansion movements we've explored today in that it was not a product of royal or papal policy or one man's ambition to conquer a particular territory. Rather, this movement was spearheaded by the Dukes of Saxony, and its original motivation had nothing to do with military conquest and everything to do with relocating a burgeoning population. Interestingly, the main group that participated in this movement into Central Europe were not aristocrats, but rather members of the peasant classes. What had happened is that many of the German lords had claimed new territories in Central Europe but they had no real means of overseeing those territories 
and controlling them from their original home bases in Saxony. Starting in the 1060s, peasants and skilled laborers were actively recruited by a class of men known as locatores, who served as middlemen between commoners and a lord who wished to develop the territories he acclaimed in Central Europe. In exchange for having the peasants do the heavy labor of settling and working what was in some cases virgin land, as well as recruiting other settlers, those who traveled east were given a substantial grant of land to call their own with hereditary privileges. One of their number would usually also be named to act as Schultz, or the local magistrate of the new territory. What we have to remember is that medieval society in the high Middle Ages was very static, especially when it came to upward mobility. Movement between classes was practically unheard of, and those peasants who lived on the manor of a lord were probably descendants of peasants who had served the ancestor of that lord, and the descendants of those peasants would most likely serve the descendant of the lord, and so on and so on. The Drangnagosten was largely unprecedented in that it was not just an aristocratic migration, but that commoners were relocating. And further, it was unusual in that it provided unique opportunities for farmers to actually own their own property instead of simply holding it from a lord in exchange for labor and a percentage of the harvest. It was unique also in that it offered the opportunity for advancement up the social scale into political office, albeit to a relatively minor post. The Drangnak Olsen also made these new opportunities hereditary, dramatically affecting the futures of the families who participated. As a result of the Drangnak Olsen, Central Europe became Germanized and Christianized, with people such as the Poles, Bohemians, and Magyars or Hungarians now looking toward Germany and Rome as models of civilization. Paganism, which had retained a hold in Central Europe, was put on the defensive, and the Baltic lands of Prussia, Lithuania, and Latvia had given up pagan or polytheistic beliefs by the 14th century. The result of these expansive moves is the beginning of what we might call European hegemony. Although there was no central European authority, the various political entities of Europe had become more powerful, more assertive, and more alike. More aware of the world beyond Europe's borders than previously, a new identity boundary, Christian versus non-Christian, would unify otherwise discrete and disparate European societies. This European hegemony would arguably last until the beginning of the 20th century and the First World War. As we discussed in today's lecture, the Normans were one of the most important groups moving through the medieval world at this time. Perhaps the most significant and far-reaching example of Norman expansion occurred in 1066, when William of Normandy staked a claim to the throne of England after the last Anglo-Saxon king, Edward the Confessor, died without an heir. As we will see, William was cousin to the members of the English royal house, and thus he may have had a legitimate claim. 
The English, understandably, didn't see it that way and fought bitterly to keep the invader at bay. They almost succeeded. If they had defeated William and his army, the history of England and indeed the whole medieval world would have been vastly different. Until 1066, England, on the far west fringes and across the channel from the continent, had been more Scandinavian than continental European. With one fell swoop, William's conquest literally reoriented the medieval world, bringing England within the embrace of continental Europe and dramatically reshifting the power structures that were in place. How and why this happened is the subject of our next lecture. Lecture 12: The Norman Conquest and the Bayeux Tapestry. Welcome back. In our previous lecture, we discussed the major reorganization of the medieval world from about 900 to 1100, examining how religious belief contributed to activities such as the Spanish Reconquista and the Crusades. and how the desire for land led aristocrats from Saxony to resettle peasants in territories in central Europe a move known as the Drangnach Osten one group that spread throughout Europe were the Normans originally a germanic people with cultural ties to both the vikings and the anglo-saxon royal houses today we're going to talk about the norman conquest of england in 1066 but we're going to examine it from the perspective of a family conflict and also engage it in terms of one of the earliest accounts of that event which is not a text but a famous piece of embroidery known as the Bayeux tapestry now in order to understand how William of Normandy came to conquer England we need to remember some background primarily that the Vikings and Anglo-Saxons are culturally related both Are Germanic groups. In the case of the struggle over the English throne in the 10th and 11th centuries, what we have is really a family feud of sorts. Those Danes and English who fought one another for control of England were cousins, and at the center of this maelstrom of ambition is a woman named Emma of Normandy. The family relationships are complicated, but it is worth trying to sort through them so that we can understand what happened at the Battle of Hastings in 1066 and why. By using Emma as a focal point, we can begin to make a kind of sense out of the complicated family relationships that eventually brought England under Norman control. Emma was the daughter of Richard I. Duke of Normandy who ruled until the late 10th century in that area of what is today part of France. As we've discussed in a previous lecture, the word Norman simply means northman, and that was who had settled Normandy, Northmen or Vikings. After they did this, something very interesting happened. They essentially became domesticated. Within just a century or so, they gave up most of their distinctly germanic cultural identity including their language and became french 
adopting the language, social conventions, and cultural ideals of the people they had defeated. In order to help maintain a truce between the Normans and the English, Emma, daughter of Richard, Duke of Normandy, married King Ethelred II of England, during whose reign attacks by Danes became increasingly violent and frequent. Ethelred had made a policy of paying Danegeld, literally Danegold, to buy off the Danes and persuade them to cease their raiding activities. But their activities were continuing to increase, and his hold over his kingdom had essentially collapsed when he died in 1016. It was he who was king during the infamous Battle of Malden, which occurred in 991. As we've already discussed a bit, Anglo-Saxon monarchs in the later 10th century had adopted a policy of paying off the Vikings. Essentially, when a boatload of raiders showed up, they offered the community they were about to plunder a choice. Pay us off and we'll go away peacefully or suffer the consequences. King Ethelred II, called Ethelred the Undred in Old English, which translates as Ethelred the Ill-Advised, but is often rendered in modern English as Ethelred the Unready, had long had a policy of paying off the Vikings. As we've already discussed, on this occasion, Lord Birtnoth famously told the Viking leader that instead of gold, he would send him spears for tribute. And then Birtnoth allowed the enemy army to cross the tidal river Pant, today called the Blackwater, from the island on which they were waiting, form ranks, and commence a battle in which the English forces were decimated. Ethelred's widow, Emma, had spent much of this dangerous period during the Viking raids in exile back home in Normandy, where she had fled for her safety, along with her children by Ethelred, two boys and a girl, one of whom would grow up to become the English king, Edward the Confessor. When King Ethelred died, Emma was promptly taken as a wife by the Danish king, Canute, who claimed the kingships of England, Denmark, and Norway, and by him she had two children, one of whom, Hartha Canute, would also be king of England for a time. We know very little about what Emma thought and felt about this situation, but taking a moment to grasp the realities of her situation helps drive home how interconnected the English, Danes, and Normans were at this time, and it helps us understand as well how the Norman invasion came to happen. So, to sum up the situation of Emma, she is daughter of the royal house of Normandy. She is married to two kings of England, the Anglo-Saxon Ethelred II and the Danish king Canute. In each of her marriages, she was the second wife her husband had taken, and in an odd coincidence, the names of both kings' first wives were Elfgifu, which means elf-gift. So, she is Queen of England twice. She is also stepmother to two kings of England. Ethelred's son by his first wife, Edmund Ironside, was King of England just briefly in 1016. Upon his death, perhaps from natural causes, perhaps from an assassination by poison, the Danish King Canute took the throne and Emma as his wife. After Canute's death, Another of Emma's stepsons, Harold, Canute's son by his first wife, came to the throne. 
Upon Harold's death, Emma's son by Canute, Hartha Canute, became king of England. Emma's son with Ethelred, Edward, was invited back to England from Normandy in 1041 by members of the Anglo-Saxon nobility, and when Hartha Canute died, Edward became king in 1042. And you thought your family tree was complicated. Now the problem was Edward the Confessor had no heirs. There has been much speculation about the reasons for this, and there are some who feel that his deep religious piety, hence the moniker the Confessor, had led him to live a chaste life, even though he was married to Edith, daughter of Earl Godwin of Wessex. Because he had spent a great part of his life living in exile in Normandy among his mother's family. He had supposedly developed a fondness and closeness with this branch of his family, and according to his cousin William, Edward had named him as his heir. William's grandfather was the brother of Edward the Confessor's mother Emma, so he did have some sort of legitimate claim to the throne. Toward the end of his life, so the story goes, Edward had a change of heart and named as his successor. His brother-in-law Harold, the head of the most powerful family in England at the time, the Godwinsons. The story of what happened next is mentioned in a few written accounts, but none tell it as compellingly as one of the most remarkable pieces of art to survive from the medieval period—an embroidered textile known as the Bayeux tapestry, two hundred and thirty-one feet long. It tells the story of the Norman conquest of England in images stitched in colorful thread. For a time, it was believed that this piece had been commissioned and perhaps sewn in part by Matilda, William's wife. More recently, scholars have tended to think that Bishop Odo of Bayeux, the conqueror's half brother, commissioned the piece to be displayed in the cathedral at Bayeux. Although there has been some fierce debate about this as well. The style and a few of the images suggest fairly convincingly that, although the tapestry tells the story of the defeat of the English, it was in fact sewn in England at Canterbury. Indeed, a few of the curious animal figures in the margins of the Bayeux tapestry seem to have been copied directly from designs found in Canterbury Cathedral. The tapestry seems to be missing a few panels, but it is amazing that we have as much of it as we do. After being mentioned in an inventory at the Cathedral of Bayeux in 1476, it largely disappears from the record until the French Revolution, when it was being used as a wagon cover. Rescued then from what was sure to be its certain death, it probably survived into the modern period because it was largely forgotten. It was wound around a large spool in the basement of the Louvre while World War II raged over and around it. The tapestry, as we have it, opens with a scene in which Edward the Confessor is deciding to whom he should leave his kingdom. After deciding on his cousin William across the Channel, the tapestry indicates that he sends his brother-in-law, Harold Godwinson, to Normandy to inform William. That he has been named heir to the English throne, Harold's party is depicted as setting off, accompanied by hunting dogs and birds, symbolizing that this is a peaceful mission. 
Harold and his party are also depicted with mustaches, while the Normans are represented as having the backs of their heads shaved throughout the tapestry, an easy way to distinguish the enemy fighters from one another. Although this is a story of war, the tapestry includes some delightfully whimsical moments. The vibrant colors of these ships and their sails suggest cartoons of the modern age, and little details such as the men hiking up their tunics to keep them dry as they wade out to board their ships speak to the input of an eyewitness, or at least an experienced warrior and seafarer, and to the sense of humor and delight and detail present in the hands that stitch these scenes. According to the tapestry, Harold Godwinson's arrival in Normandy does not go well, as he is taken captive almost immediately by one of Duke William's vassals. William ransoms Harold, and they return to William's palace. Next occurs one of the great mysteries of the Bayeux tapestry. Standing between two pillars is a woman whose name, Elfgifa, is stitched above her. Stretching his hand out so that he can touch or strike her face is a male figure who is clearly a monk. More shocking, however, is what is embroidered in the lower margin, which up until this point has depicted what we might think of as simple decorative flourishes. Various animals, plants, crosses, some of which are so crudely rendered that a few scholars have suggested that children were allowed to help with the tapestry. But below Elgiva and the monk is stitched a naked man squatting so that his genitalia are on full display. No one today knows who Elgiva was. It was a common enough name. And why a monk might be touching her face while a naked man is represented below. The general consensus is that it must have been a reference to some sexual scandal that was so well known there was no need to offer more explanation than that which was already given in the tapestry itself. Nor do we know what this might have to do with William's eventual conquest of England. It is a mystery that we can only hope scholars might be able to solve one day. After this moment in the tapestry, we see William and Harold engaging in some campaigns together, culminating in the key moment in the narrative and the linchpin in William's claim to be king and his right to invade. Harold stands between two reliquaries that most likely held the bones of saints and with a hand on each, swears to support William's claim to the throne. The fact that this oath is made on two such sacred objects is hugely important, as such an oath is inviolable, even if it is made under duress. For medieval Christians, oaths that were compelled could be rendered null, but an oath made on the bones of a saint could never be undone or withdrawn, no matter the circumstances that led to its being sworn. Soon after his return to England, Edward the Confessor dies, and Harold, violating his oath to William, becomes King of England. The occasion of his coronation, according to the tapestry, is marked by a meteor, or comet in the sky, an omen of ill fortune for the English. William, across the channel, then begins to plan for an invasion of England to take what is rightfully his, as the narrative of the tapestry suggests, and he orders the building of boats. Now here, 
The tapestry largely elides or skips over some of the most important events that led to William's eventual victory over the English. If we think back to Emma of Normandy and the family tree of the English, Norman, and Danish royal families, you'll remember how much England was really at this time a part of the medieval Scandinavian world, rather than the world of continental Europe that had been so dominated for a time by the Carolingian Empire. Once he had his fleet assembled, William was hindered by bad weather and contrary winds, and he had to delay his intended channel crossing by some weeks. While William waited on the weather, and Harold waited for William, the new king of England was stunned to receive the news that the ambitious Harold Hardrada, king of Norway, had invaded the north of England. It was in response to this crisis. That Harold Godwinson would receive the nickname that would stay with him down through the ages, Harold Harefoot, meaning quick-footed, speedy like a hare or rabbit. He marched north more quickly than anyone would have thought possible, taking Hardrada by surprise, and defeating and killing him at the famous Battle of Stamford Bridge on September twenty-fifth, ten sixty-six. As stunning and impressive as this battle was, the timing could not have been worse for Harold Godwinson. Two days after Stamford Bridge, the winds changed, and William set sail for the south of Britain, landing at Pevensey, where he and his troops found little or no opposition. The next scenes of the Bayeux Tapestry are fascinating for their detail and their domesticity, as they show the daily life of a war camp. Foraging through the countryside to secure food and other supplies, setting up kitchens and cook fires and dining tables, and then what would become the hallmark of the Norman presence in England, and the means by which William would ultimately consolidate his power, the building of a castle. Now, when we hear the word castle today, most people bring to mind an image that. Somewhat resembles Sleeping Beauty's castle at Disneyland, which itself was modeled on a real structure, Germany's Neuschwanstein Castle. But this castle was not built until the 19th century, and it reflects an overly idealized and sanitized image of what a medieval castle should look like. In reality, medieval castles were built first for advantage of position and defense, and only incidentally, if ever. With comfort or luxury in mind, the quickest and most effective sort of castle, and the type favored by William, at least initially, was something called the Mott and Bailey Castle. Usually, these were constructed by digging a circular trench. The earth from the trench was piled in the center of the circle, forming a mound or the mott. On top of this mott would be the defensive structure. Usually built of wood, occasionally built of stone, and sometimes wooden structures would be replaced by stone once a firm command of an area had been established. Below the mot and also encircled by a ditch would be the area known as the bailey, which is essentially where the day-to-day living and working of all the people associated with the castle took place. The stronghold, the castle itself, was a place where all those people could retreat at a time when they might need protection. After landing in England, 
William quickly built Mott and Bailey castles at Pevensey and Hastings to shore up his position. William's men, who had chafed the long wait while they sat across the channel waiting for the wind to change, were in no mood for another delay. William encouraged them to loot and pillage, hoping to provoke Harold Godwinson into battle sooner rather than later. It would have been smarter for Harold to take his time heading south, as supplies for William's troops and their patients were likely to run out. But, bolstered by his triumph over Harold Hardrada at Stamford Bridge, Harold Godwinson felt that it would be best to strike at William hard and soon. Harold and his troops made it back to London on October 6th. After a rest of only a few days, he sent his men on a forced march to Hastings, covering approximately 65 miles in just three days. On the 14th of October, the two sides met in battle. Harold's troops had the high ground and therefore should have had an advantage, but they were exhausted. As William's forces fought their way up the hill toward the English, they found their ranks turned back again and again by the English shield wall. It seemed likely that the English would be victorious against the invader. Now, among William's ranks were a number of Breton warriors as well as a minstrel or two. We need to remember who the Bretons were. They were the descendants of those native Britons who fled across the Channel in the 5th century in the face of the Anglo-Saxon invasion. They settled in the part of modern France that is today called Brittany, which just means Little Britain, and their language belonged to the Celtic branch of the Indo-European language family. So it was closer to Welsh than it was the English of the Anglo-Saxons or the Old French of the Normans. They had joined forces with William in part because they viewed his invasion of England as an opportunity for them to right an old wrong, to wrest power away from those invaders who had caused their own ancestors to flee. But it was the Bretons who threatened to cause the tide to turn decisively in favor of Harold and the English. In some of the most eye-popping of the panels of the Bayeux Tapestry, the conflict of the battle is depicted. The fighting was so close, according to both eyewitness accounts and the tapestry itself, that there was no room for the dead to fall, and they remained standing, packed in with the living and others who were dead or dying. In the margins of the tapestry, all manner of body parts and animal parts are shown strewn about the battlefield. It must have been a gory, bloody, fraught battle indeed. In the face of the fighting, the Bretons, who were attacking the left flank, panicked. They broke ranks, and they ran, pursued by a contingent of Saxons. A rumor quickly spread among William's troops that the conqueror himself had been killed. In order to quell this rumor, William did something almost no medieval warrior would ever do. As the Bayeux Tapestry depicts, he removed his helmet so that his troops could recognize his face and see that he was still alive. Now, if you've ever seen a medieval battle scene in a Hollywood movie, no matter how carefully researched the details are, no matter how accurate the portrayal, 
there is almost always at least one significant inaccuracy. The actors playing the lead roles usually are portrayed as going into battle with their heads uncovered. In reality, this would obviously be an incredibly foolish thing to do as it exposes one of your most vulnerable body parts to significant danger. But for the sake of Hollywood, this is done so the audience can follow who is doing what to whom. Thus, it is hugely significant that William is depicted as removing his helmet, exposing himself to great danger in order to reassure his men that he is still alive and fighting. It turned out to be a wise decision. Many of those in the Norman contingent who had turned and fled now turned back and faced their pursuers, bringing many of them down. In fact, this then became part of William's strategy for success on that day. On several occasions, various of, of his warriors pretended to retreat, a temptation the Saxons could not resist, often breaking ranks to pursue and cut down the Normans, who would then turn and catch the English by surprise, turning the hunted into the hunters. As the day progressed, William finally ordered his archers to shoot high so that their arrows would sail over the English shield wall and land on those of Harold's troops positioned behind the main primary defense. And here, as the Bayeux Tapestry depicts, Harold Godwinson met his end when an arrow pierced him through the eye. By late afternoon on October 14, 1066, William of Normandy had become essentially King of England, even though it would not be until Christmas of that year that the crown would be officially placed upon his head. Now, most scholars dislike relying overly much on dates as a way of structuring our understanding of the past, particularly in terms of boundaries between historical epochs. It is very rarely that one can say that things were one way in, say, 1484, but completely different in 1485. For example, for the sake of convenience, most scholars think of the Middle Ages lasting approximately a thousand years, from about 500 to 1500. Yet certainly many ideas and institutions that we might consider medieval have their origins long before the 6th century, and similarly, certain medieval concepts and values continued to be socially significant well beyond the year 1500. But with the conquest of England in 1066, we get as close as we're ever going to get to a dividing line that truly separates one culture and way of life from another that is radically different. Within just a few years, all of the Anglo-Saxon aristocracy were either dead or displaced, their lands and titles given to William's followers from Normandy. It is estimated that the wealth and property of some 4,000 Anglo-Saxons was parceled out to around 200 or so Normans. The language of the ruling elite was now a type of French that we tend to call Anglo-Norman, but it was certainly more French than it was Saxon. Granted, the elite made up a relatively small portion of the society of Norman England, but even though the peasants continued on much as before, they too were affected in serious ways by the changes. One of the most interesting, I think, was a new law that would have an impact on their very survival. Prior to the conquest, any Anglo-Saxon could go out into the forest and hunt game 
that he could bring home to feed his family. William brought with him the Norman law that all forest land was the domain of the king, and only he had the right to hunt there. He also brought with him some changes in architecture and building, most of which were welcome. It was under his direction that the White Tower, the oldest portion of the Tower of London, was erected. Most of the stone itself was imported from William's native Normandy. He also brought with him a newfangled invention known as the fireplace. Up until this point, even the wealthiest nobleman's home was most likely timber, with a hearth in the middle of the room and a hole in the roof to let out the smoke. Not the most pleasant of living situations. In terms of the larger medieval world, the repercussions of William's conquest of England would be felt for some time. Perhaps the most significant effect of William's conquest was that England, once on the fringes of the medieval world, and until this point more part of Scandinavia than anything else, would be brought firmly into the embrace of continental Europe. Indeed, William and his nobles all spent a great deal of time shuttling back and forth between their lands in England and in Normandy. In a few generations, this situation would create significant friction between the thrones of England and France and require that many nobles would have to choose to forsake one holding or title in favor of another. Many of those Bretons who had followed William across the Channel with the idea of reclaiming some ancient patrimony had, contemporary accounts tell us, been accompanied by minstrels who sang songs of that greatest Celtic leader, Arthur of Britain, who had fought against the invading Anglo-Saxons and held them off for a time. Some of William's Breton companions had hoped to finish the work that Arthur had been unable to complete, ousting the interloper Saxons from the shores of Britain. The mythic figure who inspired them is the subject of our next lecture. These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. They are produced by the Teaching Company. These lectures are titled The Medieval World Part 2. Lecture 13, King Arthur, The Power of the Legend. Welcome back. Last time we talked about the Norman conquest of Anglo-Saxon England and its depiction in one of the most famous textile pieces to survive from the medieval period, the Bayeux Tapestry. Among its many scenes depicting the events leading up to and including the actual invasion, there is one panel which shows William the Conqueror's troops on their way to Britain in ships, and included there is the image of a minstrel who presumably was brought along for entertainment. There are some accounts which suggest that the Breton minstrels had in their repertoire of songs a version of the story of King Arthur, which they sang in the spirit of thinking that the Normans would right the ancient wrong committed by the Saxons when they invaded and conquered Arthur's Britain in the 5th century. Now we need to remember that Bretons, spelled B-R-E-T-O-N, were those Britons who fled from the island of Britain in the face of the Anglo-Saxon invasion 
in the 5th century. After the Bretons settled in what is today Brittany, they maintained some contact with their former homeland. And it is by this means that some of the Arthurian tradition is thought to have made its way to France. So it is not entirely out of the realm of possibility that information about Arthur would have been preserved in the oral tradition of Breton singers. This fact demonstrates that the story of King Arthur was both popular and useful politically, and as we'll see, a variety of groups and people used the Arthurian story to promote often conflicting agendas. The story of King Arthur has been popular for centuries, and his legend has been and continues to be so compelling because it is, at its foundation, a story about what is best in human nature. No matter the time, place, or language in which his tale is told, the core of the story of King Arthur is the account of how one man made a difference. In a bleak and difficult time, one person attempted to push back the darkness, to restore order to chaos, and to make the world a better place. It is a fascinating tale, at least in part, because it was obviously as compelling and engaging a story in the Middle Ages as it is today. People have been fascinated with Arthur's story for well over a thousand years because its central truth is easily adapted and appropriated to reflect the values and ideals of whatever group or individual is retelling his story. He has been a hero to the medieval Welsh, English, and French, groups often at odds or indeed war with one another. His story appears in German, Polish, Spanish, Italian, Japanese, and numerous other languages. The narrative of his reign functions whether his story is set in medieval Britain, the European battlefields of World War II, or outer space in some distant future. So, who was this man who has inspired some of the greatest literature ever written? In order to answer this question, we have to go back to one of the earliest lectures of this course and return our focus to the Roman Empire and its presence in Britain. Now, we know very little about the earliest peoples living in Britain because they had no written language and they were absorbed by the various waves of invaders slash immigrants who later came to Britain from the continent. Thus, the people who built such fantastic monuments as Stonehenge are largely a mystery to us. The first group in Britain that we can really identify in terms of language and culture are the Celts, who came from the continent and were settled in the British Isles by about 500 BC. Although the Celts did not have a written language at this time, we know quite a bit about them from that group of people who were famously skilled at keeping written records, the Romans. In 55 BC, the Romans tried to extend the reach of their empire to the British Isles, drawn there by its natural resources, particularly tin. Repelled on their first attempt to bring Britain into the embrace of the empire, they were more successful in 43 AD, and fairly quickly they brought most of what is today England under their control, although they were never able to Romanize those regions that today we call Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. The Romans did in Britain what they did everywhere they went, which is to try and recreate Roman culture and infrastructure, 
what we have called Romanitas or Romanness. So when they got to Britain, they got right down to the business of building roads, establishing cities, minting coins, erecting public baths, and constructing Roman-style villas. Those Celtic peoples whose territories were subsumed into the Roman Empire adapted to the idea of Romanitas or Romanness relatively quickly, although not without some initial resistance. And we call these people the Romano-British to indicate their status as citizens of the Roman Empire who still in many cases retained some sense of a Celtic identity. For almost 400 years, these Britons living at the edge of the empire considered themselves Roman subjects and enjoyed the privileges and style of living that went with such status. All that changed dramatically in the late 4th and early 5th century, of course, when Rome found itself under siege from various barbarian hordes. To protect its borders, Rome started to call its legions home. In 410, the unthinkable happened, and Rome itself was sacked by the Gothic leader, Alaric. As the Roman forces began to withdraw from Britain, Peoples who had been kept at bay by their presence began making incursions into Romano-British territory, and these people include the Scots, the Picts, and various other non-Romanized, non-Christian peoples, including the Anglo-Saxons from the continent. In response to these attacks, the Romano-British sent to the Roman consul across the Channel in Gaul, but the response that came back was not what the Britons had hoped for. Essentially, the message was, you're on your own. Try to imagine what this must have been like for the Britons. For almost 400 years, they had considered themselves citizens of Rome with all the rights, privileges, and protections that accompany that status. And then suddenly, they are cut off, abandoned, with their infrastructure and urban centers perilously close to collapse. They were Christians, and they found themselves under attack from non-Christian peoples and unable to defend themselves. When you consider that the United States has only been in existence for a little more than 200 years, you can get a sense of the kind of disorientation that must have surrounded the Britons after 400 years under Roman rule. What happened next is chronicled in the histories of two monks, Gildas, who wrote in the 6th century, and the Venerable Bede, who wrote in the 8th, and whose work we've already discussed at some length in this course. Both Gildas and Bede chronicle the story of how the British leader King Vortigern decided to hire mercenaries to fight for the Britons, essentially to take the place of the now-departed Roman military. Sometime in the mid-5th century, tradition usually puts the date as 449, Three boatloads of mercenaries, led by two brothers named Hengist and Horsa, landed on the shores of Britain. The mercenaries were skilled fighters and did a good job of pushing back the Picts and the Scots. But then they looked around, and they liked what they saw. They sent word back to the continent, to their families and friends, and the result was what we call the Anglo-Saxon Invasion. Although their victory in Britain seemed decisive, there was some native resistance to the Anglo-Saxons. And here is where the figure of King Arthur enters our story. To tell that story requires exploring three different kinds of evidence, 
archaeological, literary, and genealogical. Although plenty of Britons moved away in advance of the Saxon incursion, most significantly perhaps, many crossed the Channel and established the realm of Brittany, or Little Britain, in what is today France, someone in the late 5th century was able to rally the British against the invaders, and this someone won a decisive battle against the Saxons at Mount Baden around the year 500. No one knows where Mount Baden is, or was, but most historians agree that it is a real place, even though its location is lost to us. And they agree also that this battle most likely did happen. The archaeological evidence shows that right around this time, the Anglo-Saxon encroachment into Britain stopped, and may have even reversed itself somewhat, sending some of the invaders back to the continent. One way we know this is due to the fact that the Anglo-Saxons had unique burial practices, which makes their cemeteries, and thus their nearby settlements, quite easy for archaeologists to identify. And if you plot these settlements on a map, there's a very clear line about halfway across Britain, beyond which the Anglo-Saxons are held at bay for a considerable period of time. The area right on the border of this Anglo-Saxon line is also, not coincidentally, the area of Britain most associated with Arthur's legend for hundreds of years. The archaeological record indicates that, starting around the year 500, we have almost 50 years of relative peace and prosperity. Towns grew, crops were brought in, and burning and pillaging were kept to a minimum. It was not to last, however, and eventually the Anglo-Saxons won out over the Romano-Celtic population, and the land of the Britons became Angleland, or England. That is the historical milieu in which the figure who was the inspiration for King Arthur, as so many people today imagine him, is situated. Actually, it would be more accurate for me to say figures, as there are several candidates for the historical Arthur. Some are real people, some are purely the stuff of legend, and some are a combination of the two. Some scholars believe that Arthur is actually the 5th century British leader, Ambrosius Aurelianus, who is cited in Gildas's history of Britain as a figure who resisted the Anglo-Saxon invasion. Gildas describes him as being of Roman descent, the son of parents who had, quote, worn the purple, suggesting that he came ultimately from a high-ranking Roman family. Other scholars believe that Arthur was a 5th century leader of purely Celtic, not Roman descent, but who was Romanized and rallied the population left behind when the Romans withdrew from Britain. Still others think that Arthur was the leader referred to only by a title, Riothamus, which is a Latinized form of the British Rigotamos, which meant something like Supreme King, and this figure fought several battles on the continent. Several scholars have also proposed various Welsh leaders as candidates for Arthur, such as Arthur Sap Murig and Owen Duntgoin, who were active at about the right period. On the fringes of Arthur's scholarship, we have those who think that Arthur was never a real person at all, but was a wholly mythic figure whose legend extends back, in some cases, 
almost 3,000 years. Perhaps the best known of these is the theory that the Arthurian tales are based on Sarmatian folklore and were brought to Britain when the Sarmatians, a nomadic people living in the Caucasus region of Europe, were conscripted into the Roman army. These conscripts served under the Roman leader Lucius Artorius Castus in the second century. This Castus had a descendant with the same or similar name in the fifth century, and very often he is identified as the leader whose name gets mixed up with Sarmatian mythology. This is the theory that in part was the basis for the 2005 movie King Arthur. My own belief and what I think is more or less accepted among most scholars working on the Arthur question today, is that there was indeed a real person with a name like Arthur, perhaps of mixed Roman-Celtic descent, who fought against the Anglo-Saxon incursion and achieved some success in stemming the tide of invaders around the year 500. Esteemed Arthur scholars Jeffrey Ash and Leslie Alcock have been quoted as saying, this person was what we might call an Arthur-type figure, and I think that's the best way to think of him. So, what was this Arthur-type figure like, and how do we know about him? Well, in this time and place, which scholars refer to as sub-Roman Britain, or the Britonic Age, we have very little to go on in the way of written texts and histories. As I've already noted, most medieval scholars very much dislike the term Dark Ages to refer to anything concerning the medieval period. But if there ever was a time that we could truly call a Dark Age, Arthur's time is it. With the Romans pulling out of Britain, we lose all those wonderful records that the Roman bureaucracy would have kept. Once the Roman civil infrastructure vanishes, so too do the record keepers and their records and monks who did most of the copying of texts, were more concerned with staying alive than recording the events that were taking place around them. The invaders, Picts, Scots, and the Anglo-Saxons, were at this time pre-literate. They had, of course, an ample body of stories, tales, and histories, but these are only preserved and passed down orally, so we can't look to them for accurate accounts of what is happening. When we take the archaeological record and combine that with what we can glean from later written accounts that may be recording facts and stories that were part of an oral tradition or which were copied from earlier texts that are now lost, we start to get a picture of who this Arthur-type figure was, and the evidence is fairly convincing that he did indeed exist. There are a number of locales, clustered in the south and west of Britain, that have names that either reference Arthur or reference places that are cited in various accounts of the legend. Three of these important places are Tintagel, Glastonbury, and Cadbury Hill. Tintagel, which is on the west coast of Britain in Cornwall, is the reputed birth site of Arthur according to several legends. And Arthurian pilgrims have long journeyed here to a place that literally seems to be on the edge of the world to pay their respects to the once and future king. 
Arthurian enthusiasts just about lost their minds in the summer of 1998 when an excavation team at Tintagel found a stone that had inscribed on it in early Britishized Latin something like quote, "Artogudu, father of descendant of Cull, has had this made." Specialists are fairly certain this comes from the right time, the sub-Roman or Britonic period. And the hubbub at conferences and on email newsgroups and web chat rooms was over the name Artogonu, which in its non-Latin British form would be something like Arthnu, which obviously is similar to the name Arthur. There's also a cross on the stone suggesting this figure was a Christian, which the historical Arthur type figure most certainly was. Previous excavations at Tintagel have revealed that it was a bustling community in the sub-Roman period and that even during the incursions from Picts, Scots, and Saxons, this outpost was maintaining a healthy trade with the continent. So, someone of obvious power, influence, and wealth oversaw this community. It would be the right setting into which someone who would grow up to be like Arthur might be born. Glastonbury has often been associated with the island of Avalon, to which Arthur is famously carried off to be healed at the conclusion of some of the legends. This site is also associated with the Holy Grail and is cited as the last resting place of Arthur and Guinevere. Now, one problem with Glastonbury Hill or the Tor as it's called being associated with Avalon is that it is quite obviously not an island. Impressive, imposing, standing out from the countryside for miles around. Yes. Island? No. However, archaeologists have determined that during what we can call the Arthurian period, the hill was surrounded by marshy, swampy land that in effect made it an island. Below the tor is Glastonbury Abbey, and in the late 12th century, around 1190 to be exact, King Henry II claimed that he had learned this was the last resting place of King Arthur, and that he had learned this information from a Breton storyteller, just like one of those who reportedly accompanied the Normans during their victorious conquest of Britain. On Henry's information, the monks at Glastonbury dug where he said to dig and unearthed a coffin containing the bones of a large man and a woman above the coffin was a lead cross that said here lies the famous king arthur in the isle of avalon and his second wife guinevere now on the face of it there are a few problems with the authenticity of this discovery one is that henry ii was an arthurian enthusiast and perhaps a bit biased Another is that there had been a fire at the abbey in 1184 and the monks were in need of funds in order to rebuild and perhaps saw an opportunity to capitalize on interest in the Arthurian legend. A third problem is that the bones and lead cross have disappeared, leaving us no way to prove or disprove their authenticity. But at the same time, we don't have any evidence that the monks exploited this find for money and an excavation in 1958 showed 
that the monks had dug where they said they did, and they found a burial where they said they had. The bones were lost, as were so many, including those of Thomas Becket, for example, during the vandalism that occurred after Henry VIII broke up the monasteries and ushered the Reformation into England. Whosever bones they were, they did exist, and they occupied a space on the altar at Glastonbury until the 16th century, as many accounts attest. A copy of one side of the lead cross was made by one William Camden. While many people think it was a forgery or that it never existed at all, what's interesting about Camden's facsimile is that the form of Arthur's name given is Arturius, which is a very early form of the name Arthur. We have it attested in the 7th century, but it's not the preferred form of 12th century writers. That form would have been something like Artus, and that form would have been much more likely to have been used by a 12th century forger. Also, the letter forms themselves seem to indicate a very early date, so it is possible that the account of the monks contains some truth. If the evidence of Tintagel and Glastonbury's association with the Arthurian legend is suggestive, if very circumstantial, the case of Cadbury Hill is a little more solid. The hill is one of many Iron Age hill forts that were in existence in Britain before the arrival of the Romans. But this one has several things that lend it to association with Arthur. At exactly the right time for Arthur, someone came along and re-fortified this hill fort on a massive scale. Excavations have unearthed a great hall at the top of the hill. Earthen ramparts and terracing provided a level of security against hostile attacks. And the upper bank of the hill fort is a 16-foot thick stone wall that runs along the perimeter of the flat top of the hill. It is built in Celtic rather than Roman fashion and must have taken an enormous amount of labor. Experts judge that it would have taken at minimum 800 people to man and defend this site, and this is at a time when the size of the average warband in Britain is estimated to be around 100 men. At the time the main archaeological excavations took place, from 1966 to 70, it was thought that other excavations on other hill forts would reveal a similar pattern of refortification of older sites at around the same time this occurred at Cadbury. So far, this has not been the case. As far as we know, this is the only site in Britain where anything like this refortification occurred, a fact that suggests that at this chaotic time, the late 5th, early 6th century, a single, strong, commanding leader emerged from the disarray left by the Roman withdrawal and the Pictish, Scottish, and Saxon invasions. This leader is most likely the same man who led his people to a rout of the Anglo-Saxons at Mount Baden and thus ushered in a new era of peace for the Britons. Some 50 years after the supposed date of this battle, the name Arthur, or Artorius, suddenly appears in the genealogical record. We have at least four sons born into British royal houses who are given this name. Prior to this, we haven't seen much evidence of this name being used, 
So its sudden appearance and its being given to people of such high rank suggests that certainly this Arthur figure for whom they are named is a man of extremely important status and reputation. Around the year 600, we have the first mention of Arthur in a piece of literature. What is interesting is that this mention is almost an offhand comment, suggesting that Arthur and his story were so well known, there was no need to fully explain who he was or what he did. The text is known as the Godothen, a series of laments, and one stanza mentions a warrior named Gwarther, who we are told was pretty fantastic, but, quote, he was not Arthur. There are other bits and pieces of evidence, but these are the most significant for our attempts to try and get at who this historical figure was. Obviously, his story is in many respects quite different from the popular conception of the legend, which includes, as I mentioned at the opening of this lecture, the fact that he was king, who established the round table at his court, which was at Camelot, that he had an advisor named Merlin, a queen named Guinevere, and a great knight named Lancelot. For one thing, this Arthur-type figure was most likely never called king. The earliest texts give him Roman titles like Comes Britanniarum, or Dux Bellorum, which means leader of battles. Unless he is indeed the high king Riathamus, neither he nor his followers thought of him as a king. Likewise, the name Camelot isn't attested until the 12th century, and then is by a French writer. Arthur's stronghold itself, whatever its name, bears very little resemblance to the large stone castle conjured up in most people's imaginations. It's the Romans who build in stone, And once they leave Britain, the population reverts mostly to building in wood. Arthur's stronghold at the top of Cadbury Hill may have been impressive by 5th century British standards, but to us today it might have seemed nothing more than a rather small, smoky, dark, wooden building. The character of Merlin, while most likely based on a real-life Welsh bard named Myrthen, had absolutely nothing to do with Arthur's story as far as we know, until the writer Geoffrey of Monmouth links them together in the 12th century. Geoffrey's account of Arthur's story was a bestseller in its day, and the popularity of his version is really what sent the Arthurian legend through the roof. Guinevere shows up in early Welsh accounts of the legend, but unfortunately the manuscripts that contain these accounts date from the 13th century, although the material they contain is most certainly much older and probably copied from earlier texts now lost. I think it is possible and probably even likely that Guinevere is a part of the legend from its beginning, but Sir Lancelot is most certainly a later creation, appearing fully formed in the work of French writer Chrétien de Troyes in the 12th century. Now, it is possible that Chrétien was working with an older Celtic source, but the love affair between Arthur's queen and his greatest knight is probably completely made up. It's a similar story with the round table and its knights. The first mention of the round table comes in the 12th century, in the account of the French writer Was. While the historical Arthur surely had a band of men or retainers whom he commanded, 
The concept of knighthood and chivalry as we generally associate them with the Arthurian legend would have been utterly foreign to the Britonic Dukes Bellorum who fought off the Anglo-Saxon invaders. Indeed, knighthood as an institution can't properly be said to exist before the 12th century. No shining army, armor, no fighting on horseback. While chainmail might have been worn, the plate armor we associate with knights is a much later invention. It's far more likely that Arthur's men wore boiled leather for protection, and they would have ridden their horses to a battle site, dismounted, and fought on foot. Stirrups, necessary for fighting on horseback, aren't attested in Europe until the 8th century at the earliest. What really caused the Arthurian story to take off was the work of a 12th century cleric named Geoffrey of Monmouth, whose history of the kings of Britain, finished sometime in 1136 or 1138, included a long section on Arthur. His work became the equivalent of a medieval bestseller, especially on the continent. Over 200 manuscript copies survive, a huge number for the period, and it was his work that really fired the imaginations of later medieval writers who turned Arthur into the mythical figure he's become today. So who was Arthur? My belief is that he was a minor Romano-Celtic leader who rose to power in the chaos surrounding the Roman withdrawal and the Anglo-Saxon invasion. He would have to have been a skilled fighter and a charismatic leader, but the elements of chivalry so intrinsic to the Arthurian legend, romantic love, service to ladies, noble ideals of might for right, were most likely not part of his experience. He certainly had followers, but these were not knights of the round table. They would have been men unconcerned with chivalry and most preoccupied with survival, who gathered around their leader in the timber building behind earthen defenses that served as Arthur's base of operations. He might have had advisors, but there was no magical Merlin to guide him as he fought back the invaders. It is a dark, grim picture lacking magic or romance, hardly the stuff out of which such a legend as we know it is likely to spring. How did we get from that figure to the King Arthur who exists in the popular imagination today? Well, the turning back of the Anglo-Saxons was an incredible feat, and because it occurred in late 5th, early 6th century Britain, which was such a dark age, there was fertile ground for the legend to really take root and grow. Stories about this Arthur figure grew more fantastic as they circulated orally. Because what he had done was so remarkable, and because it had provided hope to so many, various peoples wished to claim him as one of their own, and when they did so, they imbued him with all the behaviors and trappings that they themselves found admirable and worthy. Every age has claimed him and made him the embodiment of what an ideal king should be. In the 15th century Mort d'Arthur by Sir Thomas Mallory, Arthur is a 15th century king who rules according to 15th century values. In the 1960s musical Camelot, by contrast, Arthur's beliefs and values are downright modern and democratic. Anyone can become a knight. A knight should fight only for good, might for right. It is this malleability, this adaptability, that has made the Arthurian legend so enduringly popular. And because the main story of Arthur is one of overcoming adversity, of triumphing against tremendous odds, we can be certain that his legend will continue to hold sway over the popular imagination for many years to come.
Lecture 14, The Three Orders of Medieval Society. Welcome back. In our last lecture, we discussed the legendary figure of King Arthur, exploring the origins of the stories surrounding this most famous of heroes, from their likely historical origins in the 5th century through to much later incarnations of his story that reflected the values of the various societies that produced them. We saw how the story of Arthur changed over time and how Arthur was eventually transformed from a Celtic warlord waging a desperate and defensive war against invading Anglo-Saxons into an incredibly powerful and civilized king whose court was renowned throughout the world for honor, courtesy, and chivalry. As the Middle Ages progressed, the Arthurian story had grafted onto it a number of traditional tales and new characters, such as the figures of the magician Merlin and the knight Sir Lancelot, and its appeal to this day appears unlimited and unbounded. Part of what makes the Arthurian story so compelling is the power of the idea at its center, the idea of a single man being able to unite disparate groups and peoples and make his world a better place. The subject of our lecture today might not seem at first to have much in common with King Arthur, but throughout most of the Middle Ages, ideas about the proper order of things, about how society should be structured, about what kinds of relationships people should have with those above and below and alongside them in the social hierarchy, were incredibly powerful. This can be a hard concept for those of us living in 21st century America to wrap our minds around. The idea that once you were born into a particular social class, that was your destiny. Upward mobility, making a success of yourself through hard work or ingenuity, these ideas were practically unheard of and indeed almost impossible to conceive of in the medieval world, although there are some notable exceptions. But in general, the predominant view in the Middle Ages, and one which became entrenched as we enter the High Middle Ages, was that society was divided into three estates, or orders, and that these three orders were more or less divinely ordained. These three social strata consisted of the nobles, those who fought, the clergy, those who prayed, and the peasants, or everyone else, those who worked. Further, it was believed that in order for society to function successfully, members of each order needed to fulfill their destinies. A peasant should be the best peasant he could be, the knight should be the best knight he could be, and the priest should be the best priest he could be and none of them should attempt to fill the offices of the other. This is a point that is driven home in the medieval dream vision poem known as Piers Plowman, written and revised and rewritten, some might say obsessively, I would, by a man known as William Langland in England in the late 14th century. In one scene, a community bands together to try and stave off the allegorical character of hunger and a knight eagerly offers to learn how to work the plow so that he can help out. Piers the plowman's response is significant in that he refuses the knight's offer of help with the plowing, saying, 
I shall swinka and sweta and sola for us both. Or, I will work and sweat and sew for us both. Provided, he goes on, that the knight does his job, which is to protect and defend the church and laborers like peers. So, at the top of this social order known as the three estates were the nobles. And this included those who held hereditary titles from kings to dukes and earls and down to knights who occupied the lowest rung of the noble ladder. In the early Middle Ages, the equation was simple. Those who were powerful and won battles ruled. In the high Middle Ages, we start to see more and more that those who conquered understandably wished to pass their power and status on to their offspring. And we have the development of a hereditary nobility in which people came to power more because of their bloodlines and less because of any battles won, although military prowess as an ideal would continue to be hugely important throughout the Middle Ages and beyond. And certainly, status attained through conquest was not an uncommon occurrence. To be a successful lord, one needed, essentially, two things, and those are castles and vassals. The 10th and 11th centuries were a significant period of what's called encastellation throughout the medieval world. But these are not castles in the way that most of us might imagine them, as we've already discussed a bit. Early castles were usually rather small, sometimes tall, and often made out of wood rather than stone. Such castles had nothing luxurious about them, and usually were only able to house the Lord's family on a regular basis. During a siege, those who were beholden to a lord, his vassals, and the peasants who worked the lord's land, usually referred to as a manor, might retreat here for protection. Such being the case, these castles needed to be defensible, and the most common castle plan was something known as the Mott and Bailey structure, which we discussed in our lecture on William the Conqueror and the Norman Conquest. As you'll remember, the Mott was a raised mound surrounded by a ditch, and the Bailey was an area below this where, in fact, most of the day-to-day life of the nobleman's immediate community occurred. Having a castle was important if one was a lord, because it meant that one had means of protecting oneself when would-be conquerors set their sights on a particular piece of territory. So, if you had claimed a particular region or inherited it, the surest way to hang on to it and maintain your power was to build a castle that could withstand attacks from enemies. It is not a coincidence that one of the first things William the Conqueror did after winning the Battle of Hastings was to begin a massive program of castle building. Some estimates are that there was a castle about every 10 miles, and William and his heirs built approximately 500 castles in the space of 50 years. This kind of significant encastellation even merits a mention in the document known as the Peterborough Chronicle, a continuation of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, portions of which are believed to be the only surviving history of England written in English after the Norman Conquest and between that time and the later Middle Ages. For the entry of the year 1137, the anonymous chronicler bemoans the fact that many nobles resisted the king at the time, 
Stephen, by building their own strongholds and filling the land full of castles which they could defend against the king's forces, a strategy that is described as Sunktin Suda, an old English phrase that translates to something like seriously or viciously oppressing, oppressing or burdening. In this case, the people who were viciously burdened or seriously oppressed were the local populace living in the region where such castle building occurred. In addition to castles, a lord needed vassals to support his cause and interests. Simply put, a vassal was a man who had sworn homage and fealty to a lord. In exchange for the lord's protection and support and the infestment or granting of lands to the vassal, the vassal swore to fight on the lord's behalf and render him a certain number of days of service a year. The system of vassalage in the medieval world worked much like a pyramid. The king was at the top, and the upper echelons of the nobility would swear fealty to him as his vassals. In turn, these lords would have homage done to them by nobles further down the food chain, who would become their vassals, and so on and so on, all the way down. In other words, almost everyone in medieval society was both above and below someone else in the hierarchical structure. Below the nobles were the clergy, those who prayed. In many respects, this stratum of society overlapped with the noble estate, as members of the clergy very often came from the noble classes. Especially with the increased use of the system of primogeniture, by which only the eldest male heir inherited, thereby keeping estates and titles intact, we find many younger sons of noble families entering religious life. Evidence from the medieval world suggests that while there certainly were many sincerely and devoutly religious members of the clergy, there were others who continued to maintain the sort of lifestyle to which they had become accustomed in their secular lives as members of the noble classes. In fact, although required to take vows that usually included poverty, chastity, and sometimes stability of place, Many members of religious orders owned goods and property and had wives and children, a situation that was widespread enough that church councils from the 12th to the 13th centuries repeatedly addressed this issue, forbidding it in the strongest language possible, which suggests that many carried on with this behavior despite the ideals of celibacy and poverty considered to be so fundamental to religious life. It is perhaps because of the preponderance of members of noble families within the ranks of the clergy that there are so many conflicts between religious and secular leaders throughout the medieval world, even though, as we have noted before, there is really no concept of anything like the separation of church and state in the Middle Ages. Many kings and nobles argued that as they protected the clergy, who were forbidden to take up arms, they were in fact above them in status. The clergy, especially at the highest level, the papacy, contended that as their power came from God, they in fact were in the superior position. It was a debate that we had discussed earlier in this lecture series when we examined the coronation of the Emperor Charlemagne by Pope Leo III in the year 800. As you'll recall, that debate is often described as a royalist versus Romanist debate the royalists holding that Charlemagne had earned the title of Holy Roman Emperor through conquest, 
and the Pope's act was simply a recognition of what was already the case. The Romanist position was that Charlemagne did not become emperor until the Pope, the representative of God on earth, crowned him as such. While the orders of the nobility and clergy were almost side by side at the top of the social order, at the bottom were the peasants. Although medieval society was ideally separated into the three estates, the divisions were by no means equal. Some historians estimate that the nobility and clergy made up between 5 to 10% of the population, while the peasants, the everyone else, might have comprised as much as 95% of the people living in the medieval world. For much of the Middle Ages, there was no real way out of this estate. If you were a peasant, you were most likely born on the manor of a lord and were bound to him as a serf, meaning that the land you lived on and farmed technically belonged to the lord. In exchange for a place to live and the means to grow your own food, as well as protection in times of difficulty, famine, war, etc., you would provide the Lord with a percentage of your harvest, and you would also be required to work a certain number of days on the Lord's personal fields, usually one to two days per week with additional days required at harvest time. Serfdom also meant that you might be subject to a number of taxes, and that many things we consider basic individual rights today, for example, getting married would be subject to your lord's approval. And if he did agree to your marriage, one usually had to pay a marriage tax, often called a merchat, which often took the form of grain or livestock. A similar tax, called the heriot, was exacted from a serf's family, usually on the occasion of a death of the head of the household, the logic being that the Lord would no longer have the benefit of the labor of this serf, so he needed some sort of compensation. In many respects, serfdom sounds somewhat like slavery, as technically serfs were unfree, bound to the manner in which they lived and worked, and bound also to the lord of the manor. There was a small proportion of the population who were known as freeholders, peasants who owned and worked their own lands, or who paid a nominal rent to a lord, but did not otherwise owe him service. If you were to ask almost anyone living in 21st century America today, if they would prefer to be free or unfree, the answer would be clear. Free, of course. But if you were to ask a peasant living in the medieval world that same question, the response you might get would be, well, how much land do I get? Given the choice of being a free man with little or no land, or a serf with lots of land under one's control, the medieval peasant is going to pick unfree with land almost every time. Even without the promise of substantial land, serfdom provided many benefits to those of the peasant class in the form of guaranteed protection, food, and clothing in times of difficulty. It was a safety net that made the situation of being technically unfree quite desirable in many instances. As we move toward the later Middle Ages, we start to see the breakdown of the idea of the three orders, even though at its height, its divisions were never wholly impermeable, and it never functioned as ideally as many might have believed or hoped. Starting in the 14th century for a number of reasons, one of which is the occurrence of the Black Death, which killed 
up to a half of the population of the medieval world, and to which we'll devote an entire lecture later on, we start to see some real upward mobility in the third estate. As we head into the late medieval period, urban and merchant life becomes vital in a way it had not been since the fall of the Roman Empire. There is a sea change in the social order, as many commoners, particularly among the merchant classes, achieve levels of wealth that had previously been only possible for members of the nobility. At the same time, and for some of the same reasons, many of the members of the nobility found themselves rich in titles but poor in cash, leading to intermarriage between members of different strata of the three estates. A great example of this new upward mobility can be found in the person of Geoffrey Chaucer, a poet and sometime government official who lived in the 14th century and who has been called the father of English poetry. Chaucer was the son of a vintner, someone who imported wine, and the relative wealth of his family meant that he was able to receive an excellent education, which would be the foundation of his later success. The Teaching Company has a wonderful series of lectures devoted to Chaucer and his work, so I won't go into too much detail here concerning his life. Still, it is worth mentioning that Chaucer found employment in the house of John of Gaunt, son of King Edward III of England and the wealthiest man in the land, and in response to the death of John of Gaunt's first wife, Chaucer wrote one of his most important works, The Book of the Duchess. It was his skill and inventiveness as a writer, combined with a shrewd mind and entrepreneurial spirit, that raised his social status and that of his family, so that two generations later, his granddaughter was able to marry the Duke of Suffolk. And, not coincidentally, perhaps the best means of understanding the Three Estates model's ideal structure and its weaknesses or faults can be found in an examination of Chaucer's general prologue to his masterful and unfinished Canterbury Tales. This work participates in a genre of writing known as estate satire, wherein it was traditional to represent sort of stock characters or stereotypes such as a dishonest miller, a lascivious friar, a scheming pardoner, and a virtuous knight. While Chaucer was certainly not the first writer to work with estate satire, he is arguably the one who did it best, elevating his characters beyond mere stereotypes and including figures not typically found in estate satire. In particular, the roster of characters in the Canterbury Tales includes a significant number of figures representative of the rising merchant class of Chaucer's day. The premise of the Canterbury Tales is that a disparate group of people have come together at an inn known as the Tabard. From all walks of life, what these people have in common is that they are all engaged in a pilgrimage to Canterbury Cathedral and the Shrine of Thomas Becket some 70 miles away. The innkeeper decides to make things interesting and keep everyone entertained by suggesting that every pilgrim tell two stories on the way to Canterbury and two on the way back. The pilgrim judged to have told the best story will win a free dinner. Chaucer then offers us various tales told from the mouths of his various characters, a strategy that allows him to share with a reader or listener tales both religious and ribald, 
moral and mocking, something to please everyone. Before the storytelling begins, however, Chaucer gives us portraits of each of the travelers, and an examination of just a few of these will help us understand the ideals and flaws of the three estates model. Chaucer begins his character description with a knight who, with his son, is the only representative of the noble estate on this particular pilgrimage. As such, it is fitting that we start with the knight. And following the ideal of the social hierarchy, the knight is also the first pilgrim invited to tell a tale. His description is almost entirely focused on the numerous military campaigns he has fought. He represents the warlike, militaristic aspect of the noble classes, the original source of their power and status. By contrast, the knight's son, the squire, represents aspects of noble identity that had come to be just as important, if not more so, as elements of noble identity by Chaucer's day. While still a fighter, the squire, the knight's son, is identified primarily by his devotion to and service to ladies, as Chaucer tells us that he was a lover and a lusty bachelor, a lover and a lusty young knight, who is talented at singing, dancing, writing poetry, and playing the flute, and who has quite the fashion sense. So hut he loved that benictertal he sleep na more than doth a nictingala. In other words, so passionately did he love at night that he slept no more than did a nightingale. While Chaucer takes pains to tell us that the young squire has spent significant time on military campaigns, it is clear that what is most important about this character are his social graces, his courtly and chivalric attributes. At first, Chaucer moves in order through the three estates, so he proceeds from the nobility to the clergy several members of which are also on this pilgrimage. The character of the prioress, a kind of nun, is next described, but instead of a description highlighting her faith and devotion, Chaucer's narrator, an avatar of Chaucer the narrator, named Geoffrey, describes the prioress's singing, her ability to speak French, her exquisite table manners, and her love of small animals, qualities that would be more fittingly found in a noblewoman who was head of a secular household. Indeed, nuns in the medieval world were generally not supposed to go on pilgrimage out, outside the cloister. It was considered that within the convent walls, they were on a figurative pilgrimage that would arguably bring even greater spiritual rewards than any voyage taken through the physical world. Yet, we know that religious women often went on pilgrimages throughout the Middle Ages, and we know this because almost every year, various church officials would issue sternly worded injunctions forbidding nuns from leaving the convent to pursue such activities. The fact that this activity was constantly forbidden to nuns meant that they must constantly have been engaging in it. Why would they do such a thing? Well, Although many pilgrimages were physically rigorous, they could also be social events. We'll talk at much greater length about medieval pilgrimage in our next lecture, but the basic fact on which Chaucer is commenting here is that a pilgrimage could be good for the soul and good for the social life, and not everyone went on pilgrimages primarily for the spiritual benefits they might bring. Indeed, 
As I noted in the first lecture of this course, the opening lines of the Canterbury Tales, perhaps the most famous lines in all English poetry, suggest as much when Chaucer tells us that one that April with his shore as sota, the drought of March hath pierced to the rota, than longen folk to go on pilgrimage, or to translate roughly, when winter is over and the dryness of March has been tempered by sweet April rain showers, that's when people decide they'd like to go on a pilgrimage. In other words. Let's wait until the weather gets a little better before we set off to save our souls and honor God. Next in Chaucer's catalog is the monk, and like the prioress, his description hardly seems befitting a man of religion who has sworn an oath of poverty and who is supposed to be living within the walls of the monastery. Chaucer tells us how the monk has many wonderful horses that he loves to take out hunting, and how this man, who ideally should demonstrate. Restraint in all areas of his life is rather rotund, as he loves a good feast. Chaucer continues his skewering with his depiction of the miller, long a favorite figure for satire in the Middle Ages. It has been said that there is not a single honest miller in all of medieval literature, and Chaucer's miller fits the tradition perfectly as a coarse, drunken oaf who regularly cheats his customers. The miller in a medieval community performed an essential function, as it was to him that people had to bring their grain to be ground. As payment, the miller usually took a portion of the grain that he ground. This portion was known as the soke, S-O-K-E, and it is from this word that we get the phrase to get soaked, meaning to get taken advantage of. As millers notoriously always took a little extra grain here and there. On the other hand. Chaucer does offer some positive representatives of the three estates. The knight is the ideal representing the nobility. The character of the parson is held up as a good and virtuous representative of his class, and the peasantry have as their role model the plowman. Interestingly, and perhaps not coincidentally, these three characters and the stories told by those of them who manage to get around to it are incredibly boring. Much more interesting are the characters and tales of the scandalous pardoner, the crotchety reeve, and the unpleasant sumner. One of the most fascinating aspects of Chaucer's version of estate satire is that he includes several pilgrims in the general prologue who do not fit neatly into the three estates model, an indication of how that ideal was no longer an accurate reflection of the social structure of the medieval world. The doctor. The shipman, the cook, to name just three, none of these are really a part of the tradition of estate satire. Perhaps no one figure best displays this than the larger-than-life wife of Bath, whose status as a widow and a merchant contradicts traditional medieval ideas of both gender and class, demonstrating how, at this period, the social structure was changing. Five times married. The wife gives a scandalous account of her sex life that is riddled with euphemisms for female genitalia, such as "quaint," "silly instrument," and "belle chose," and she is perhaps the most entertaining pilgrim of the bunch, wearing a ten-pound headdress and red stockings. She, like so many others among this group, seems to regard pilgrimage as a kind of social activity. Kind of like an early version of going on a cruise, 
as she has been to all the major pilgrimage sites of the medieval world. Jerusalem, Rome, Bologna, Santiago de Compostela, Köln. And she had visited some of these sites more than once. Such travel throughout the medieval world suggests a remarkable freedom of movement and access to wealth that was unusual, but still common enough to confound and complicate the ideal of the three estates. Where does a wealthy, lusty widow involved in the cloth trade fit exactly? And what about the religious figures clearly not adhering to the ideals of their class? And characters such as the miller, who seem to be out only for themselves, with little interest in the greater social good. In his Canterbury Tales, Chaucer offers us a few model representatives of each of the three estates, but the preponderance of his characters display traits that are hardly in keeping with, and are often at odds with, the ideals of the three estates. Chaucer cleverly used the idea of pilgrimage as an organizing principle for his collection of tales. And as we will see in our next lecture, pilgrimages to religious sites were an important feature of medieval religious life for members of all social classes. Although Chaucer's pilgrims seem more interested in socializing than spirituality, thousands of medieval people felt compelled to make journeys to places as far away as Jerusalem and as close as the next village in search of forgiveness, to seek healing, to give thanks, to atone for sins, to demonstrate their faith. Next time, we will talk about the phenomenon of medieval pilgrimage and explore the saints, events, and objects that made the destinations at the end of these journeys holy. Lecture 15, Pilgrimage and Sainthood. Welcome back. In our last lecture, we discussed the structure of medieval society and the ideal of the three orders, or three estates, that held sway over the imagination of the population of the medieval world for centuries. According to this view, Society was divided into three groups of people, the nobles, those who fought, the clergy, those who prayed, and the peasants, or everyone else, those who worked. If society was to function properly, then the members of each order had to fulfill their particular duties and obligations. The nobles to take up arms in defense and protection of the other two orders, the clergy to engage in spiritual labor, in prayer, to help save the souls of the rest of society, and the peasants, to work the land and provide food and other necessities for the nobles and clergy. We concluded our last lecture with a brief look at some of the representatives of the three orders depicted in 14th century English writer Geoffrey Chaucer's masterpiece, The Canterbury Tales. In this text, perhaps the most famous work of medieval literature Chaucer uses the device of a pilgrimage as a means of assembling representatives of all three estates in one group. Now, while Chaucer may have been stretching things a bit, nobles rarely associated with peasants and most often would go on pilgrimage only with other nobles, his depiction of the activity rings true 
and that people from all levels of society took part in the activity of pilgrimage throughout the medieval world. Some pilgrimages were relatively short, perhaps just a journey to the next town where there might be a holy shrine, and some were long, perhaps to Rome or even Jerusalem, and others were in between. The Canterbury Tales pilgrims are described as journeying from London to Canterbury, a distance of about 70 miles. In today's lecture, we're going to discuss the phenomenon of pilgrimage in the medieval world and the ways in which certain sites came to be deemed holy, which usually occurred through association with a particular saint. In order to do this, however, we need to literally reorient ourselves in terms of how we imagine the geography of the medieval world. If one looks at medieval world maps, called Mapaimundi, one notices a very curious thing. Most of these maps are oriented so that at the top is not north, as is the case with modern maps, but rather east is the direction at the top of the map. At the center of most medieval Mapaimundi is the city of Jerusalem, a fact that reflects its centrality in the consciousness of medieval Christians. It was the center of the world, and although the journey could be long and dangerous, usually lasting some months or more, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem was one of the greatest expressions of religious faith available to medieval Christians, especially those who lived in the secular world. Such a journey to Jerusalem or other holy sites might be undertaken to give thanks, ask forgiveness for sins, to seek healing for afflictions, or to do penance at the order of one's confessor. Although we are talking about pilgrimage in a strictly medieval Christian context today, the activity of pilgrimage is not unique to Christianity. Many religions that predate Christian hegemony in the West include pilgrimage as part of their practices or rituals, and it is likely that the activity of pilgrimage was incorporated into Christianity from older traditions, rather than being something new that arose as a result of Christianity's rise in prominence. As early as the 4th century, it seems clear that Christians were making journeys to sites they viewed as being imbued with certain holy or spiritual aspects for a variety of reasons. There were several different motives that might be a factor in persuading medieval people to undertake the rigors and expense, sometimes substantial, of participating in a pilgrimage. In the earliest days of pilgrimage, one of the major motivations would be to seek healing from some sickness or affliction. Visitors to the shrine of St. Oswald, for example, would mix dust from near his gravesite in water and then drink it in hopes of a miraculous cure for whatever ailed them. Other sites, such as that of St. Martin of Tours, also became renowned for cures. The result was that many ill and ailing people essentially took up residence in these locations, and the monks and nuns would often care for them in what would become a de facto hospital. Some holy places associated with healing also had to designate space for all the crutches and other mobility aids left behind by people who had been healed and no longer needed them. 
The display offered hope to all those who arrived at the shrine, as it was a striking visual testament to the number of successful healings that had taken place there. People also made pilgrimages to seek forgiveness of a sin or sins. Sometimes this pilgrimage would be undertaken at the individual's own desire to make atonement for some past wrong, and sometimes such pilgrimages were given to individuals as penance by the sinner's confessor. Folk III, Count of Anjou, was ordered to perform four pilgrimages to the Holy Land to atone for the murder of his wife after he supposedly caught her in flagrante delicto with a goat herder. Not only did Folk make the required pilgrimage to the Holy Land, he did it in excessively spectacular repentant fashion, at one point having himself dragged through the streets and beaten with branches. While many pilgrims did not go to the lengths that Folk did, plenty of pilgrims sought to make their journeys to religious sites more holy by, for example, making the trip without shoes or maybe without a warm cloak or perhaps fasting along the way. The idea being that the more the flesh suffered, the greater the purification of the soul. The third major reason people tended to go on pilgrimages was to offer thanks for blessings that had occurred in their lives. And very often, such pilgrims would leave offerings at the tomb of a saint or holy shrine, an obvious benefit and source of income to the religious community in charge of overseeing and maintaining such places. Pilgrims left more than offerings of cash or goods, however, at such shrines. In the early medieval period, shrines such as that of St. Victor in Marseille were often filled with objects such as the chains of former prisoners who felt that they had been freed through the intercession of the saint, and they brought their shackles there as a form of offering and thanks. Other contemporary accounts tell of the crew of a fishing vessel who had prayed to St. Edmund during a storm. In gratitude for their survival, they supposedly fashioned an anchor out of wax, and brought it to Edmund's Basilica. Such offerings came to pose a problem in some instances, however, in that often the offerings were so many that there was no place to store them all. One ingenious abbot, Geoffrey of Vézelay, used the chains left behind by grateful pilgrims who had been prisoners to fashion a new set of altar rails. A fourth reason And one that we've discussed in previous lectures is the social or entertainment aspect of pilgrimage, which makes it a little like an early version of going on a cruise. As we've noted, people liked good weather for pilgrimages. Geoffrey Chaucer famously suggests this in the general prologue to his Canterbury Tales, which opens with a discussion of how people prefer to go on pilgrimages in spring. For reasons of safety and economy, Medieval pilgrimages tended to be undertaken in groups, and as the example of Chaucer's pilgrims makes clear, these groups would be interested in finding some entertaining way to pass the time as they traveled. The storytelling contest in which the Canterbury Tales pilgrims engage is probably in many respects true to the spirit and nature of many medieval spiritual journeys. The desire to prove that one had completed a pilgrimage led indirectly to the creation of pilgrim badges 
a kind of early souvenir that one could stitch to one's cap or cloak and thereby alert all and sundry that one had been to Rome or Santiago de Compostela or any other number of places, all of which had their own identifying symbols. Pilgrims who made the journey to Rome, for example, would often bear the symbol of a pair of crossed keys, representative of the fact that St. Peter held the keys to heaven. Those who had journeyed to Santiago de Compostela, the supposed shrine of James, one of Jesus' original disciples, would return home with the emblem of a scallop shell, as it was this symbol that is carved into the stone in front of the cathedral that houses the saint's remains, and stepping on the stone marks the end of a pilgrimage that traditionally is several hundred miles, usually beginning somewhere in France and ending in the northwest of what is modern-day Spain. For those who had been to Jerusalem, the badge most usually pinned to one's clothing as a mark of this accomplishment resembled crossed palm fronds. In his Canterbury Tales, Chaucer makes a reference to palmers, a word used to describe people who, more or less, spent their lives as professional pilgrims, traveling from shrine to shrine throughout the medieval world, often relying on the piety and generosity of those who regarded helping pilgrims on their way to these holy sites to be a form of prayer or pilgrimage itself. Interestingly, the display of badges was not the only way that pilgrims distinguished themselves from the rest of the population. Often, those going on a pilgrimage would don distinctive clothing before setting off, thus identifying themselves to all and sundry as engaged in a spiritual endeavor. In some cases, this piece of clothing might be a particular style of hat or a particular color of clothing. The late medieval Englishwoman Marjorie Kemp traveled throughout the medieval world dressed all in white, something that drew a great deal of attention to her and occasionally got her into trouble. Some pilgrims could also be identified by the staff they carried, which served both symbolic and practical functions, in that it could advertise a pilgrim's status while serving to help them on their long journey on foot. Those who were engaged in a pilgrimage were also entitled to special dispensations and exemptions. A letter from Charlemagne to King Offa of the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of Mercia, written in 797, is evidence of abuse of this special status, as it contains the emperor's complaint that some English merchants were dressing up as pilgrims in order to avoid paying tolls as they moved throughout the Carolingian Empire. Given that pilgrimage was supposed to be a solemn, spiritual undertaking, one might expect to find the atmosphere at the destination suitably hushed and reverent. This was usually not the case. Holy sites were often packed with people jostling one another for position, and in many places, the cries and moans of the sick or injured or those who were just plain emotional created a startling cacophony. In the early 12th century, Abbot Suget of Saint-Denis in Paris offered this justification for rebuilding the Abbey Church. Quote, On feast days, the mass of struggling pilgrims spilt out of every door. A man could only stand like a marble statue, paralyzed, and free only to cry out aloud. Meanwhile, 
The women in the crowd were in intolerable pain. They screamed as if they were in childbirth. In the cloister outside, wounded pilgrims lay gasping their last breath. The monks who were in charge of the reliquaries were often obliged to escape with the relics through the windows. As the practice of making pilgrimages increased in popularity and frequency throughout the medieval period, all sorts of what we might call support industries rose up along the most popular routes. Pilgrims would need food and drink, a place to sleep, and in some unfortunate circumstances, a place to be cared for if sick, and a place to die. While some pilgrims embraced the activity in its purest sense, essentially throwing themselves on the mercy of the world, most were better prepared and set out with ample coin to see them through to journey's end. Perhaps one of the most interesting medieval pilgrims is the late medieval English woman named Marjorie Kemp, whom I mentioned a moment ago. We know of Marjorie primarily because she dictated what may well be one of the earliest autobiographies in English, if not the earliest. A well-to-do member of the merchant class of the town of Lynn in Norfolk, she was a married woman and mother of 14 children who relatively late in her life began to have a series of spiritual experiences, many of which took the form of conversations with Jesus Christ and others of which manifested themselves in the form of what Marjorie herself referred to as cryings or vocal outbursts that seemed more than anything to annoy those around her. Like the Canterbury Tales pilgrims, Marjorie often traveled as part of a group, and on more than one occasion, her companions, to put it bluntly, tried to ditch her. So tired were they of what seems to be her constant hectoring concerning proper behavior, speech, and dress of good Christians. Marjorie made many pilgrimages to sites both far and near, and her journeys included visits to Rome and Jerusalem, as well as shorter trips to speak with religious figures, such as the anchoress Julian of Norwich. An anchoress was sort of a super-nun. As mentioned in a previous lecture, anchoresses and their male counterparts, anchorites, often lived completely enclosed in small cells with perhaps only a window onto the outside world. This spiritual athleticism and extremism gave many of them a holy, almost saintly reputation while they were still living, and drew many people seeking spiritual guidance to travel to their enclosures. But what made a site holy, and thus worthy of a journey to visit it, was usually its association with a particular saint, or if it was the repository of any saintly relics. A relic is any object directly associated with Jesus Christ or one of his saints, and it can be a body part, a piece of clothing, footwear, almost anything. Many such items are housed in containers known as reliquaries. Thus, those pilgrims who travel to the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris might venerate a piece of the true cross, a portion of the cross on which Christ was crucified, and this piece was housed in a magnificent gold and jeweled container. Although the piece of the cross itself is not readily visible, the large size of the container relative to the object within made veneration easier for those making the journey to see it. In Bruges, Belgium, 
a vessel containing some of Christ's holy blood is still displayed before the faithful every Friday. In the Italian hill town of Assisi, one can see the tomb that holds the remains of St. Francis in the basilica that is named for him. At the other end of the town, in the chapel of St. Clair, one can see the hair and sandals, among other things, of this friend and protege of St. Francis. In yet another Italian hill town, Siena, the head and thumb of St. Catherine are on display for all who wish to venerate them. Prior to the 12th century, there was little in the way of a formal process for declaring someone a saint. In 1173, Pope Alexander III reprimanded certain subordinates for venerating figures as saintly, whom he considered ill-suited for sainthood. Partly in response to this situation, a process known as canonization was put into place, a process that still exists to this day in order to assist the Church in determining whether or not a person in question had been a saint or not. Now, it is important to understand that the Church does and did not make saints. The Church only affirms the status that God has conferred on that person. Today, only the papacy may declare someone a saint. But in the medieval world, bishops and other more local religious leaders had the power to canonize, a fact which sometimes led to inconsistencies in the process of sainthood from place to place. In fact, no real formal means of canonization existed prior to the 11th century. In the early medieval period, saints were often made by popular acclaim, and local traditions as to what made someone eligible for sainthood varied so widely that one community's saint might be another one's average Joe, which resulted in some serious confusion in the roster of saints and later many figures who had been revered as saints for decades or even centuries were declared not to be saints at all. For example, after William the Conqueror claimed England, he installed his own bishop, a man named Lanfranc, as Archbishop of Canterbury. Lanfranc set out to clean house and after examining the Anglo-Saxon roster of saints, removed all but two of them from the official list of the canonized. Generally speaking, candidates for sainthood needed to have lived an exemplary life, and there needed to be evidence of some sort of miracle or miracles associated with the saint after that person's death. Those martyred for their Christian faith usually got to take the fast track, as it were, to sainthood. Sainthood in the medieval world could happen quickly or over a very long span of years. Thomas Becket, Archbishop of Canterbury, who was murdered in Canterbury Cathedral by four knights of King Henry II in the year 1170, was elevated to the status of saint within just three years. But even contemporaries felt a little uneasy about the speed with which he was canonized. This process could not always counteract popular sentiment, as the example of saint Junifor, a greyhound revered as a saint beginning in the 13th century, demonstrates. The story of saint Junifor begins near the town of Lyon in what is present-day France. According to the story, a faithful dog named Junifor is left alone briefly with the child of a nobleman. A member of the family comes into the infant's room to find a chaotic scene. 
the cradle has been overturned, the child is nowhere to be seen, and the dog has blood all over its muzzle. Thinking the worst, the nobleman immediately kills the dog. Just after he does this, he hears crying coming from underneath the cradle. There is the baby, unharmed, with the body of a snake lying beside it. Jennifer had in fact protected the child from the snake. With great sorrow, the family buries the dog with great estate. Some accounts say they put the body in a well, which they then filled in with stones. And fairly quickly, locals come to revere Jennifer as a kind of patron saint for infants. Many treat the dog's burial site as a shrine, and some locals even bring sick or injured infants there in hope of healing, actions that sometimes did more harm than good, as some people apparently would leave their children there at the base of the tree by the dog's grave for long periods of time, or hang them from the branches by their clothes, or even set the children down and light candles nearby. Babies and fire, anyone could tell you, really don't go together. Pretty quickly, church officials stepped in and said, look, you cannot have a dog be a saint, and we forbid any acts of worship at this animal's burial site. The church does not recognize that a greyhound could be given healing powers by God. Popular belief is hard to fight, however, and even though the church repeatedly issued injunctions against treating the site as a shrine, evidence suggests that it was a popular place for prayer and pilgrimage until at least the 1930s. But to return to human saints. Once a person had achieved sainthood, that person's bones and personal effects, clothing, hair, even fingernails, were, as I've previously mentioned, considered to be imbued with holy and healing powers, and they became, properly speaking, relics. Now, one of the key factors in determining whether someone was a saint was the test of incorruptibility, whereby the lack of decomposition of a person's corpse was regarded as a sign from God that this person was a saint. It is rather ironic, then, that once the process of canonization was complete, many saints' remains were broken up and dispersed among several religious sites, an eyeball here, a shinbone there, as it was recognized that the possession of a saintly relic could be a benefit to a religious house, as it would encourage more pilgrims to visit, many of whom would make donations to the institution that possessed these relics. Soon, there was a market in relics, with the leaders of religious houses and monarchs seeking to purchase the toe of this saint or the hand of that one, knowing that the presence of such relics could be a boon to one's community. Not surprisingly, such a situation resulted in opportunists flooding the market with fake relics. It was a situation that became even more pronounced in 1204, when the companies who had set off on the Fourth Crusade, which we'll discuss at greater length in a later lecture, got sidetracked in the city of Constantinople. The city was filled with religious relics, and the Crusaders, viewing those who followed the Eastern Orthodox Christian tradition as being unfit to be keepers of such sacred items, sacked the city and looted its religious objects. Soon a flood of relics, supposedly from Constantinople, began to flood into the Western medieval world 
with no way for devout believers to tell the fake from the real. It was a forger's dream and a nightmare for the religious leaders of the day. In his Canterbury Tales, Chaucer includes the character of the Pardoner, a man who roamed the countryside hearing confessions and granting pardon for sins, carrying religious objects with him that, for a fee, could be used in an attempt to effect cures for ailments, cleanse one of sins, and even help one's livestock and crops to thrive. As Chaucer tells us, the pardoner carries with him a piece of pillowcase, which he tells gullible listeners is part of the veil that belonged to Jesus' mother Mary. He passes off pig's bones as the remains of a saint and claims that another piece of fabric he carries with him is a portion of the sail of St. Peter. Chaucer goes on to say that, quote, With these relics, one that he found, a pauvre person dwelling upon Londe, upon a die, he got him more money than that person got in Montestoya, or, in modern English, with these fake relics, the partner is able to convince even a poor person to part with some cash, so that in one day the partner is able to make as much money as another man might earn in two months from honest labor. Although fiction, Chaucer's partner reflects real late medieval concerns with the abuse of relics and sacraments such as confession, a situation that contributed in no small measure to the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, during which many holy shrines were dismantled, and in some cases, the bones and other relics of saints were destroyed. The driving force behind such activity was the idea that what had come to be called the cult of the saints bordered on idolatry. Those who prayed to particular saints, it was believed, should more properly be praying directly to Jesus or to God the Father. Although the activity of pilgrimage abated somewhat, it continued and remains an important aspect of religious life for Christians, both Catholic and Protestant, today. Religious pilgrimage was a form of expressing piety in the medieval world, and those who engaged in this activity were not only participants in medieval spirituality, but through their actions, they also actually helped create and shape medieval religiosity. In the secular world, a preoccupation similar in the intensity of its pervasiveness and expression, but radically different in its nature, could be found. This was the interest with matters of chivalry and genealogy that became a major concern. One might say a kind of religion for members of the noble classes from about the beginning of the High Middle Ages onward. In our next lecture, we will discuss the fascination members of the first estate of the medieval world had with bloodlines and noble lineage, focusing in particular on the science of heraldry or coats of arms. We will explore how what began as a practical means of identifying friend and foe on the battlefield evolved into a rigid and rule-governed system that in some instances led to conflicts both physical and legal.
Lecture 16, Knighthood and Heraldry. Welcome back. In our last lecture, we discussed the medieval practice of pilgrimage and the saints to whose shrines people flocked throughout the Middle Ages. Medieval pilgrims made these journeys for a number of reasons, including to give thanks, to atone for sins, or to perhaps seek divine intervention with a particular problem or healing for a particular ailment. Pilgrimage was perhaps one of the most potent expressions of religion in the medieval world. At the same time that pilgrimage was increasing in frequency and popularity, in the secular realm, interest in genealogy and bloodlines was becoming almost a religion unto itself among the nobility. One of the most fascinating aspects of this almost obsessive interest with the science of heraldry, as it was called, or coats of arms, and the particular ideals and values of knighthood all came to be grouped together under the term chivalry. In our lecture today, we will explore the development of the knightly class in the medieval world and the traditions, beliefs, and practices that grew up around it. In the High Middle Ages, a new class of person was added to the lowest rung of the ladder of the nobility, the knight. Initially, entry into the order of knighthood was contingent upon whether an individual could purchase and maintain the equipment necessary for the office, sword, armor, and most importantly, a horse. As knights came to be considered members of the nobility, there soon arose a desire to limit and define the ranks of knighthood and to make the office a hereditary one. We have seen this pattern repeatedly. Once an individual accrues power, status, lands, wealth, or titles, there is a natural inclination to wish to pass these things on to the next generation and to pass them on more or less intact so that their potency does not become diluted by dividing a family's heritable wealth into smaller and smaller portions. As we've previously discussed, this impulse lent to the entrenchment of a system of primogeniture, or inheritance on the part of the eldest surviving son, more or less throughout the medieval world. Part of the development of this system would be an intense focus on identifying not only a particular family, but differentiating between senior and junior members of that family, or major and minor branches of a family, as we'll see in a moment. Over the course of the High and Late Middle Ages, the ideals and function of a knight began to shift, moving away from the practical activity of warfare and defense, and moving toward ideals of gentility, courtliness, and what we would call chivalry, the combination of martial prowess with romantic behavior toward ladies. We've already seen this shift depicted in Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales in the difference between his characters of the knight, who is a no-nonsense military man, and the knight's son, the squire, who is skilled at such activities as singing, dancing, and wooing ladies. It is a shift that would have a number of significant implications. Now, one of the most interesting ways that knights and other nobles sought to define their individual identities and those of their families 
was through the practice of heraldry, or what we might think of as coats of arms. The practice of painting one's shield with a particular image or color arose for very practical reasons. On the battlefield, one fully armed and helmeted knight looks very much like another. By painting a particular image on one's shield, one's friends and foes could more easily identify a particular knight. Over time, these images or patterns came to be associated with a specific family. And came to be referred to as a coat of arms, which followed particular rules of what is known as blazon. Men wore their coats of arms on their shields or occasionally on the trappings of their horses. A woman might wear a lozenge-shaped medallion bearing the coat of arms of her father until such time as she was married, at which point she would adopt the coat of arms of her husband. In a few instances, a man might combine his own family's coat of arms with that of his wife's, particularly if she came from a more powerful or more noble family than his own. The science of heraldry came to be quite rigorously defined, with only certain colors or textures allowed, and then in only certain patterns or orders, and the vocabulary associated with the practice. Sometimes sounds like a completely foreign language, which is not surprising, given that most of the terms were adopted from the French. I should pause here and note that although coats of arms were primarily used by the noble classes in continental Europe, at least any member of society could possess a coat of arms. The situation is somewhat different in England, where only members of the peerage, the nobility. Were allowed to display and use heraldic blazon. The elements that went into making up a shield of or coats of arms were basically three: one could use colors, metals, or furs. Any of these materials could be used to represent a particular animal or symbol, but there was a strict process of interpretation. The shield was normally red in layers, starting from the bottom layer up, with the lowest, most basic level called the field. A color could never be placed on a color, nor a metal on a metal, nor a fur on a fur. Thus, if a shield happened to have a red band on it, that red band could never be layered directly on top of a blue field. Nor could any gold element be placed directly on top of a silver element, nor vair, a type of fur, layered directly on top of miniver, another kind of fur, and so on and so on. The eldest male member of a household bore the family's coat of arms in its pure or original form, whereas sons of the main branch or members of related branches of a family. Might bear coats of arms that differentiated themselves in some way, by changing the color of the background or field, by reversing the main symbol or image, or by adding a border or band over the top of the whole thing. Such differentiations are known as marks of cadency or brigures, words which simply mean difference, essentially. An entire language to describe and explain these heraldic devices was quite developed by the end of the Middle Ages, with a specialized vocabulary and even syntax. So, for example, 
A knight bearing a coat of arms that, to our modern eyes, appears to depict a red stag walking with one leg raised on a yellow background would more properly be described in the language of heraldry as something like or a stag passant gule. The first word, or, the French word for gold, refers to the field or background of the shield. The next three words, a stag passant, refers to the animal on top of the field and the position in which he is depicted. Passant means an animal who is walking with one foreleg raised. If the stag were to be shown rearing up on his hind legs and pawing at the air, he would be described as rampant. If he were to be shown lying down, then he would be described as couchant. And finally, the last word, gule, is an older French word for the color red. To take another example, a shield with a white field and a red cross on top of it would be a shield argent, or silver, with a cross gule. Heraldic devices or coats of arms, came to be regarded as the exclusive property of a particular family. On those occasions when members of two different families discovered that they were each bearing similar or identical coats of arms, as could conceivably happen, a court case to decide the legitimate bearer of the arms might ensue, as in the famous Scrope Grosvenor dispute of the 14th century, at which the poet Geoffrey Chaucer himself testified as a witness. This incident began when King Richard II of England invaded Scotland in 1385. When his knights assembled to fight for their lord, two of them, Sir Richard Scrope and Sir Robert Grosvenor, discovered they each bore coats of arms that were nearly identical. They were both azure a bandor, or in English, a blue field with a gold band across it. Grosvenor already had a conflict about these particular arms. On a 1360 expedition to France, Grosvenor had discovered that a knight from Cornwall, one Thomas Carmino, was bearing arms identical to his. Presumably, this case was brought before a military court, but the outcome of the trial does not survive. Whatever the outcome was, it does not seem to have prevented either the Grosvenor or Carmino families from bearing the same arms. The later dispute between Scrope and Grosvenor is amply attested, and in this case, Carmino got involved again, charging that Scrope did not have the right to bear these arms. So we have three families, each claiming the right to bear a particular coat of arms. Supporters of each of the complainants were called to testify before the military court, primarily to give evidence as to how far back in time each of these families had borne these particular arms. In the end, the court found that Carmino's family had been bearing these arms since, quote, the time of King Arthur, something patently impossible, as the time of King Arthur, 5th century Britain, preceded the age of heraldry by several hundred years. The judges were also persuaded that the Scrope family had borne their arms since the time of the Norman Conquest, Another unlikely situation. In an initial ruling in 1389, the court found that Grosvenor could continue to bear the Azure Abandor arms as long as he differentiated it with a border around the shield. In 1390, the king himself revoked this decision, explaining that 
This difference was not a great enough distinction for two families who were not in some way related. Adding a border was essentially a mark of cadency, a brisure, something a cousin might do. For whatever reason, the Scrope and Carmineau families were both permitted to keep their identical coats of arms and have done so since the late 14th century. Grosvenor, on the other hand, had to pick a new heraldic device. He chose azure agarb or, or a blue field with a gold wheat sheaf on it. Grosvenor's descendant, the Duke of Westminster, has this heraldic device incorporated into his coat of arms even to this day. As the Scrope-Grosvenor dispute might suggest, as we move from the high into the late Middle Ages, those who held the office of knighthood were becoming somewhat less engaged with the practical day-to-day concerns of military skill and defense, and more obsessed with the details and trappings of this position. Nothing demonstrates this more clearly than a change in the way that peculiarly upper-class entertainment, the tournament, was conducted. The tournament had its origins, like coats of arms, in practicality. When not fighting actual wars, knights needed to keep in fighting form, so tournaments served as a sort of means of practice and entertainment, as knights would joust against one another or compete in mock battles, known as melee. By the late medieval period, however, these tournaments had become more about spectacle and less about training, as is evidenced in the fact that a knight might have two sets of completely different equipment, one that was used for tournament fighting and one that was used for real fighting. This development was not just due to shifts in attitudes about the rank of knight and its inclusion in the noble classes, although that was indeed part of it. As we move through the medieval period, advances in weaponry made the mounted knight on horseback almost unnecessary and obsolete. Whereas in the year 1000, the mounted cavalry might have been the most potent element of the medieval army, by the year 1500, archers, trebuchet or catapults, cannon, gunpowder, and other similar developments meant that military strategy did not have much use for a heavily armored man brandishing a sword on the back of an animal that it was extremely costly to maintain and train. We'll focus much more on how warfare and military tactics evolved throughout the Middle Ages in a later lecture, but for now, it's important that we recognize how the ideal of the knight as a champion of justice, righter of wrongs, and devoted rescuer of ladies had become a popular belief enshrined in the literature of the day. As with the case of the concept of the three orders of society, the knight as the epitome of all that was right with medieval society was a difficult idea to dispel once it had a hold on the popular imagination and a place in the fashionable fiction of the day. This was particularly the case in those stories dealing with the legendary King Arthur. As we've previously discussed, the 12th century Welsh cleric Geoffrey of Monmouth was arguably the writer whose treatment of King Arthur brought the legendary British monarch to the attention of the rest of the medieval world. Geoffrey's History of the Kings of Britain was a bestseller in its day, 
being translated and circulated throughout Britain and on the continent. As I noted in our lecture on King Arthur, this is evidenced in part by the number of copies of Geoffrey's manuscript that survive. We have over 200 extant copies of the history of the kings of Britain. Compare that with some 80 surviving manuscripts of Chaucer's famous Canterbury Tales and just one manuscript containing that masterpiece of late medieval romance, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Geoffrey of Monmouth's text is important for many reasons, but for our purposes today, what was most important was that he explicitly linked excellence in combat with romantic love in his history. Geoffrey tells us that in the court of King Arthur, women refused to grant their love to a knight until he had proven himself in combat three times. By this means, the knights increased in their martial prowess, and the modesty and chastity of the female population of the court was also greatly enhanced. 12th and 13th century French writers took the ideal of the chivalric knight to new extremes, particularly in the stories concerning the great knight, Sir Lancelot. Now, it is always a crushing blow to my students when I teach the Arthurian tradition for them to discover that the legendary Sir Lancelot most likely never existed, that there seems to be no historical basis for his figure. He first appears in the works of a French writer of the 12th century named Chrétien de Troyes, and the creation of this knight and his explicit status as the greatest knight at the court of King Arthur most likely came about, at least in part, as a way for the French to get involved with the hottest literary phenomenon in town, the heroes of which were, for the most part, all English. Lancelot du Lac, Frenchman and the greatest knight to wield a sword in all medieval literature, was famous in no small measure because of his love for Queen Guinevere. It is his devotion to the wife of the king at whose table he sits that is, in fact, responsible for most of his stellar reputation. Because of her, in Cretian's tales and throughout the later Arthurian tradition in the medieval world, Lancelot repeatedly leaves the court, seeking out adventures in which he can prove himself and thereby win her admiration and esteem. The potentially ridiculous extremes of the knightly ideal of devotion to a lady are also made clear in tales about this greatest knight of King Arthur in that we see Lancelot willing to humiliate himself in order to please the queen. On one occasion, while fighting a duel beneath the tower from which the queen is watching, Lancelot engages in all sorts of ridiculous contortions so that he may keep his eyes on his beloved while he fights. He is gaining ground and pushing his opponent back when he suddenly realizes he is out of view of the queen. He then gives up the ground he has gained and moves backward so that he can see her again. When he and his opponent end up switching positions on the field of combat, Lancelot turns so that he is facing the tower while continuing to fight backward with his arm behind him, all so he can keep looking at Guinevere. Another story tells of how Lancelot enters a tournament while wearing a disguise. 
It's difficult to find someone to fight you when you're known as the best knight of the world. So Lancelot often has to resort to trickery such as this, just so he can keep his skills sharp. Guinevere, suspecting that the knight in disguise might be Lancelot, sends one of her handmaidens to him. The maiden tells the mysterious knight that Queen Guinevere wishes him to do his worst. The next day at the tournament, Lancelot performs abysmally. Losing challenge after challenge and suffering the mockery of all those in attendance, Guinevere then sends her handmaiden to tell Lancelot to do his best. After which, of course, he reverts to his splendid knightly self, winning the tournament resoundingly. Although this is fiction, it does suggest, at the very least, the extent to which the practical and useful nature of knighthood had been compromised over time. As the power of a lady's command could conceivably result in knights being injured or killed, and battles lost. At the end of the Middle Ages, an Englishman named Sir Thomas Malory glorified knighthood and knightly activity in his Mort d'Arthur at precisely the same moment when knighthood had become more of a blight than a boon to society. As the Wars of the Roses in England, which we'll talk about at greater length in a later lecture, would demonstrate resoundingly, Malory was a minor nobleman, a knight, at a time and place, 15th century England, when the practical function of knighthood had become obsolete. No longer did monarchs rely on their noble vassals for a certain number of days of military service per year. That duty had largely been obviated by the ability of knights to pay a tax known as scutage, which meant that instead of committing to fight, say, forty days out of the year in their lord's conflicts, knights could simply pay a fine and stay home. Their lord could then use that money to hire archers, gunners, and the like—a much more effective means of engaging in combat and a more prudent use of funds. Although a knight, there is little about Sir Thomas Malory that resonated with the ideals of chivalry that continue to be such a popular element of romance literature of the day. To put it bluntly, Malory was something of a scoundrel. At various times, he was charged with crimes that ranged from ambush to cattle stealing to assaulting an abbot to rape. Now, some of these charges may have been trumped up; they may have been politically motivated. The dispute between the rival royal houses of York and Lancaster during Malory's lifetime meant that knights and other nobles were regularly switching sides, depending upon which claimant to the throne was in power. And many of these knights ended up in prison as a result. Although we can't be entirely sure of Malory's guilt. It seems pretty certain that he was no Lancelot, and he was one of those who ended up in prison. Now, during his captivity, he decided to do a rather curious thing, and something that no other medieval writer had done before him, and something that no other writer would do with any real success after him until the modern period. He decided to write a book that glorified precisely those knightly behaviors and attributes. So glaringly absent from 15th-century English society, and the lack of which had most likely landed him in jail. And in this book, 
he set out to tell the most coherent, comprehensive, and chronological story of King Arthur a single medieval author had ever composed. He began at the beginning and moved through the story of Arthur and his rule to the very end, to Arthur's death and beyond. Along the way, he incorporated the various adventures of many of Arthur's knights, such as Lancelot, Gawain, Gareth, and Tristan. Mallory drew heavily on earlier French and some English sources for his tale, weaving together different elements of the story, the founding of the Round Table, the quest for the Holy Grail, the love of Lancelot and Guinevere, to produce a rich and varied whole. He also added one key element that was entirely his own, and this is a vow taken by Arthur's knights at the Feast of Pentecost. In this so-called Pentecostal oath, Mallory articulates both the values and ideals Knights of the Round Table should uphold, while simultaneously calling attention to many of the less-than-noble activities of other knights living in his time. According to Mallory, the knights swear, quote, "...never to do outrage nor murder, and always to flay treason, and to give mercy unto him that asketh mercy upon pine of forfeiture of their worship and lordship of King Arthur for evermore, and always to do ladies, damsels, and gentlewomen, and we do with succor, strengthen him in herictus, and never to enforce them upon pine of death. Also, that no man take no batilis in a wrongful quarrel, for no love, nay for no world this goodis. In other words, noble knights should never commit outrage or murder or treason. They should always help women, and they should not rape them. Knights should not agree to fight a battle simply out of love for a lady or for some payment of cash or goods. It is striking that so many things that Mallory's knights swear to avoid are things that Mallory himself was accused of. Mallory has his knights swear to uphold this oath early on in the text, and then he depicts Arthur's knights struggling to adhere to these ideals, some of which conflict directly with one another from time to time as the narrative moves toward its inevitable conclusion, Arthur's death and the collapse of the society he founded. Mallory's text is important for our understanding of medieval knighthood in that it seems to simultaneously promote specific chivalric ideals as a means of stabilizing society while also depicting these ideals as almost impossible for knights to adhere to consistently and successfully. Mallory's text is thus a product of his age when knighthood was essentially broken. In his Mort d'Arthur, he both condemns and praises chivalry, suggesting that its ideals, while laudable and noble, ironically compromise the very social order they're meant to support in their contradictory nature and the vagueness of their articulation. Yet, well beyond the medieval world, into what we might call the early modern period and even later than that, the ideals of knighthood and chivalry 
would continue to hold sway over the popular imagination. In England, in particular, writers such as Edmund Spencer, Sir Philip Sidney, and even John Milton would look back toward the medieval world with a kind of nostalgia, and invoke the values of courtliness and knighthood in their literature. Spencer's epic *Fairy Queen*, for example, is an allegory that, at least in part, celebrates the reign of Queen Elizabeth I through the depiction of characters that, at times, seem drawn straight from the Arthurian legend. Similarly, Sir Philip Sidney's *Arcadia* draws on episodes and themes from the medieval romance tradition. Milton. Perhaps most famous for his masterpiece *Paradise Lost*, first considered writing an epic poem on the subject of King Arthur. After some consideration, he abandoned that topic in favor of a religious one. But the fact that he seriously considered it at all points to the lingering power of medieval concepts of nobility, gentility, and military prowess. Thus. In the literature of the medieval world, we find preserved extreme examples of the ideals that helped shape the self-concept of the noble classes. Heraldic devices also serve as testaments to the desire of those at the top of the social ladder to identify and define their bloodlines and to maintain their position in the hierarchy of the medieval world. While interest in chivalry and heraldry became almost a religion for the noble classes during the High Middle Ages and beyond, true religious belief and devotion were leading medieval people to construct some of the most awesome edifices the world has ever seen—monuments to faith and piety. These were the great cathedrals of Europe, which will be the subject of our next lecture. Lecture Seventeen: The Gothic Cathedral. Welcome back. In our last lecture, we discussed the chivalric tradition in medieval society and its literature, examining how a concern with chivalric values and the system of heraldry, or coats of arms, became a nearly religious obsession with members of the noble estate. Today, we're going to shift our focus back to religion proper, and explore how faith and piety led to the construction of some of the most awesome and awe-inspiring structures the world has ever seen. These are the Gothic cathedrals that sprang up throughout the medieval world, starting in the 12th century. On July 14th, in the year 1140, at the Church of Saint Denis near Paris. A new form of architecture came into being, which would dominate European architecture, especially religious architecture, for the rest of the Middle Ages. That style is known today as Gothic, a misnomer since it has absolutely nothing to do with those people called the Goths, whose interactions with the late Roman Empire helped to bring about its transformation into the medieval world, and about whom we talked in one of our earliest lectures. 
The term Gothic was retroactively applied much later and may have come from the idea that when the Goths overran the Roman Empire, they brought to an end building in the classical Greek and Roman style. Whatever its source, Gothic is the term all scholars of the Middle Ages use to discuss this architectural phenomenon, which began in the 12th century and which had its fullest expression in the cathedrals found mostly in France and England, which are true marvels of architecture, engineering, and artistry, and still inspire awe in visitors to this day. In order to understand the significance of this new style and its origins, we have to go back in time to the Christianization of the Roman Empire. As we discussed in an earlier lecture, once persecutions of Christians had ceased, Christianity solidified its position within the empire by borrowing from the secular and bureaucratic institutions of Rome. One way it did this was to model the early churches after the shape of many Roman public halls. This shape was the basilica, which was essentially a long rectangular building with one end built in the shape of a semicircle. This end was called the apse, and it usually had a high vaulted ceiling, and it was where the altar was situated when this building style was borrowed by Roman Christians. By about the year 1000, most European churches were built in what we today call Romanesque style. As you might guess from its name, this style was also ultimately modeled on Roman architecture and is distinguished by several key features. Perhaps the best known and most easily identifiable of these is the shape of the arch that is used for windows, for doors, and is part of the supporting structure inside the church. The Romanesque arch is a simple, round arch. As builders wanted to construct larger and more impressive edifices around the turn of the first millennium, they strengthened these churches and cathedrals with massive stone walls. And in order to support the structure, the inside of the church would be broken up by several thick stone columns that were classical in style, very often having capitals, as you might see on classical Greek and Roman columns. And these columns worked to support the heavy stone vaulted ceilings. The divisions made by these columns are known as bays, and this chopping up of the interior space of a Romanesque church is one of the hallmarks of this form of architecture. When Gothic architecture appeared on the scene in the early 12th century, the architectural elements it used were not necessarily new, but what Gothic did is borrow from different architectural traditions and combine these elements in an utterly new and original way that made it possible to construct houses of worship that seemed to soar, that were taller and lighter than any that had been seen before, and thus seemed a truly fitting place to try and become close to God. Perhaps the most identifiable element of Gothic architecture is, as in the case with Romanesque architecture, the arch used for windows and door entrances. But whereas the Romanesque arch was a simple round arch, the Gothic arch was pointed at the top, which had several advantages from an architectural point of view. One of these was that it was possible to have arches of different widths all be the same height, 
a strategy that could be effective both from an aesthetic standpoint and from a practical standpoint, in that this was a new way to deal with the weight or thrust of all that stone that went into the construction of a church. The pointed arch was not the invention of Abbot Suger or his architects. Rather, it had been in use for some time in Burgundy, and the abbot and his builders borrowed this style when they were rebuilding the choir of Saint Denis. The truly innovative thing that they did is that they combined this pointed arch with a style of vaulting, of making high ceilings out of stone that was known as rib vaulting and which had been in use in Normandy. And we should remember that although they are part of what we think of as France today, in the 12th century, Normandy and Burgundy were essentially their own sovereign territories, and the dukes of Normandy were in fact also kings of England. The 12th century entity known then as France was relatively weak compared to these two regions on its borders, despite the fact that the two French kings who were involved with the rebuilding of Saint-Denis, Louis VI and Louis VII, considered these regions to be properly part of France as a whole, as part of the patrimony of Charlemagne. Indeed, it is significant that this architectural innovation took place at Saint-Denis because this church was the burial place of many of the leaders of the Merovingian and Carolingian dynasties. The church was also dedicated to France's patron saint, Saint Dionysus, so the innovative work here was significant not only from an architectural standpoint, but from a political standpoint, as the re-glorification of Saint-Denis was felt to mark a turn in the fortunes of France and the French kings who, as I just noted, were weak in comparison to the rulers of Burgundy and Normandy. So Saint-Denis borrowed the pointed arch from the Burgundians, rib vaulting from the Normans, and there were a few other key innovations. Instead of using heavy, thick walls for support, Gothic architects throughout the period wanted to aim for a feeling of lightness, so much thinner stone walls were used than had traditionally been the case. And instead of supporting them from the inside with massive columns that broke up the interior space, buttresses, often called flying buttresses, were used on the outside of the building as a means of transferring weight and thrust down into the ground. With new strategies for support, this allowed Gothic architects to try some new things when it came to apertures for light. Romanesque churches had tended to have very thick walls, occasionally broken up by small windows to let in a little bit of light. One of the hallmarks of the Gothic cathedral quickly came to be what is called stone tracery, a kind of light latticework of stone into which could be fitted panes of stained glass that would flood the interior of the church with colored light. Perhaps the best example of this is the Cathedral of Saint-Chapelle in Paris, which has been described as a medieval light box by some. Instead of stone walls into which windows have been placed, the effect is one of colored glass from floor to ceiling, with the stone tracery that holds up all that glass almost invisible.
Once this style came into being, it caught on quite quickly. And between 1180 and 1270, around 80 cathedrals are built in France. From a very early moment, cathedrals became a way of broadcasting the power and prestige of France, with some scholars going so far as to say that the age of high cathedral building was just one expression of newly aggressive and expansionist French monarchic intentions. In the late 12th century, architects in England began to adopt this style, and it becomes the predominant mode of religious building for the rest of the period, with very little real innovation occurring, except for attempts to build higher and to add more and more elaborate tracery and decorative flourishes to Gothic structures. Now, I should pause here to make a note about the word cathedral. I've been using it as probably the man or woman on the street would, as a term to describe a large building where religious worship takes place. What makes a cathedral a cathedral, however, is not its size or its style or its location. What makes a cathedral a cathedral is the presence of the cathedra, that is, the bishop's seat. So usually the bishop's seat will be in the largest church in his bishopric, which then becomes, by definition, a cathedral. But there are a few instances of glorious grand churches that would seem to fit the description of cathedral but are not because they happen not to be the bishop's seat. And there are a few instances of relatively small churches, in fact, being called cathedrals because they have the bishop's cathedra. While I don't wish to belabor this point, it is something to be aware of and a little bit of information with which you can amuse and amaze your friends. The layout of a cathedral is fairly consistent. As opposed to the long rectangular shape of the basilica, a cathedral is laid out as a cruciform, meaning that it has four arms, and in this it recalls the cross on which Jesus was crucified. The longest arm is the nave, and this is the part of the cathedral where worshippers would gather to hear Mass. One thing that always surprises Americans, especially those who might be visiting cathedrals in Europe for the first time, is the seating. Very often, in many cathedrals, there will be folding chairs set up for the service, and this seems to many to be a jarring anachronism. I often have students ask me, where are the pews? And the answer is that, originally, there were no pews. The congregation simply stood in the nave. When it was time to kneel, they knelt on the hard stone floor. Some well-to-do worshippers might bring along cushions, specially made for just such a situation, and to protect their knees from the cold and discomfort of the stone, while many felt that such discomfort was an important part of demonstrating one's faith. The building of a cathedral was a massive undertaking that involved hundreds, if not thousands of people, and which might last decades or even centuries in a few cases. This meant that the architect, the master builder, and others who were in on the ground floor, as it were, of the design and construction of a cathedral, most certainly would not live to see it completed. In addition to requiring the most advanced in the way of architectural and technological skills, the head of such a project needed to have what we might call excellent management and people skills. He needed to be able to oversee a variety of craftsmen, masons, carvers, 
everyone from those hired to perform brute manual labor to those engaged in the finest, most delicate detail work, and everyone in between. One gets a sense of this if one looks at the record of men employed to work on the construction of Westminster Abbey in the year 1253. For the week of June 23rd that year, the records list 53 stonecutters, 49 monumental masons. These would most likely be responsible for carving letters or images into monuments that would go into the cathedral. 28 regular masons, 28 carpenters. Fifteen sanders, seventeen smiths, fourteen glassmakers, four roofers, and two hundred and twenty laborers who would be employed to set all this stone in place. And this doesn't even take into account the quarrymen who cut the large block of stone from the earth to begin with, and those who transported the stone from the quarry to the building site. Those who dressed and shaped the stone needed an accurate way to ensure that they were paid. So, if you go to a cathedral today, you can often find small marks incised on many of the stones, and very visible if you just look closely. Every stone cutter had his own mark, sort of like a brand. It might be a geometric shape. It might occasionally be an initial. And this claiming of ownership of work was important, not only so that the number of stones completed by an individual could be counted and he could be paid what he was owed, but also so that the overseers of the project could check the quality of the work of the individual stonecutters. Another kind of mark that might be visible on the walls of cathedrals, if you look for it, are what are called position marks. A cathedral might have spaces designated for hundreds or thousands of statues, and it was important that workers know the correct location of each. In the great cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, a series of statues representing the months of the year had actually originally been installed in the wrong order, and it was not too long after this that the overseer of the cathedral of Reims found himself confronted with the need to correctly position. More than three thousand statues. He came up with a system of marks that told the laborers information about where a statue should go. The first mark indicated which side of the cathedral. The next mark, which doorway beside which the statue was to stand, and then third, the exact position with regard to the doorway. This was a clever system that was far more efficient. Than having a unique symbol for each of the statues, and then trying to match them to their locations, or having to carve out lengthy directions. The construction of Gothic cathedrals often took place over or incorporated earlier structures. So, in many cases, if one starts at the bottom and moves up, one is also moving through time. For example. If one goes to Canterbury Cathedral in England today and starts at the bottom, underneath the nave, one finds oneself on the original site of the cathedral that was built here in 597, when Augustine of Canterbury, the first bishop in England, came to Christianize the Anglo-Saxons. Later, this portion of the church was extensively rebuilt in a Norman style, which was similar to Romanesque in its dependence upon. 
massive stone columns for support. One can still see this Norman style in the 11th century crypt beneath the cathedral today. In the 11th century, Archbishop Lanfranc had a cathedral constructed above the crypt that was Romanesque in style. We start to see a more obvious mishmash of styles in the late 12th century after a fire destroyed the section of the cathedral known as the choir. And if we go back to thinking of the shape of a cathedral as a cross with four arms, the choir is the short arm directly above where the nave meets the other two short arms that come out to the side. So if one is standing in the nave and looking straight ahead, one is looking directly toward the altar. And beyond this is the choir. Canterbury's choir was destroyed by fire in 1174. And to rebuild it, a French architect named William of Saint, who was familiar with the groundbreaking work of Saint-Denis, was hired. The rebuilt choir of Canterbury would prove to be hugely influential. And many other choirs of English churches were built at this time using this style, which came to be known as Early English Gothic. Canterbury's nave, however, remained Romanesque until the 14th century, when many scholars believe that an architect named Henry Yevela, who was the master builder of the royal court, designed and constructed a new one. What is most impressive about this nave is the sense of verticality it imparts. The piers, or supports, are unusually slender, and the sense of height and of a single unified space is overwhelming, so much so that it is considered a prime example of a style that scholars have come to call English perpendicular Gothic. As you may gather from the use of phrases like early English Gothic or English perpendicular Gothic, it was not long after the building of the choir at Saint-Denis before the basics of Gothic architecture spread throughout France and then throughout Europe to England, Spain, and Germany, and then became what we might call localized. That is, variations developed in particular places that were unique to that geographic location. Interestingly, with a few notable exceptions, Gothic never really caught on in Italy. By the 14th century, the localization of Gothic architecture was full-blown. In France, the big deal was big round windows in a style that has come to be called flamboyant. In Spain and Portugal, Gothic architecture was quote-unquote enhanced with excessive decorative flourishes, many of which seem somewhat bizarre today. In Germany and Central Europe, Gothic distinguished itself by a sort of wild play on ideas of vaulting patterns. And in England, styles diverged into decorated and perpendicular. What is fascinating about Gothic architecture is that it is the dominant style of religious building in most of Western Europe for about 500 years, from the mid-12th century to the mid-17th century. For the first half of that period, Gothic building was full of new and exciting innovations. For the second half, the only thing that was new was the seemingly endless fascination with adding decorative flourishes or making parts of the cathedral taller, longer, and bigger. And although there are many elements of Gothic architecture that would seem to be consistent from place to place, each church or cathedral is truly unique, 
And I'd like to talk about just two examples of Gothic architecture that demonstrate this uniqueness. The first is Chartres Cathedral in France, the birthplace of Gothic, and the other is Salisbury Cathedral in England, one of the most striking architectural examples in that country. Chartres Cathedral is interesting for a number of reasons, and the first and most obvious reason is clear if you stand in front of it and look at the facade of the cathedral. The first thing you will notice is that there are two spires on either side of the entrance to the cathedral, but where one might expect symmetry, there is none. The one on the right, which is about 350 feet high, is quite simple, without overly elaborate decoration, and dates from about the 1140s. The one on the left, as you're standing outside and facing the front of the church, is almost 380 feet tall, and it is an ornate explosion of the flamboyant style of Gothic architecture, and it was built in the 16th century. So, before you even enter Chartres Cathedral, you have a reminder of how long the process of building a cathedral could be, and how styles and tastes might change over the centuries during which the cathedral was undergoing construction. Between these two towers is one of the most famous elements of Chartres, and that is one of its three so-called rose windows, which contain some of the most vivid medieval stained glass still in existence in the world today. During World War II and the occupation of France, the stained glass was actually taken out and hidden. The building itself became a German social club during the occupation. After the war ended, the stained glass was taken out of hiding and restored to, to the cathedral, so this is a truly amazing story of historic preservation. Like many cathedrals, the current site of Chartres had been the location of a church or cathedral for centuries before the present cathedral was built. Most of these earlier structures were destroyed by fire, but no matter what kind of structure was there, the cathedral's importance as a focal point for the local community is instructive as we consider how other cathedrals function similarly. Arguably, the church was the center of the local economy, with sellers of various wares setting up shop just outside a particular church door. At the northern end of the church, you could find sellers hawking textiles. At the southern end, one could find meat and vegetables. Wine merchants actually conducted business in the nave of the church, and this was also where laborers of various sorts might come if they were looking for work. For a time, the crypt of the church was used as a kind of hospital to care for sick pilgrims who came there seeking cures for various ailments. Chartres was a popular pilgrimage destination because it had a very powerful relic, the cloak of the Virgin Mary and this made it one of the top choices of destination for people who were going on pilgrimage. When one of the various incarnations of the church burned down in 1145, it was at first thought that the relic had been lost in the fire. By a miracle, it survived, and this was taken to mean that the Virgin desired a more magnificent site to house her relic. A campaign to rebuild the cathedral on a truly magnificent scale thus began, and donations to the cause came in from all over Europe. The rebuilding itself was plagued by several fires that destroyed portions of the rebuilt cathedral. 
The main portion of the cathedral as we see it today was actually built fairly quickly, in about 30 years, at the end of the 12th and beginning of the 13th century, and it was dedicated in 1260 in the presence of King Louis IX. Although the ambitious plans for the spires were never executed, which is why we have the facade as it exists today, with one tower a remnant from the 12th century that survived many of the catastrophes that befell the cathedral. And the other, an attempt to complete the facade, but in a much different style. Like many cathedrals, Chartres is full of statues and carvings that tell various biblical and other stories. For example, on the west facade there are various scenes from the life of Christ, and below these, what appear to be depictions of various kings and queens of France. This close juxtaposition is deliberate, as it would seem to suggest the divine right of French royalty to rule. Like many other cathedrals, Chartres also had a renowned cathedral school, and this was a direct result of Charlemagne's educational reforms enacted during that period, called the Carolingian Renaissance. He decided to set up schools, and instead of building new structures, he made use of monasteries and cathedrals that already had the space, the texts. And in many cases, the greatest minds of the day attached to them. Chartres became an especially renowned cathedral school, so much so that the renowned philosopher John of Salisbury traveled there from England to study, eventually becoming the cathedral's bishop. This high academic reputation is reflected in sculptures of the seven liberal arts over one of the portals into the church, and understanding. Of the seven liberal arts was considered the foundation of a good education in the Middle Ages. The seven arts were usually split into two groups, known as the trivium and the quadrivium, what we might translate as the three roads and the four roads. The arts of the quadrivium were arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music, and the arts of the trivium were grammar, rhetoric, and logic. It is this last art for which Chartres. Became most famous. Now, in contrast to Chartres, which was built and added to over many centuries, and thus displays a variety of Gothic styles, the Cathedral of Salisbury in England was built in what might be called record time. The foundation stone was laid in 1220, and by 1258, the main portion of the cathedral was complete. That's pretty quick for cathedral building, but as is the case with so many Gothic cathedrals. This was not the end. Work has continued on Salisbury Cathedral up until the very end of the 20th century. In 1265, a bell tower was built. In the early 14th century, a more ambitious tower and a spire were added to the cathedral, and this has proven to be Salisbury's most fascinating feature. At over 400 feet tall, it is the tallest spire from pre-15th century Europe still standing. But even as it is a masterstroke of medieval engineering, it is also a colossal blunder in many respects. The entire weight of the spire is supported by just four columns or piers of Purbeck marble, and under the weight of the spire, the stone piers themselves are twisting, which you can see if you go into the cathedral and look up the length of the piers from the bottom. Over the centuries. Various strategies have been used to shore up the spire, from adding buttresses to iron supports on the spire itself when it was found to be leaning out of true. In the year 
what one hopes is the final restoration effort on the spire and other parts of the cathedral was completed. Like Chartres, Salisbury also had a cathedral school, which had existed in some form more or less from the year 1091, when the bishop's seat was nearby at Old Sarum. It most likely was an early place of study for John of Salisbury, whom I've already mentioned as one of the most famous of Chartres Cathedral School's students and one of the greatest philosophic minds of the medieval world. Cathedrals thus became important centers in the medieval world. They were places of learning. They became sites for trade and business. And most importantly, they were centers for religious devotion. As such, the building of a cathedral came to be referred to as a crusade in stone, so powerful was this structure in the way it served as a focal point for faith and piety, for those who designed it, for those who funded it, and for those who prayed in it. The phrase crusade in stone is obviously an allusion to one of the other great manifestations of religious faith in the medieval world, the crusading movement, which sought to reclaim the city of Jerusalem and the Holy Land in the Middle East for Christendom. In our next two lectures, we will explore the crusading movement, examining the religious, political, and economic impulses behind it, and the way in which contact with the Muslim world far to the east would have significant ramifications for the medieval world in the West. Lecture 18, Piety, Politics, and Persecution. Welcome back. In our last lecture, we discussed one of the greatest expressions of faith known to the medieval world, the Gothic cathedral, the building of which was sometimes referred to as a crusade in stone. In the next two lectures, we're going to discuss that phenomenon to which the phrase crusade in stone alludes, the movement to reclaim the city of Jerusalem and the Holy Land in general for Christendom. As we discussed in the lecture on pilgrimage, Jerusalem was the center of the world for medieval Christians, and for hundreds of years, Christians had been making pilgrimages there. But Christians were not the only visitors to Jerusalem. There was a sizable Christian population in Jerusalem, and by the end of the 11th century, Christians, Jews, and Muslims had been living in the area that we would call the Holy Land, side by side, and relatively peaceably, for quite some time. But in 1095, Pope Urban II called for a new kind of pilgrimage, one that would take back the Holy Land from Muslim control, and in doing so, would help the Byzantine Empire, a plea that was cleverly designed to capitalize on the still potent idea of the Roman Empire. Essentially, Urban was calling on the citizens of what had been the western half of the empire to come to the aid of the citizens of what had been the eastern half of the empire, the suggestion being that this might result in some sort of symbolic or literal reunification. Now, as is so often the case, there is much more here than meets the eye at first. At the end of the 11th century, several different factors came together in a sort of perfect storm of religion, politics, and power 
to precipitate Pope Urban's call for a military maneuver toward Jerusalem at the Council of Clermont in 1095. And in today's lecture, we're going to explore the causes behind and the lasting effects of the First Crusade. Now, for the last several lectures, we've been focused primarily on Western Europe. But as we discussed near the beginning of the course, it is incredibly important that we always take care to situate the European medieval world in the larger context of both the Byzantine Empire and the Muslim world, what some scholars have identified as the three sibling cultures that emerged from the Roman Empire. In the events surrounding the First Crusade, we see these three sibling cultures interact and clash in dramatic fashion. First, we need to remember that as the Muslim world expanded, its reach moved from the Middle East through North Africa and into Spain in the early 8th century. In the 11th century, Pope Alexander II called for a retaking of these territories by Christian forces, a sort of mini-crusade that anticipated the one Urban II called for in 1095. The first mini-crusade was known as the Reconquista, or literally Reconquest, of Muslim Spain. When Alexander II turned the attempt to re-Christianize Spain into a holy war, he was also attempting to affirm and expand the power and authority of the papacy, which had become a major issue in the 10th century. One of the central issues was the nature of the church as it existed in the West and in the Byzantine Empire. Remember that Byzantium, the eastern half of the former Roman Empire, had not declined in the way the West had. Its citizens considered themselves Romans long after the empire had effectively ceased to exist. And thus, its emperor and the leader of its branch of Christianity, which we have come to call Eastern Orthodox Christianity, the supreme leader of which is known as the Patriarch, had long considered themselves the true heirs of Rome in both the secular and religious arenas. Now in the West, the popes, who initially had not been terribly powerful, began to make a claim for their power and supremacy in the 11th century. And this really began under Pope Leo IX, who became pope in 1049. What is interesting to keep in mind as we discuss the rise of the power of the papacy is that Leo was essentially appointed by the German ruler Henry III. So a secular ruler, the so-called Holy Roman Emperor, had chosen the leader of the church. But once Leo took office, he set about reforming the papacy and asserting the authority of the popes over secular leaders. In 1054, he sent a papal diplomat, the fabulously named Humbert of Silva Candida, to Constantinople. Once there, Humbert got into an argument with the Patriarch over the status and power of the Pope and the Western Church. The dispute became so heated that in an attempt to assert the supremacy of the Western Church, Humbert excommunicated the Patriarch. In return, the Patriarch excommunicated Humbert. This rift between these two major Christian churches, which has come to be known as the Great Schism, continues to this day, although several attempts at reconciliation have been made. In 1965, for example, 
Pope Paul VI and Patriarch Athenagoras issued a joint edict which rendered null those mutual excommunications of 1054. But as of today, the Western Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox Church could not be called unified. In addition to the Great Schism of the 11th century, we have another major conflict that is important for understanding the forces that led to the calling of the First Crusade, and this is something known as the Investiture Conflict. In a nutshell, this was a debate about who had the right to appoint religious leaders, and it began in 1075 when Emperor Henry III installed his own choice for Archbishop of Milan into that position. The Pope at the time, Gregory VII, had had his own candidate in mind and angrily rebuked Henry for not acknowledging the Church's right and authority to appoint the Archbishop. What followed is something that's probably starting to sound a little familiar. Henry told Gregory to resign, and Gregory excommunicated Henry. In the end, Henry submitted in spectacular fashion by standing barefoot in the snow for three days until Gregory lifted the excommunication. But the matter would not be definitively resolved until 1122, when the Concordat of Worms instituted a compromise that seemed to satisfy both sides. So, in the 11th century, we have the popes attempting to assert their authority over secular rulers in the West and over the church in the East, in the Byzantine Empire. The long-standing rift between East and West had been felt most strongly in the Great Schism of 1054, but for all that, the idea of a unified church, and even more, the idea of a reunified Roman Empire, still held a great deal of appeal, and events on the borders of the Byzantine Empire seemed to present an opportunity to bridge the gulf between East and West. In the middle of the 11th century, the borders of Byzantium started to be overrun by Turks, many of whom had converted to Islam in the 10th century. Their raids into the Christian territories of Byzantium were less about religious issues and more about the acquisition of territory and wealth, but the fact that Christian territories were being lost and, in what would seem to be the last straw, the Byzantine emperor himself was captured at the Battle of Manzikert led to an appeal for help on the part of the Eastern leaders to their Christian brethren in the West. Or so Urban II characterized it when he preached the First Crusade at Clermont in France in 1095. So we can see how politics and events in the Muslim, Byzantine, and European worlds all came together at the end of the 11th century to produce a situation in which a combination of religious fervor, political idealism, and opportunism produced a willing body of warriors ready to travel to Jerusalem. When he called for the First Crusade, Urban announced two goals. The first was to liberate Christians who were residing in those territories that had been conquered by invading Turks. The second was to free Jerusalem, the holiest of cities, from Muslim rule. Because of this, the crusade was indeed characterized as a kind of pilgrimage, but a pilgrimage unlike any other, in that it was essentially a war. As such, 
Only men who were of fighting age were officially allowed to go. Women, children, old men, priests, and monks. With a few exceptions, these people were not supposed to participate. Although in any campaign of this sort, a support staff of cooks, laborers, servants, and smiths would be essential, and some women were given permission to accompany their husbands. It is estimated. That the fighting force of the First Crusade numbered around fifty thousand, and there has been some debate about what exactly motivated many of those who took the cross. Taking the cross was the phrase used to describe the pledge to go on crusade. In fact, the word crusade was not even used until much, much later. Crusaders were most frequently described as croisiers. From the French word for cross, because as a sign of their pledge, they would wear a tunic with a cross embroidered on it, announcing to all and sundry their goal. It is certain that for many who joined the First Crusade, a very real religious fervor was at the root of their decision to embark on this journey. But for a long time, many medieval scholars felt that this could not really be the case. And a very popular theory, known as the Second Son theory, held sway. This was the idea that, given the dominance of inheritance systems based on primogeniture in Europe, second, third, and especially fourth sons had very few options beyond perhaps going into the church. A campaign like the Crusade presented an opportunity for younger sons to acquire wealth, status, and property. Through that time-tested method of warfare and pillage that would otherwise be unavailable to them, and it is the case that many young noblemen gained properties and titles and stature in what came to be called the Crusader states of the Middle East that they never could have attained if they had remained in Europe. But heading out on crusade was also a very expensive, risk-filled undertaking, and so. In the majority of circumstances, a heartfelt religious devotion seems to have been the underlying motivation. When he preached the crusade, Pope Urban also granted those who participated forgiveness for all their sins, including any they incurred while on crusade, and those that they had incurred in their lifetimes before setting out for the Middle East. For a citizen of the medieval world. To whom the dangers and pains of hell and purgatory loomed quite large, this was indeed an attractive incentive. The depth of feeling that prodded many to go on crusade is nowhere more visible than in the case of what has come to be called the Peasants' Crusade, which actually set off for Jerusalem earlier than any other group. Now, officially, instead of one giant military expedition. Crusading forces were a series of small armies, each commanded by a man who had been officially sanctioned by the Pope as authorized to lead his unit on crusade, and as these were all members of the warrior class, they were nobles. The Peasants' Crusade was an unofficial crusade, led by a man named Peter the Hermit, and it was made up of a group of commoners who headed overland across Europe toward the Middle East. We don't know much about Peter the Hermit, but he seems to have been inspired by the Pope's call to liberate the Holy Land, to give up a life of contemplation and solitude, 
in order to gather together an army. The actions of Peter the Hermit's crusaders also demonstrate that, while although the liberation of Jerusalem and the Christian communities in the Middle East and Asia Minor was the stated goal of the First Crusade, crusading activity was happening throughout Europe. The Reconquista of Spain is just one example. Throughout the crusading period, groups considered outside the mainstream of Western Christianity but living within the bonds of Europe became the victims of crusading fervor. Non-Christians in Scandinavia, heretics such as the Cathars in France, and perhaps most significantly, the Jews. Peter the Hermit's decision to march through the Rhineland on his way to the Holy Land was a deliberate one. And along the way, his militia slaughtered huge numbers of Jews living in this area. Other groups of crusaders engaged in similar behavior, and there are many chronicle accounts, most of them certainly based on eyewitness testimony, that relate in excruciating detail the vicious slaughter of entire Jewish communities and how, in several instances, members of Jewish communities killed one another so that they would be spared the cruelty of death at the hands of the crusaders. For example, Solomon Bar Simpson, a member of the Jewish community of Mass, records that, quote, fathers fell upon their sons being slaughtered upon one another, and they slew one another, each man his kin, his wife and children. Bridegrooms slew their betrothed, and merciful women their only children. The chronicler Peter of Aachen relates a similar story, noting that the Jews of Mans had asked for and received protection from the Christian bishop of that community, who took them into his household. But he also noted then that the crusaders attacked the bishop's hall and killed over 700 of the Jews who had taken refuge there. Those that were not killed were forcibly baptized. And it is not just at Mans that this event, which we might call a holocaust happened. The Jewish communities of Speyer, of Köln, of Worms, and others all suffered similar terrible attacks. Now, before the First Crusade, Jews were not systematically persecuted in the medieval world, but there were significant restrictions on trades or professions they could practice and places where they could live. As the medieval church and the office of the papacy became more centralized and powerful in the 10th and 11th centuries, religious fervor such as that harnessed for the First Crusade began to coalesce into what historian R.I. Moore has termed the formation of a persecuting society. As we will see, such persecutions would only escalate as we move from the high to the late Middle Ages. Peter the Hermit and his followers apparently made it as far as Anatolia, where most of his band were either slaughtered or sold into slavery. Other armed militias, however, made it all the way to the city of Jerusalem, and from the point of view of Western Christendom, the First Crusade was a success. Now, the number one reason for the success of this campaign was not because the Crusaders were particularly well-organized or an efficient military force, but rather because of disunity in the Muslim world. As you recall from an earlier lecture, the Muslim world had begun to dissipate into factions, 
and by the year 1000, it was divided into many different groups. The biggest conflict was between the Abbasids, who were Muslims who were followers of the Prophet Muhammad's youngest uncle, and the Fatimids, who took their name from Muhammad's daughter Fatima. The Fatimids were strong in Egypt and Syria in particular, but shortly before Urban's call for the First Crusade, they, like the Byzantine Empire, had found themselves confronting a new enemy in the form of the Turks. As the Crusaders, commonly referred to as Franks because so much of their ranks were made up of Frenchmen, made their way toward Jerusalem, they conquered whatever they could as they went. In 1098, after passing through Armenian lands that had been utterly laid waste by earlier conflicts between the local inhabitants and the Turks, one crusading company reached Edessa, which they conquered and then effectively established as the first Latin settlement in the east. A short time later, another band of crusaders arrived at Antioch. This group had encountered serious problems, not the least of which was that almost all the horses and pack animals they had started out with had died on the expedition. This was a serious blow to men whose very status was in so many ways tied to their position as a mounted knight on horseback. Many knights apparently were forced forced to appropriate donkeys as stand-ins for their horses, and others were reduced to fighting on foot, not the mark of a nobleman. They made camp outside the walls of Antioch with the intention of starving the citizens into submission, but contemporary accounts suggest that it is the crusaders who were in constant danger of starvation. With provisions running low and no such thing as a stable supply line, most of their time was spent not in attacking the city, but trying to find enough food to survive. And many of them appear to have become quite ill. Some noblemen who had started the crusade as wealthy men found all their riches gone for necessities for survival, and many found themselves near destitute and were forced to become wage-earning servants of those crusaders who still had the means to pay. The crusading band had been reduced to a sorry state after seven and a half months of this, when finally, it seems, the city of Antioch was betrayed by one of its own citizens, who opened the gates and let the invading army in. When the crusaders took Antioch, they killed every Turk in the city, something that the Fatimids who had recently lost control of Jerusalem to the Turkish leader Atsis, thought worked in their favor. After the defeat of the Turks at Antioch, the Fatimids were able to retake Jerusalem from Atsis, and it seems that they expected that the Crusaders would become their allies. So on July 15th, 1099, when the Crusading armies showed up and launched an attack on the city of Jerusalem, the Fatimids were completely unprepared and fairly quickly defeated. A week later, a man named Godfrey of Bouillon was elected the leader of this new settlement, and he quickly turned his attention to staving off an enemy army that was on its way up from Egypt. He managed this feat, and for a time, the Crusaders set up a new society, one that they called Outremer, which means something like over the sea. It consisted of four crusader states, the county of Tripoli and the county of Edessa, the principality of Antioch, 
and the kingdom of Jerusalem. All four of these were ruled over by Europeans, albeit tenuously at times, until 1291. Trade flourished between east and west, and there was a surge in the number of pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem. Now, obviously, such a long journey from the European west to the Middle East required a significant outlay of expenses and required also that pilgrims carry a significant amount of money with them. This, as you might guess, made them attractive targets for all manner of thieves and ruffians. And it is this situation that gave rise to the creation of an organization that has been the subject of much wildly imaginative discussion in books and movies in recent years. And these are the Knights Templar. A Templar was an utterly new kind of knight, in that he was also a monk. It was one thing for the Pope to send secular fighting men to defend and protect the church through force of arms. It was quite another for him to sanction an order of monks who were given license to act like knights. The Knights Templar were initially founded by a man named Hugh of Payne, along with eight companions around the year 1118, and their stated goal was to offer protection to pilgrims who were traveling to Jerusalem. They did this not only by serving as a kind of bodyguard for those pilgrims passing through Palestine, but also by cleverly coming up with a way to remove the need for pilgrims to carry money and other valuables with them. They came up with a very modern idea, which was essentially banking as we know it today. A pilgrim traveling to the Holy Land could deposit his money at one of the Templar strongholds to be found throughout the European West. The amount he had deposited was then inscribed in code on a piece of vellum or parchment, which could be decoded only by a member of the order on the other end, in Jerusalem. The pilgrim could then withdraw the amount of money he had deposited before his pilgrimage once he had arrived at his final destination in sort of the earliest form of ATM withdrawal. As a further mark of their high and unusual status, the king of Jerusalem at the time, Baldwin II, gave the Templars as their headquarters part of the royal enclosure on the Temple Mount, hence the name Templar. Perhaps even more importantly, one of the most important religious figures of the day, Bernard of Clairvaux, a Cistercian monk and abbot, further legitimized them by writing rules for their order, and the Templars adopted as a uniform the white robe of the Cistercians with a red cross emblazoned on the front. At the height of their existence, it is estimated that there were about 20,000 Templars, roughly divided into three groups, the Knights, responsible for overseeing the safety and security of pilgrims in the Holy Land, priests, who attended to the religious needs of the order, and commoners, who helped with the day-to-day running of the Templars' quite lucrative banking empire. They soon amassed wealth and power on a massive scale, something that worried many rulers, particularly the King of France, and this in turn led to their persecution and the eventual dissolution of their order in the 14th century, a fact which meant that their property and money could be confiscated and enrich the coffers of others, particularly, in this case, the French monarchy. The Templars were not the only new order of knights to be created as a direct result of the Crusades. Two others, 
the Knights Hospitaller, and the Teutonic Knights are worth mentioning. The Knights Hospitaller were formed around the same time and out of the same impulse as that which led to the founding of the Knights Templar, namely a desire to offer assistance to pilgrims who had traveled to the Holy Land. While the Templars focused more on protecting pilgrims from theft or violence, the Hospitallers concentrated on caring for those who became ill while in Jerusalem. As you can imagine, since the journey to Jerusalem was arduous and many people set out on pilgrimage for the express purpose of seeking relief from various ailments and afflictions, there was a significant need for medical assistance for many of those pilgrims who made it to Jerusalem. This order venerated poverty, subjecting themselves to the extremes of an impoverished life, but in contrast, they treated all of the sick in their hospitals, no matter their rank, as if they were great lords or noblemen. Of particular note are the lavish and rich diets all patients were fed. The Hospital of St. John was run on a staggering scale, with enough beds for 2,000 patients and wards that divided the sick by gender and even by medical specialty. For example, one of the wards seems to have been devoted to obstetrics. Within 50 years of their founding, the Knights Hospitaller, like the Knights Templar, had become a military order of monk knights with a division of ranks, those who tended to the ill in the hospital and those who fought on behalf of the order. While the Templars wore a white tunic with a red cross, the Knights Hospitaller were easily identified by their black tunics and white crosses. The last of the new orders of knighthood to result from the Crusades were the Teutonic Knights. This order was established later than the Templars and the Hospitallers, closer to the end of the 12th century. But again, like the other two orders, the impetus for their existence came from a desire to help those in need. In this case, the Teutonic Knights set themselves the task of caring specifically for injured crusaders. They are called the Teutonic Knights because most of the original members were nobles from the area of Europe that roughly corresponds to modern Germany and Austria, and thus they are distinct from the mass of crusaders who were usually referred to as Franks because their ranks were so dominated by the French. The Teutonic Knights wore white tunics with black crosses, and compared to the Templars and Hospitallers, their order was rather small. Eventually, they moved the center of their attention away from Outremer into Eastern Europe, where they continued to participate in the crusading fervor that had swept the medieval world by fighting against the Slavs, who at that point were non-Christians. Gradually, the Teutonic Knights conquered Prussia and converted any non-Christians living there to Christianity. While all three of these orders suggest the strong European presence that existed in the Middle East during the height of crusading, the hold of the crusaders on the newly formed crusader states was tenuous. It wasn't long before many of the crusader states, starting with Edessa, were retaken by local forces, and new crusades needed to be declared with the goal of retaking, once again, these locations for Christendom. The inability of the crusaders to hold on to these territories was not only due to hostility from Muslim forces, but also to many of the European warriors who rose to minor positions of power and instead of seeking to live peacefully in Outremer with all its inhabitants, 
sought instead a policy of complete domination that led many of them to provoke attacks and foment violence. The Christian leaders of the Crusader states were very often in conflict with one another, and this weakened their position and made it difficult for any sort of consistent, peaceable situation to obtain, although there were some notable figures who sought to try and create a peaceful and harmonious community that included Christians, Jews, and Muslims. In our next lecture, we're going to continue to explore the impact the crusading movement had on the communities of the Levant and the new influences, ideas, and learning that contact with the Muslim world transferred back to the medieval world of the West.